Power and Market Chapter 1. Defense Services on the Free Market Economists have referred innumerable times to the free market, the social array of voluntary exchanges of goods and services. But despite this abundance of treatment, their analysis has slighted the deeper implications of free exchange. Thus, there has been general neglect of the fact that free exchange means exchange of titles of ownership to property, and that therefore the economist is obliged to inquire into the conditions and the nature of the property ownership that would obtain in the free society. If a free society means a world in which no one aggresses against the person or property of others, then this implies a society in which every man has the absolute right of property in his own self and in the previously unowned natural resources that he finds, transforms by his own labor, and then gives to or exchanges with others. A firm property right in one's own self and in the resources that one finds, transforms, and gives or exchanges leads to the property structure that is found in free market capitalism. Thus, an economist cannot fully analyze the exchange structure of the free market without setting forth the theory of property rights, of justice in property that would have to obtain in a free market society. In our analysis of the free market in man, economy, and state, we assumed that no invasion of property takes place there, either because everyone voluntarily refrains from such aggression, or because whatever method of forcible defense exists on the free market is sufficient to prevent any such aggression. But economists have almost invariably and paradoxically assumed that the market must be kept free by the use of invasive and unfree actions, in short, by governmental institutions outside the market nexus. A supply of defense services on the free market would mean maintaining the axiom of the free society, namely that there be no use of physical force except in defense against those using force to invade person or property. This would imply the complete absence of a state apparatus or government, for the state, unlike all other persons and institutions in society, acquires its revenue not by exchanges freely contracted, but by a system of unilateral coercion called taxation. Defense in the free society, including such defense services to person and property as police protection and judicial findings, would therefore have to be supplied by people or firms who a. gained their revenue voluntarily rather than by coercion, and b. did not, as the state does, arrogate to themselves a compulsory monopoly of police or judicial protection. Only such libertarian provision of defense service would be consonant with a free market and a free society. Thus, defense firms would have to be as freely competitive and as non-coercive against non-invaders as are all other suppliers of goods and services on the free market. 
defense services, like all other services, would be marketable and marketable only. Those economists and others who espouse the philosophy of laissez-faire believe that the freedom of the market should be upheld and that property rights must not be invaded. Nevertheless, they strongly believe that defense service cannot be supplied by the market and that defense against invasion of property must therefore be supplied outside the free market by the coercive force of the government. In arguing thus, they are caught in an insoluble contradiction, for they sanction and advocate massive invasion of property by the very agency, government, that is supposed to defend people against invasion. For a laissez-faire government would necessarily have to seize its revenues by the invasion of property called taxation, and would arrogate to itself a compulsory monopoly of defense services over some arbitrarily designated territorial area. The laissez-faire theorists, who are here joined by almost all other writers, attempt to redeem their position from this glaring contradiction by asserting that a purely free-market defense service could not exist and that therefore those who value highly a forcible defense against violence would have to fall back on the state, despite its black historical record as the great engine of invasive violence, as a necessary evil for the protection of person and property. The laissez-faireists offer several objections to the idea of free market defense, one objection holds that since a free market of exchanges presupposes a system of property rights, therefore the state is needed to define and allocate the structure of such rights. But we have seen that the principles of a free society do imply a very definite theory of property rights, namely self-ownership and the ownership of natural resources found and transformed by one's labor. Therefore, no state or similar agency contrary to the market is needed to define or allocate property rights. This can and will be done by the use of reason and through market processes themselves. Any other allocation or definition would be completely arbitrary and contrary to the principles of the free society. A similar doctrine holds that defense must be supplied by the state because of the unique status of defense as a necessary precondition of market activity as a function without which a market economy could not exist. Yet this argument is a non-sequitur that proves far too much. It was the fallacy of the classical economists to consider goods and services in terms of large classes. Instead, modern economics demonstrates that services must be considered in terms of marginal units, for all actions on the market are marginal. If we begin to treat whole classes instead of marginal units, we can discover a great myriad of necessary, indispensable goods and services, all of which might be considered as preconditions of market activity. Is not land room vital, or food for each participant, or clothing, or shelter? 
Can a market long exist without them? And what of paper, which has become a basic requisite of market activity in the complex modern economy? Must all these goods and services therefore be supplied by the state and the state only? The laissez-fairist also assumes that there must be a single compulsory monopoly of coercion and decision-making in society, that there must, for example, be one supreme court to hand down final and unquestioned decisions. But he fails to recognize that the world has lived quite well throughout its existence without a single ultimate decision-maker over its whole inhabited surface. The Argentinian, for example, lives in a state of anarchy, of non-government, in relation to the citizen of Uruguay or of Ceylon. And yet, the private citizens of these and other countries live and trade together without getting into insoluble legal conflicts, despite the absence of a common governmental ruler. The Argentinian, who believes he has been aggressed upon by a Ceylonese, for example, takes his grievance to an Argentinian court, and its decision is recognized by the Ceylonese courts, and vice versa if the Ceylonese is the aggrieved party. Although it is true that the separate nation-states have warred interminably against each other, the private citizens of the various countries, despite widely differing legal systems, have managed to live together in harmony without having a single government over them. If the citizens of northern Montana and of Saskatchewan across the border can live and trade together in harmony without a common government, so can the citizens of northern and of southern Montana. In short, the present-day boundaries of nations are purely historical and arbitrary, and there is no more need for a monopoly government over the citizens of one country than there is for one between the citizens of two different nations. It is all the more curious, incidentally, that while laissez-fairists should, by the logic of their position, be ardent believers in a single, unified world government, so that no one will live in a state of anarchy in relation to anyone else, they almost never are. And once one concedes that a single world government is not necessary, then where does one logically stop at the permissibility of separate states? If Canada and the United States can be separate nations without being denounced as being in a state of impermissible anarchy, why may not the South secede from the United States, New York State from the Union, New York City from the State? Why may not Manhattan secede? Each neighborhood, each block, each house, each person. But of course, if each person may secede from government, we have virtually arrived at the purely free society, where defense is supplied along with all other services by the free market, and where the invasive state has ceased to exist. The role of freely competitive judiciaries has, in fact, been far more important in the history of the West than is often recognized. 
the law merchant, admiralty law, and much of the common law began to be developed by privately competitive judges who were sought out by litigants for their expertise in understanding the legal areas involved. The fairs of Champagne and the great marts of international trade in the Middle Ages enjoyed freely competitive courts, and people could patronize those that they deemed most accurate and efficient. Let us, then, examine in a little more detail what a free market defense system might look like. It is, we must realize, impossible to blueprint the exact institutional conditions of any market in advance, just as it would have been impossible fifty years ago to predict the exact structure of the television industry today. However, we can postulate some of the workings of a freely competitive, marketable system of police and judicial services. Most likely, such services would be sold on an advanced subscription basis, with premiums paid regularly and services to be supplied on call. Many competitors would undoubtedly arise, each attempting by earning a reputation for efficiency and probity to win a consumer market for its services. Of course, it is possible that in some areas a single agency would outcompete all others. But this does not seem likely when we realize that there is no territorial monopoly and that efficient firms would be able to open branches in other geographical areas. It seems likely also that supplies of police and judicial service would be provided by insurance companies because it would be to their direct advantage to reduce the amount of crime as much as possible. One common objection to the feasibility of marketable protection, its desirability is not the problem here, runs as follows. Suppose that Jones subscribes to Defense Agency X and Smith subscribes to Defense Agency Y. We will assume for convenience that the defense agency includes a police force and a court or courts, although in practice these two functions might well be performed by separate firms. Smith alleges that he has been assaulted or robbed by Jones. Jones denies the charge. How, then, is justice to be dispensed? Clearly, Smith will file charges against Jones and institute suit or trial proceedings in the Y court system. Jones is invited to defend himself against the charges, although there can be no subpoena power since any sort of force used against a man not yet convicted of a crime is itself an invasive and criminal act that could not be consonant with the free society as we have been postulating. If Jones is declared innocent, or if he is declared guilty and consents to the finding, then there is no problem on this level, and the Y courts then institute suitable measures of punishment. Suppose that Smith, convinced of Jones' guilt, takes the law into his own hands rather than go through the court procedure. What then? In itself, this would be legitimate and not punishable as a crime, 
since no court or agency may have the right in a free society to use force for defense beyond the self-same right of each individual. However, Smith would then have to face the consequences of a possible countersuit and trial by Jones, and he himself would have to face punishment as a criminal if Jones is found to be innocent. But what if Jones challenges the finding? In that case, he can either take the case to his ex-court system or take it directly to a privately competitive appeals court of a type that will undoubtedly spring up in abundance on the market to fill the great need for such tribunals. Probably there will be just a few appeals court systems, far fewer than the number of primary courts, and each of the lower courts will boast to its customers about being members of those appeals court systems noted for their efficiency and probity. The appeals court decision can then be taken by the society as binding. Indeed, in the basic legal code of the free society, there probably would be enshrined some such clause as that the decision of any two courts will be considered binding, that is, will be the point at which the court will be able to take action against the party adjudged guilty. The law code of the purely free society would simply enshrine the libertarian axiom, prohibition of any violence against the person or property of another except in defense of someone's person or property, property to be defined as self-ownership plus the ownership of resources that one has found, transformed, or bought, or received after such transformation. The task of the code would be to spell out the implications of this axiom, for example, the libertarian sections of the law merchant or common law would be co-opted, while the statist accretions would be discarded. The code would then be applied to specific cases by the free market judges who would all pledge themselves to follow it. Every legal system needs some sort of socially agreed-upon cut-off point a point at which judicial procedure stops and punishment against the convicted criminal begins. But a single monopoly court of ultimate decision-making need not be imposed, and, of course, cannot be in a free society, and a libertarian legal code might well have a two-court cut-off point, since there are always two contesting parties, the plaintiff and the defendant. Another common objection to the workability of free market defense wonders, may not one or more of the defense agencies turn its coercive power to criminal uses? In short, may not a private police agency use its force to aggress against others? Or may not a private court collude to make fraudulent decisions and thus aggress against its subscribers and victims? It is very generally assumed that those who postulate a stateless society are also naive enough to believe that in such a society all men would be good and no one would wish to aggress against his neighbor. There is no need to assume any such magical or miraculous change in human nature, 
Of course, some of the private defense agencies will become criminal, just as some people become criminal now. But the point is that in a stateless society, there would be no regular, legalized channel for crime and aggression, no government apparatus, the control of which provides a secure monopoly for invasion of person and property. When a state exists, there does exist such a built-in channel, namely the coercive taxation power and the compulsory monopoly of forcible protection. In the purely free market society, a would-be criminal police or judiciary would find it very difficult to take power, since there would be no organized state apparatus to seize and use as the instrumentality of command. To create such an instrumentality de novo is very difficult, and indeed almost impossible, Historically, it took state rulers centuries to establish a functioning state apparatus. Furthermore, the purely free market stateless society would contain within itself a system of built-in checks and balances that would make it almost impossible for such organized crime to succeed. There has been much talk about checks and balances in the American system, but these can scarcely be considered checks at all, since every one of these institutions is an agency of the central government, and eventually of the ruling party of that government. The checks and balances in the stateless society consist precisely in the free market, that is, the existence of freely competitive police and judicial agencies that could quickly be mobilized to put down any outlaw agency. It is true that there can be no absolute guarantee that a purely market society would not fall prey to organized criminality, but this concept is far more workable than the truly utopian ideal of a strictly limited government, an idea that has never worked historically, and understandably so. For the state's built-in monopoly of aggression and inherent absence of free market checks has enabled it to burst easily any bonds that well-meaning people have tried to place upon it. Finally, the worst that could possibly happen would be for the state to be re-established, and since the state is what we have now, any experimentation with a stateless society would have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Many economists object to marketable defense on the grounds that defense is one of an alleged category of collective goods that can be supplied only by the state. This fallacious theory is refuted elsewhere. And Merlin H. Hunter and Harry K. Allen, two of the very few economists who have conceded the possibility of a purely market defense, have written, If then individuals were willing to pay sufficiently high price, protection, general education, recreation, the army, navy, police departments, schools, and parks might be provided through individual initiative, as well as food, clothing, and automobiles. 
Actually, Hunter and Allen greatly underestimated the workability of private action in providing these services. For a compulsory monopoly, gaining its revenues out of generalized coercion rather than by the voluntary payment of the customers, is bound to be strikingly less efficient than a freely competitive private enterprise supply of such services. The price paid would be a great gain to society and to the consumers, rather than an imposed extra cost. Thus, a truly free market is totally incompatible with the existence of a state, an institution that presumes to defend person and property by itself subsisting on the unilateral coercion against private property known as taxation. On the free market, defense against violence would be a service like any other obtainable from freely competitive private organizations. Whatever problems remain in this area could easily be solved in practice by the market process, that very process which has solved countless organizational problems of far greater intricacy. Those laissez-faire economists and writers, past and present, who have stopped short at the impossibly utopian ideal of a limited government, are trapped in a grave inner contradiction. This contradiction of laissez-faire was lucidly exposed by the British political philosopher Oberon Herbert. A is to compel B to cooperate with him or B to compel A. But in any case, cooperation cannot be secured, as we are told, unless, through all time, one section is compelling another section to form a state. Very good. But then, what has become of our system of individualism? A has got hold of B, or B of A, and has forced him into a system of which he disapproves extracts service and payment from him, which he does not wish to render, has virtually become his master. What is all this but socialism on a reduced scale? Believing, then, that the judgment of every individual who has not aggressed against his neighbor is supreme as regards his actions, and that this is the rock on which individualism rests— I deny that A and B can go to C and force him to form a state and extract from him certain payments and services in the name of such state. And I go on to maintain that if you act in this manner, you at once justify state socialism. Chapter 2. Fundamentals of Intervention 1. Types of Intervention we have so far contemplated a free society and a free market, where any needed defense against violent invasion of person and property is supplied not by the state, but by freely competitive, marketable defense agencies. Our major task in this volume is to analyze the effects of various types of violent intervention in society, and especially in the market, most of our examples will deal with the state, since the state is uniquely the agency engaged in regularized violence on a large scale. 
However, our analysis applies to the extent that any individual or group commits violent invasion. Whether the invasion is legal or not does not concern us, since we are engaged in praxeological, not legal, analysis. One of the most lucid analyses of the distinction between state and market was set forth by Franz Oppenheimer. He pointed out that there are fundamentally two ways of satisfying a person's wants. One, by production and voluntary exchange with others on the market, and two, by violent expropriation of the wealth of others. A person may receive gifts, but this is a unitary act of the giver, not involving an act of the receiver himself. The first method Oppenheimer termed the economic means for the satisfaction of wants, the second method the political means. The state is trenchantly defined as the organization of the political means. A generic term is needed to designate an individual or group that commits invasive violence in society. We may call intervener or invader, one who intervenes violently in free social or market relations, the term applies to any individual or group that initiates violent intervention in the free actions of persons and property owners. What types of intervention can the invader commit? Broadly, we may distinguish three categories. In the first place, the intervener may command an individual subject to do or not to do certain things when these actions directly involve the individual's person or property alone. In short, he restricts the subject's use of his property when exchange is not involved. This may be called an autistic intervention for any specific command directly involves only the subject himself. Secondly, the intervener may enforce a coerced exchange between the individual subject and himself, or a coerced gift to himself from the subject. Thirdly, the invader may either compel or prohibit an exchange between a pair of subjects. The former may be called a binary intervention, since a hegemonic relation is established between two people, the intervener and the subject. The latter may be called a triangular intervention, since a hegemonic relation is created between the invader and a pair of exchangers or would-be exchangers. The market, complex though it may be, consists of a series of exchanges between pairs of individuals. However extensive the interventions, then, they may be resolved into unit impacts on either individual subjects or pairs of individual subjects. All these types of intervention, of course, are subdivisions of the hegemonic relation, the relation of command and obedience, as contrasted with the contractual relation of voluntary mutual benefit. Autistic intervention occurs when the invader coerces a subject without receiving any good or service in return. 
Widely disparate types of autistic intervention are homicide, assault, and compulsory enforcement or prohibition of any salute, speech, or religious observance. Even if the intervener is the state, which issues the edict to all individuals in the society, the edict is still in itself an autistic intervention, since the lines of force, so to speak, radiate from the state to each individual alone. Binary intervention occurs when the invader forces the subject to make an exchange or a unilateral gift of some good or service to the invader. Highway robbery and taxes are examples of binary intervention, as are conscription and compulsory jury service. Whether the binary hegemonic relation is a coerced gift or a coerced exchange does not really matter a great deal. The only difference is in the type of coercion involved. Slavery, of course, is usually a coerced exchange, since the slave owner must supply his slaves with subsistence. Curiously enough, writers on political economy have recognized only the third category as intervention. This is to be inferred from, rather than discovered in explicit form in, their writings. As far as we know, no one has systematically categorized or analyzed types of intervention. It is understandable that preoccupation with catalactic problems has led economists to overlook the broader praxeological category of actions that lie outside the monetary exchange nexus. Nevertheless, they are part of the subject of praxeology and should be subjected to analysis. There is far less excuse for economists to neglect the binary category of intervention. Yet many economists who profess to be champions of the free market and opponents of interference with it have a peculiarly narrow view of freedom and intervention. Acts of binary intervention, such as conscription and the imposition of income taxes, are not considered intervention at all, nor as interferences with the free market. Only instances of triangular intervention, such as price control, are conceded to be intervention. Curious schemata are developed in which the market is considered absolutely free and unhampered despite a regular system of imposed taxation. Yet taxes and conscripts are paid in money and thus enter the catalactic as well as the wider praxeological nexus. A narrow view of freedom is characteristic in the present day. In the political lexicon of modern America, left-wingers often advocate freedom in the sense of opposition to autistic intervention, but look benignly on triangular intervention. Right-wingers, on the other hand, severely oppose triangular intervention, but tend to favor or remain indifferent to autistic intervention. Both groups are ambivalent toward binary intervention. In tracing the effects of intervention, one must take care to analyze all its consequences, direct and indirect. 
It is impossible in the space of this volume to trace all the effects of every one of the almost infinite number of possible varieties of intervention, but sufficient analysis can be made of the important categories of intervention and the consequences of each. Thus, it must be remembered that acts of binary intervention have definite triangular repercussions. An income tax will shift the pattern of exchanges between subjects from what it otherwise would have been. Furthermore, all the consequences of an act must be considered. It is not sufficient to engage in a partial equilibrium analysis of taxation, for example, and to consider a tax completely apart from the fact that the state subsequently spends the tax money. 2. Direct Effects of Intervention on Utility A. Intervention and Conflict The first step in analyzing intervention is to contrast the direct effect on the utilities of the participants with the effect of a free society. When people are free to act, they will always act in a way that they believe will maximize their utility, that is, will raise them to the highest possible position on their value scale. Their utility ex-ante will be maximized, provided we take care to interpret utility in an ordinal rather than a cardinal manner. Any action, any exchange that takes place on the free market, or more broadly in the free society, occurs because of the expected benefit to each party concerned. If we allow ourselves to use the term society to depict the pattern of all individual exchanges, then we may say that the free market maximizes social utility, since everyone gains in utility. We must be careful, however, not to hypostatize society into a real entity that means something else than an array of all individuals. Coercive intervention, on the other hand, signifies per se that the individual or individuals coerced would not have done what they are now doing were it not for the intervention. The individual who is coerced into saying or not saying something, or into making or not making an exchange with the intervener or with someone else, is having his actions changed by a threat of violence. The coerced individual loses in utility as a result of the intervention, for his action has been changed by its impact. Any intervention, whether it be autistic, binary, or triangular, causes the subjects to lose in utility. In autistic and binary intervention, each individual loses in utility. In triangular intervention, at least one, and sometimes both, of the pair of would-be exchangers lose in utility. Who, in contrast, gains in utility ex-ante? Clearly the intervener. Otherwise, he would not have intervened. 
Either he gains inexchangeable goods at the expense of his subject, as in binary intervention, or, as in autistic and triangular intervention, he gains in a sense of well-being from enforcing regulations upon others. All instances of intervention, then, in contrast to the free market, are cases in which one set of men gains at the expense of other men. In binary intervention, the gains and losses are tangible in the form of exchangeable goods and services. In other types of intervention, the gains are non-exchangeable satisfactions, and the loss consists in being coerced into less satisfying types of activity, if not positively painful ones. Before the development of economic science, people thought of exchange and the market as always benefiting one party at the expense of the other. This was the root of the mercantilist view of the market. Economics has shown that this is a fallacy, for on the market, both parties to any exchange benefit. On the market, therefore, there can be no such thing as exploitation. But the thesis of a conflict of interest is true whenever the state or any other agency intervenes on the market. For then, the intervener gains only at the expense of subjects who lose in utility. On the market, all is harmony. But as soon as intervention appears and is established, conflict is created, for each may participate in a scramble to be a net gainer rather than a net loser, to be part of the invading team instead of one of the victims. It has become fashionable to assert that conservatives like John C. Calhoun anticipated the Marxian doctrine of class exploitation, but the Marxian doctrine holds erroneously that there are classes on the free market whose interests clash and conflict. Calhoun's insight was almost the reverse. Calhoun saw that it was the intervention of the state that in itself created the classes and the conflict. Castes would be a better term than classes here. Classes are any collection of units with a certain property in common. There is no reason for them to conflict. Does the class of men named Jones necessarily conflict with the class of men named Smith? On the other hand, Castes are state-made groups, each with its own set of violence-established privileges and tasks. Castes necessarily conflict, because some are instituted to rule over the others. Calhoun particularly perceived this in the case of the binary intervention of taxes, for he saw that the proceeds of taxes are used and spent and that some people in the community must be net payers of tax funds, while the others are net recipients. Calhoun defined the latter as the ruling class of the exploiters, and the former as the ruled or exploited, and the distinction is quite a cogent one. Calhoun set forth his analysis brilliantly. 
Few comparatively as they are, the agents and employees of the government constitute that portion of the community who are the exclusive recipients of the proceeds of the taxes. Whatever amount is taken from the community in the form of taxes, if not lost, goes to them in the shape of expenditures or disbursements. The two, disbursement and taxation, constitute the fiscal action of the government. They are correlatives. What the one takes from the community under the name of taxes is transferred to the portion of the community who are the recipients under that of disbursements. But, as the recipients constitute only a portion of the community, it follows, taking the two parts of the fiscal process together, that its action must be unequal between the payers of the taxes and the recipients of their proceeds. Nor can it be otherwise, unless what is collected from each individual in the shape of taxes shall be returned to him in that of disbursements, which would make the process nugatory and absurd. Such being the case, it must necessarily follow that some one portion of the community must pay in taxes more than it receives back in disbursements while another receives in disbursements more than it pays in taxes. It is then manifest, taking the whole process together, that taxes must be, in effect, bounties to that portion of the community which receives more in disbursements than it pays in taxes, while to the other, which pays in taxes more than it receives in disbursements, they are taxes in reality, burdens instead of bounties. This consequence is unavoidable. It results from the nature of the process, be the taxes ever so equally laid. The necessary result, then, of the unequal fiscal action of the government is to divide the community into two great classes, one consisting of those who, in reality, pay the taxes and, of course, bear exclusively the burden of supporting the government, and the other of those who are the recipients of their proceeds through disbursements, and who are, in fact, supported by the government, or, in fewer words, to divide it into taxpayers and tax consumers. But the effect of this is to place them in antagonistic relations in reference to the fiscal action of the government and the entire course of policy therewith connected. For the greater the taxes and disbursements, the greater the gain of the one and the loss of the other, and vice versa. Ruling and ruled apply also to the forms of government intervention, but Calhoun was quite right in focusing on taxes and fiscal policy as the keystone, for it is taxes that supply the resources and payment for the state in performing its myriad other acts of intervention. All state intervention rests on the binary intervention of taxes at its base, even if the state intervened nowhere else, its taxation would remain. 
Since the term social can be applied only to every single individual concerned, it is clear that while the free market maximizes social utility, no act of the state can ever increase social utility. Indeed, the picture of the free market is necessarily one of harmony and mutual benefit. The picture of state intervention is one of caste conflict, coercion, and exploitation. B. Democracy and the Voluntary It might be objected that all these forms of intervention are really not coercive, but voluntary, for in a democracy they are supported by the majority of the people. But this support is usually passive, resigned, and apathetic, rather than eager, whether the state is a democracy or not. As Professor Lindsay Rogers has trenchantly written on the subject of public opinion, before Great Britain adopted conscription in 1939, only 39% of the voters were for it. A week after the conscription bill became law, a poll showed that 58% approved. Many polls in the United States have shown a similar inflation of support for a policy as soon as it is translated to the statute books or into a presidential order. In a democracy, the non-voters can hardly be said to support the rulers, and neither can the voters for the losing side. But even those who voted for the winners may well have voted merely for the lesser of two evils. The interesting question is, why do they have to vote for any evil at all? Such terms are never used by people when they act freely for themselves or when they purchase goods on the free market. No one thinks of his new suit or refrigerator as an evil, lesser or greater. In such cases, people think of themselves as buying positive goods, not as resignedly supporting a lesser bad. The point is that the public never has the opportunity of voting on the state system itself. They are caught up in a system in which coercion over them is inevitable. This coercion would exist even in the most direct democracies. It is doubly compounded in representative republics, where the people never have a chance of voting on issues, but only on the men who rule them. They can only reject men, and this at very long intervals. And if the candidates have the same views on issues, the public cannot effect any sort of fundamental change. Be that as it may, as we have said... All states are supported by a majority, whether a voting democracy or not. Otherwise, they could not long continue to wield force against the determined resistance of the majority. However, the support may simply reflect apathy, perhaps from the resigned belief that the state is a permanent, if unwelcome, fixture of nature. Witness the motto, Nothing is as permanent as death and taxes. Setting all these matters aside, however, and even granting that a state might be enthusiastically supported by a majority, we still do not establish its voluntary nature. For the majority is not society, is not everyone. 
majority coercion over the minority is still coercion. Since states exist, and they are accepted for generations and centuries, we must conclude that a majority are at least passive supporters of all states, for no minority can for long rule an actively hostile majority. In a certain sense, therefore, all tyranny is majority tyranny, regardless of the formalities of the government structure. It is often stated that under modern conditions of destructive weapons, etc., a minority can tyrannize permanently over a majority. But this ignores the fact that these weapons can be held by the majority, or that agents of the minority can mutiny. The sheer absurdity, for example, of the current belief that a few million could really tyrannize over a few hundred million active resistance is not often realized. As David Hume profoundly stated, nothing appears more surprising than the easiness with which the many are governed by the few, and the implicit submission with which men resign their own sentiments and passions to those of their rulers. When we inquire by what means this wonder is effected, we shall find that because force is always on the side of the governed, the governors have nothing to support them but opinion. It is therefore on opinion that government is founded, and this maxim extends to the most despotic and most military governments. This analysis of majority support applies to any intervention of rather long standing, carried on frankly and openly, whether or not the groups are labeled states. But this does not change our analytic conclusion of conflict and coercion as a corollary of the state. The conflict and coercion exist, no matter how many people coerce how many others. C. Utility and Resistance to Invasion To our comparative welfare economic analysis of the free market and the state, it might be objected that when defense agencies restrain an invader from attacking someone's property, they are benefiting the property owner at the expense of a loss of utility by the would-be invader. Since defense agencies enforce rights on the free market, does not the free market also involve a gain by some at the expense of the utility of others, even if these others are invaders? In answer, we may state first that the free market is a society in which all exchange voluntarily. It may most easily be conceived as a situation in which no one aggresses against person or property. In that case, it is obvious that the utility of all is maximized on the free market. Defense agencies become necessary only as a defense against invasions of that market. It is the invader not the existence of the defense agency that inflicts losses on his fellow men. A defense agency existing without an invader would simply be a voluntarily established insurance against attack. 
The existence of a defense agency does not violate the principle of maximum utility, and it still reflects mutual benefit to all concerned. Conflict enters only with the invader. The invader, let us say, is in the process of committing an aggressive act against Smith, thereby injuring Smith for his gain. The defense agency, rushing to the aid of Smith, of course injures the invader's utility, but it does so only to counteract the injury to Smith. It does help to maximize the utility of the non-criminals. The principle of conflict and loss of utility was introduced not by the existence of the defense agency, but by the existence of the invader. It is still true, therefore, that utility is maximized for all on the free market, whereas to the extent that there is invasive interference in society, it is infected with conflict and exploitation of man by man. D. The Argument from Envy Another objection holds that the free market does not really increase the utility of all individuals, because some may be so smitten with envy at the success of others that they really lose in utility as a result. We cannot, however, deal with hypothetical utilities divorced from concrete action. We may, as praxeologists, deal only with utilities that we can deduce from the concrete behavior of human beings. A person's envy, unembodied in action, becomes pure moonshine from the praxeological point of view. All that we know is that he has participated in the free market and to that extent benefits by it. How he feels about the exchanges made by others cannot be demonstrated to us unless he commits an invasive act. Even if he publishes a pamphlet denouncing these exchanges, we have no ironclad proof that this is not a joke or a deliberate lie. E. Utility ex post we have thus seen that individuals maximize their utility ex-ante on the free market, and that the direct result of an invasion is that the invader's utility gains at the expense of a loss in utility by his victim. But what about utilities ex-post? People may expect to benefit when they make a decision, but do they actually benefit from its results? The remainder of this volume will largely consist of analysis of what we may call the indirect consequences of the market or of intervention, supplementing the above direct analysis. It will deal with chains of consequences that can be grasped only by study and are not immediately visible to the naked eye. Error can always occur in the path from ante to post, but the free market is so constructed that this error is reduced to a minimum. In the first place, there is a fast-working, easily understandable test that tells the entrepreneur, as well as the income receiver, whether he is succeeding or failing at the task of satisfying the desires of the consumer. 
For the entrepreneur, who carries the main burden of adjustment to uncertain consumer desires, the test is swift and sure. Profits or losses? Large profits are a signal that he has been on the right track. Losses that he has been on a wrong one. Profits and losses thus spur rapid adjustments to consumer demands. At the same time, they perform the function of getting money out of the hands of the bad entrepreneurs and into the hands of the good ones. The fact that good entrepreneurs prosper and add to their capital, and poor ones are driven out, ensures an ever smoother market adjustment to changes in conditions. Similarly, to a lesser extent, land and labor factors move in accordance with the desire of their owners for higher incomes, and more value-productive factors are rewarded accordingly. Consumers also take entrepreneurial risks on the market. Many critics of the market, while willing to concede the expertise of the capitalist entrepreneurs, bewail the prevailing ignorance of consumers, which prevents them from gaining the utility ex post that they expected to have ex ante. Typically, Wesley C. Mitchell entitled one of his famous essays, The Backward Art of Spending Money. Professor Ludwig von Mises has keenly pointed out the paradoxical position of so many progressives who insist that consumers are too ignorant or incompetent to buy products intelligently, while at the same time touting the virtues of democracy, where the same people vote for politicians whom they do not know, and for policies that they hardly understand. In fact, the truth is precisely the reverse of the popular ideology. Consumers are not omniscient, but they do have direct tests by which to acquire their knowledge. They buy a certain brand of breakfast food and they don't like it, so they don't buy it again. They buy a certain type of automobile and they do like its performance, so they buy another one. In both cases, they tell their friends of this newly won knowledge. Other consumers patronize consumers' research organizations, which can warn or advise them in advance. But in all cases, the consumers have the direct test of results to guide them, and the firm that satisfies the consumers expands and prospers, while the firm that fails to satisfy them goes out of business. On the other hand, voting for politicians and public policies is a completely different matter. Here, there are no direct tests of success or failure whatever. Neither profits and losses, nor enjoyable or unsatisfying consumption. In order to grasp consequences, especially the indirect consequences of governmental decisions, it is necessary to comprehend a complex chain of praxeological reasoning, such as will be developed in this volume. Very few voters have the ability or the interest to follow such reasoning, particularly, as Schumpeter points out, in political situations. For in political situations, the minute influence that any one person has on the results, as well as the seeming remoteness of the actions, induces people to lose interest in political problems or argumentation. 
Lacking the direct test of success or failure, the voter tends to turn not to those politicians whose measures have the best chance of success, but to those with the ability to sell their propaganda. Without grasping logical chains of deduction, the average voter will never be able to discover the error that the ruler makes. Thus, suppose that the government inflates the money supply, thereby causing an inevitable rise in prices. The government can blame the price rise on wicked speculators or alien black marketeers, and unless the public knows economics, it will not be able to see the fallacies in the ruler's arguments. It is ironic that those writers who complain of the wiles and lures of advertising do not direct their criticism at the advertising of political campaigns, where their charges would be relevant. As Schumpeter states, the picture of the prettiest girl that ever lived will in the long run prove powerless to maintain the sales of a bad cigarette. There is no equally effective safeguard in the case of political decisions. Even if that is possible, however, judgment is, as a rule, not so easy to arrive at as it is in the case of the cigarette, because effects are less easy to interpret. It might be objected that while the average voter may not be competent to decide on policies that require for his decision chains of praxeological reasoning, he is competent to pick the experts, the politicians and bureaucrats who will decide on the issues, just as the individual may select his own private expert advisor in any one of numerous fields. But the point is precisely that in government, the individual does not have the direct personal test of success or failure for his hired expert that he does on the market. On the market, individuals tend to patronize those experts whose advice proves most successful. Good doctors or lawyers reap rewards on the free market, while the poor ones fail. The privately hired expert tends to flourish in proportion to his demonstrated ability. In government, on the other hand, there is no concrete test of the expert's success. In the absence of such a test, there is no way by which the voter can gauge the true expertise of the man he must vote for. This difficulty is aggravated in modern-style elections, where the candidates agree on all the fundamental issues. For issues, after all, are susceptible to reasoning. The voter can, if he so wishes and he has the ability, learn about and decide on the issues. But what can any voter, even the most intelligent, know about the true expertise or competence of individual candidates, especially when elections are shorn of virtually all important issues? The voter can then fall back only on the purely external packaged personalities or images of the candidates. The result is that voting purely on candidates makes the result even less rational than mass voting on the issues themselves. Furthermore, the government itself contains inherent mechanisms that lead to poor choices of experts and officials. 
For one thing, the politician and the government expert receive their revenues not from service voluntarily purchased on the market, but from a compulsory levy on the populace. These officials, therefore, wholly lack the pecuniary incentive to care about serving the public properly and competently. And what is more, the vital criterion of fitness is very different in the government and on the market. In the market, the fittest are those most able to serve the consumers. In government, the fittest are those most adept at wielding coercion and or those most adroit at making demagogic appeals to the voting public. Another critical divergence between market action and democratic voting is this. The voter has, for example, only a one-fifty-millionth power to choose among his would-be rulers, who in turn will make vital decisions affecting him, unchecked and unhampered, until the next election. In the market, on the other hand, the individual has the absolute sovereign power to make the decisions concerning his person and property, not merely a distant one-fifty-millionth power. On the market, the individual is continually demonstrating his choice of buying or not buying, selling or not selling, in the course of making absolute decisions regarding his property. The voter, by voting for some particular candidate, is demonstrating only a relative preference over one or two other potential rulers. He must do this within the framework of the coercive rule that, whether or not he votes at all, one of these men will rule over him for the next several years. Thus we see that the free market contains a smooth, efficient mechanism for bringing anticipated ex-ante utility into the realization of ex-post. The free market always maximizes ex-ante social utility as well. In political action, on the contrary, there is no such mechanism. Indeed, the political process inherently tends to delay and thwart the realization of any expected gains. Furthermore, the divergence between ex-post gains through government and through the market is even greater than this, for we shall find that in every instance of government intervention, the indirect consequences will be such as to make the intervention appear worse in the eyes of many of its original supporters. In sum, the free market always benefits every participant, and it maximizes social utility ex ante. It also tends to do so ex post, since it works for the rapid conversion of anticipations into realizations. With intervention, one group gains directly at the expense of another, and therefore social utility cannot be increased. The attainment of goals is blocked, rather than facilitated, and, as we shall see, the indirect consequences are such that many interveners themselves will lose utility ex post. The remainder of this work is largely devoted to tracing the indirect consequences of various forms of governmental intervention. Chapter 3 
triangular intervention. A triangular intervention, as we have stated, occurs when the invader compels a pair of people to make an exchange or prohibits them from doing so. Thus, the intervener can prohibit the sale of a certain product or can prohibit a sale above or below a certain price. We can therefore divide triangular intervention into two types, price control, which deals with the terms of an exchange, and product control, which deals with the nature of the product or of the producer. Price control will have repercussions on production and product control on prices, but the two types of control have different effects and can be conveniently separated. 1. Price Control The intervener may set either a minimum price below which a product cannot be sold or a maximum price above which it cannot be sold. He can also compel a sale at a certain fixed price. In any event, the price control will either be ineffective or effective. It will be ineffective if the regulation has no current influence on the market price. Thus, suppose that automobiles are all selling at about 100 gold ounces on the market. The government issues a decree prohibiting all sales of autos below 20 gold ounces on pain of violence inflicted on all violators. This decree is, in the present state of the market, completely ineffective and academic, since no cars would have sold below 20 ounces. The price control yields only irrelevant jobs for government bureaucrats. On the other hand, the price control may be effective. That is, it may change the price from what it would have been on the free market. Let us assume that the intervener imposes a maximum control price above which any sale becomes illegal. At the control price, the market is no longer cleared, and the quantity demanded exceeds the quantity supplied. In the ensuing shortage, consumers rush to buy goods that are not available at the price. Some must do without. Others must patronize the market, revived as black or illegal, while paying a premium for the risk of punishment that sellers now undergo. The chief characteristic of a price maximum is the queue, the endless lining up for goods that are not sufficient to supply the people at the rear of the line. All sorts of subterfuges are invented by people desperately seeking to arrive at the clearance provided by the market. Under-the-table deals, bribes, favoritism for older customers, etc., are inevitable features of a market shackled by the price maximum. Bribing is made necessary by government outlawing of the exchange. A bribe is the sale, by the government official, of permission for the exchanges to proceed. It must be noted that even if the stock of a good is frozen for the foreseeable future, this artificial shortage will still develop, and all these consequences ensue.
The more elastic the supply, that is, the more resources will shift out of production, the more aggravated, ceteris paribus, the shortage will be. If the price control is selective, that is, is imposed on one or a few products, the economy will not be as universally dislocated as under general maxima, but the artificial shortage created in the particular line will be even more pronounced, since entrepreneurs and factors can shift to the production and sale of other products, preferably substitutes. The prices of the substitutes will go up as the excess demand is channeled off in their direction. In the light of this fact, the typical government reason for selective price control, we must impose controls on this product as long as it is in short supply, is revealed to be an almost ludicrous error. For the truth is precisely the reverse— Price control creates an artificial shortage of the product, which continues as long as the control is in existence. In fact, becomes ever worse as resources continue to shift to other products. Before investigating further the effects of general price maxima, let us analyze the consequences of a minimum price control, that is, the imposition of a price above the free market price. Under such circumstances, the quantity demanded is less than the quantity supplied. Thus, while the effect of a maximum price is to create an artificial shortage, a minimum price creates an artificial unsold surplus. A more elastic supply will, ceteris paribus, aggravate the surplus. Once again, the market is not cleared. The artificially high price attracts resources into the field, while at the same time it discourages buyer demand. Under selective price control, resources will leave other fields where they serve their owners and the consumers better and transfer to this field, where they overproduce and suffer losses as a result. This illustrates how intervention, by tampering with the market, causes entrepreneurial losses. Entrepreneurs operate on the basis of certain criteria. Prices interest rates, etc., established by the free market. Interventionary tampering with these criteria destroys the adjustment and brings about losses, as well as misallocation of resources in satisfying consumer wants. General overall price maxima dislocate the entire economy and deny the consumers the enjoyment of substitutes. General price maxima are usually imposed for the announced purpose of preventing inflation, invariably while the government is inflating the money supply by a large amount. Overall price maxima are equivalent to imposing a minimum on the purchasing power of the money unit, the PPM. An imposed minimum PPM above the market impairs the clearing mechanism of the market. The money stock exceeds the money demanded. As a result, the people possess a quantity of money in unsold surplus. 
They try to sell their money by buying goods, but they cannot. Their money is anesthetized. To the extent that a government's overall price maximum is upheld, a part of the people's money becomes useless, for it cannot be exchanged. But a mad scramble inevitably takes place, with each one hoping that his money can be used. Ironically, the government's destruction of part of the people's money almost always takes place after the government has pumped in new money and used it for its own purposes. The injury that the government imposes on the public is thus twofold. One, it takes resources away from the public by inflating the currency, and two, after the money has percolated down to the public, it destroys part of the money's usefulness. Favoritism, lining up, bribes, etc., inevitably abound, as well as great pressure for the black market, that is, the market, to provide a channel for the surplus money. A general price minimum is equivalent to a maximum control on the PPM. This sets up an unsatisfied excess demand for money over the stock of money available, specifically in the form of unsold stocks of goods in every field. The principles of maximum and minimum price control apply to all prices, whatever they may be. Consumer goods, capital goods, land or labor services, or the price of money in terms of other goods. They apply, for example, to minimum wage laws. When a minimum wage law is effective, that is, where it imposes a wage above the market value of a type of labor, above the laborer's discounted marginal value product, the supply of labor services exceeds the demand, and this unsold surplus of labor services means involuntary mass unemployment. Selective, as opposed to general, minimum wage rates create unemployment in particular industries and tend to perpetuate these pockets by attracting labor to the higher rates. Labor is eventually forced to enter less remunerative, less value-productive lines. The result is the same whether the effective minimum wage is imposed by the state or by a labor union. Our analysis of the effects of price control applies also, as Mises has brilliantly shown, to control over the price, exchange rate, of one money in terms of another. This was partially seen in Gresham's Law, but few have realized that this law is merely a specific case of the general law of the effect of price controls. Perhaps this failure is due to the misleading formulation of Gresham's Law, which is usually phrased, bad money drives good money out of circulation. Taken at its face value, this is a paradox that violates the general rule of the market that the best methods of satisfying consumers tend to win out over the poorer. Even those who generally favor the free market have used this phrasing to justify a state monopoly over the coinage of gold and silver. 
Actually, Gresham's law should read, money overvalued by the state will drive money undervalued by the state out of circulation. Whenever the state sets an arbitrary value or price on one money in terms of another, it thereby establishes an effective minimum price control on one money and a maximum price control on the other, the prices being in terms of each other. This, for example, was the essence of bimetallism. Under bimetallism, a nation recognized gold and silver as monies, but set an arbitrary price or exchange ratio between them. When this arbitrary price differed, as it was bound to do from the free market price, and such a discrepancy became ever more likely as time passed and the free market price changed, while the government's arbitrary price remained the same, one money became overvalued and the other undervalued by the government. Thus, suppose that a country used gold and silver as money, and the government set the ratio between them at 16 ounces of silver to 1 ounce of gold. The market price, perhaps 16 to 1 at the time of the price control, then changes to 15 to 1. What is the result? Silver is now being arbitrarily undervalued by the government, and gold arbitrarily overvalued. In other words, silver is forced to be cheaper than it really is in terms of gold on the market, and gold is forced to be more expensive than it really is in terms of silver. The government has imposed a maximum price on silver and a minimum price on gold in terms of each other. The same consequences now follow as from any effective price control. With a maximum price on silver and a minimum price on gold, the gold demand for silver in exchange exceeds the silver demand for gold. Gold goes begging for silver in unsold surplus, while silver becomes scarce and disappears from circulation. Silver disappears to another country or area where it can be exchanged at the free market price, and gold, in turn, flows into the country. If the bimetallism is worldwide, then silver disappears into the black market, and official or open exchanges are made only with gold. No country, therefore, can maintain a bimetallic system in practice, because one money will always be under or overvalued in terms of the other. The overvalued will always displace the undervalued from circulation. It is possible to move by government decree from a specie money to a fiat paper currency. In effect, almost every government of the world has done so. As a result, each country has been saddled with its own money. In a free market, each fiat money will tend to exchange for another according to the fluctuations in their respective purchasing power parities. Suppose, however, that currency X has an arbitrary valuation placed by its government on its exchange rate with currency Y. 
Thus, suppose five units of X exchange for one unit of Y on the free market. Now suppose that country X artificially overvalues its currency and sets a fixed exchange rate of three X's to one Y. What is the result? A minimum price has been set on X's in terms of Y and a maximum price on Y's in terms of X. Consequently, everyone scrambles to exchange X's for Y's at this cheap price for Y and thus profit on the market. There is an excess demand for Y in terms of X and a surplus of X in relation to Y. Here is the explanation of that supposedly mysterious dollar shortage that plagued Europe after World War II. The European governments all overvalued their national currencies in terms of American dollars. As a consequence of the price control, dollars became short in terms of European currency, and the latter became a glut looking for dollars without finding them. Another example of money ratio price control is seen in the ancient problem of new versus worn coins. There grew up the custom of stamping coins with some name, designating their weight in specie in terms of some unit of weight. Eventually, to simplify matters, governments began to decree worn coins to be equal in value to newly minted coins of the same denomination. Perhaps one of the reasons was that state mint monopolies, instead of serving customers with desired coins, arbitrarily designated a few denominations that they would mint and circulate. A coin of slightly lighter weight was then treated as an intruder. Thus, suppose that a 20-ounce silver coin was declared equal in value to a worn-out coin now weighing 18 ounces. What ensued was the inevitable effect of price control. The government had arbitrarily undervalued new coins and overvalued old ones, New coins were far too cheap, and old ones too expensive. As a result, the new coins promptly disappeared from circulation, to flow abroad or to remain under cover at home, and the old worn coins flooded in. This proved discouraging for the state mints, which could not keep coins in circulation, no matter how many they minted. A modern example of the impossibility of keeping undervalued coins in circulation is the disappearance of silver dollars, half dollars, and other coins that circulated in the United States during the 1960s. The striking effects of Gresham's law are partly due to a type of intervention adopted by almost every government, legal tender laws. At any time in society, there is a mass of unpaid debt contracts outstanding, representing credit transactions begun in the past and scheduled to be completed in the future. It is the responsibility of judicial agencies to enforce these contracts. Through laxity, the practice developed of stipulating in the contract that payment will be made in 
money without specifying which money. Governments then passed legal tender laws, arbitrarily designating what is meant by money, even when the creditors and debtors themselves would be willing to settle on something else. When the state decrees as money something other than what the parties to a transaction have in mind, an intervention has taken place, and the effects of Gresham's law will begin to appear. Specifically, assume the existence of the bimetallic system mentioned earlier. When contracts were originally made, gold was worth 16 ounces of silver. Now it is worth only 15. Yet the legal tender laws specify money as being an equivalent of 16 to 1. As a result of these laws, everyone pays all his debts in the overvalued gold. Legal tender laws reinforce the consequences of exchange rate control, and the debtors have gained a privilege at the expense of their creditors. Usury laws are another form of price control tinkering with the market. These laws place legal maxima on interest rates, outlawing any lending transactions at a higher rate. The amount and proportion of saving and the market rate of interest are basically determined by the time preference rates of individuals. An effective usury law acts like other maxima to induce a shortage of the service. For time preferences, and therefore the natural interest rate, remain the same. The fact that this interest rate is now illegal means that the marginal savers, those whose time preferences were highest, now stop saving, and the quantity of saving and investing in the economy declines. This results in lower productivity and lower standards of living in the future. Some people stop saving. Others even dissave and consume their capital. The extent to which this happens depends on how effective the usury laws are, that is, how far they hamper and distort voluntary market relations. Usury laws are designed, at least ostensibly, to help the borrower, particularly the most risky borrower, who is forced to pay high interest rates to compensate for the added risk. Yet it is precisely these borrowers who are most hurt by usury laws. If the legal maximum is not too low, there will not be a serious decline in aggregate savings. But the maximum is below the market rate for the most risky borrowers, where the entrepreneurial component of interest is highest, and hence they are deprived of all credit facilities. When interest is voluntary, the lender will be able to charge very high interest rates for his loans, and thus anyone will be able to borrow if he pays the price. Where interest is controlled, many would-be borrowers are deprived of credit altogether. In recent years, the myth has developed that usury laws in the Middle Ages were justifiable because they dealt with the consumer who had to borrow rather than with productive business. 
On the contrary, it is precisely the risky consumer borrower who most needs the loan, who is most injured by the usury laws because he is the one deprived of credit. Usury laws not only diminish savings available for lending and investment, but create an artificial shortage of credit, a perpetual condition where there is an excessive demand for credit at the legal rate. Instead of going to those most able and efficient, the credit will therefore have to be rationed by the lenders in some artificial and uneconomic way. Although there have rarely been minimum interest rates imposed by government, their effect is similar to that of maximum rate control. For whenever time preferences and the natural interest rate fall, this condition is reflected in increased savings and investment. But when the government imposes a legal minimum, the interest rate cannot fall, and the people will not be able to carry through their increased investment, which would bid up factor prices. Minimum interest rates, therefore, also stunt economic development and impede a rise in living standards. Marginal borrowers would likewise be forced out of the market and deprived of credit. To the extent that the market illegally reasserts itself, the interest rate on the loan will be higher to compensate for the extra risk of arrest under usury laws. To sum up our analysis of the effects of price control, directly the utility of at least one set of exchangers will be impaired by the control. Further analysis reveals that the hidden, but just as certain, effects are to injure a substantial number of people who had thought they would gain in utility from the imposed controls. The announced aim of a maximum price control is to benefit the consumer by ensuring his supply at a lower price. Yet the objective result is to prevent many consumers from acquiring the good at all. The announced aim of a minimum price control is to ensure higher prices for the sellers. Yet the effect will be to prevent many sellers from selling any of their surplus. Furthermore, price controls distort production and the allocation of resources and factors in the economy. Thereby injuring again the bulk of consumers, and we must not overlook the army of bureaucrats who must be financed by the binary intervention of taxation, and who must administer and enforce the myriad of regulations. This army, in itself, withdraws a mass of workers from productive labor and saddles them onto the backs of the remaining producers, thereby benefiting the bureaucrats but injuring the rest of the people. This, of course, is the consequence of establishing an army of bureaucrats for any interventionary purpose, whatever. Two, product control, prohibition. Another form of triangular intervention is interference with the nature of production directly, rather than with the terms of exchange. This occurs when the government prohibits any production or sale of a certain product. 
The consequence is injury to all parties concerned, to the consumers who lose utility because they cannot purchase the product and satisfy their most urgent wants, and to the producers who are prevented from earning a higher remuneration in this field and must therefore be content with lower earnings elsewhere. This loss is borne not so much by entrepreneurs who earn from ephemeral adjustments or by capitalists who tend to earn a uniform interest rate throughout the economy as by laborers and landowners who must accept permanently lower income. The only ones who benefit from the regulation, then, are the government bureaucrats themselves, partly from the tax-created jobs that the regulation creates, and perhaps also from the satisfaction gained from repressing others and wielding coercive power over them. Whereas with price control, one could at least make out a prima facie case that one set of exchangers, producers or consumers, is being benefited, no such case can be made out for prohibition, where both parties to the exchange, producers and consumers, invariably lose. In many instances of product prohibition, of course, inevitable pressure develops for the re-establishment of the market illegally, that is, as a black market. As in the case of price control, a black market creates difficulties because of its illegality. The supply of the product will be scarcer, and the price of the product will be higher to compensate the producers for the risk of violating the law. And the more strict the prohibition and penalties, the scarcer the product and the higher the price will be. Furthermore, the illegality hinders the process of distributing to the consumers information, for example, by way of advertising, about the existence of the market. As a result, the organization of the market will be far less efficient, the service to the consumer will decline in quality, and prices again will be higher than under a legal market. The premium on secrecy in the black market also militates against large-scale business, which is likely to be more visible and therefore more vulnerable to law enforcement. The advantages of efficient large-scale organization are thus lost, injuring the consumer and raising prices because of the diminished supply. It is interesting to note that the bulk of organized crime occurs not as invasions of persons and property in natural law, the mala per se, but as attempts to circumvent government prohibitions in order to satisfy the desires of consumers and producers alike more efficiently, the mala prohibita. Entrepreneurs of the latter kind constitute the generally despised black marketeers and racketeers. Paradoxically, the prohibition may serve as a form of grant of monopolistic privilege to the black marketeers, since they are likely to be very different entrepreneurs from those who would succeed in a legal market. For in the black market, rewards accrue to skill in bypassing the law or in bribing government officials. There are various types of prohibition, 
There is absolute prohibition where the product is completely outlawed. There are also forms of partial prohibition. An example is rationing, where consumption beyond a certain amount is prohibited by the state. The clear effect of rationing is to injure consumers and lower the standard of living of everyone. Since rationing places legal maxima on specific items of consumption, it also distorts the pattern of consumers' spending. The unrationed or less stringently rationed goods are bought more heavily, whereas consumers would have preferred to buy more of the rationed goods. Thus, consumer spending is coercively shifted from the more to the less heavily rationed commodities. Moreover, the ration tickets introduce a new type of quasi-money. The functions of money on the market are crippled and atrophied, and confusion reigns. The main function of money is to be bought by producers and spent by consumers. But under rationing, consumers are estopped from using their money to the full, and blocked from using their dollars to direct and allocate factors of production. They must also use arbitrarily designated and distributed ration tickets, an inefficient kind of double money. The pattern of consumer spending is particularly distorted, and since ration tickets are usually not transferable, people who do not want brand X are not permitted to exchange these coupons for goods not wanted by others. Priorities and allocations by the government are another type of prohibition, as well as another jumbling of the price system. Efficient buyers are prevented from obtaining goods, while inefficient ones find that they can acquire a plethora. Efficient firms are no longer allowed to bid away factors or resources from inefficient firms. The efficient firms are, in effect, crippled, and the inefficient ones subsidized. Government priorities again basically introduce another form of double money. Maximum hour laws enforce compulsory idleness and prohibit work. They are a direct attack on production, injuring the worker who wants to work, reducing his earnings, and lowering the living standards of the entire society. Conservation laws, which also prevent production and cause lower living standards, will be discussed more fully later. In fact, the monopoly grants of privilege discussed in the next section are also prohibitions, since they grant the privilege of production to some by prohibiting production to others. Three, product control, grant of monopolistic privilege. Instead of making the product prohibition absolute, the government may prohibit production and sale except by a certain firm or firms. These firms are then specially privileged by the government to engage in a line of production, and therefore this type of prohibition is a grant of special privilege. If the grant is to one person or firm, it is a monopoly grant. If to several persons or firms, it is a quasi-monopoly or oligopoly grant. 
both types of grant may be called monopolistic. It is obvious that the grant benefits the monopolist or quasi-monopolist because his competitors are barred by violence from entering the field. It is also evident that the would-be competitors are injured and are forced to accept lower remuneration in less efficient and value-productive fields. The consumers are likewise injured, for they are prevented from purchasing their products from competitors whom they would freely prefer, and this injury takes place apart from any effect of the grant on prices. Although a monopolistic grant may openly and directly confer a privilege and exclude rivals, in the present day it is far more likely to be hidden or indirect cloaked as a type of penalty on competitors and represented as favorable to the general welfare. The effects of monopolistic grants are the same, however, whether they are direct or indirect. The theory of monopoly price is illusory when applied to the free market, but it applies fully to the case of monopoly and quasi-monopoly grants, for here we have an identifiable distinction, not the spurious distinction between competitive and monopoly or monopolistic price, but one between the free market price and the monopoly price. For the free market price is conceptually identifiable and definable, whereas the competitive price is not. The monopolist, as a receiver of a monopoly privilege, will be able to achieve a monopoly price for the product if his demand is inelastic or sufficiently less elastic above the free market price. On the free market, every demand presented to a firm is elastic above the free market price, Otherwise, the firm would have an incentive to raise its price and increase its revenue. But the grant of monopoly privilege renders the consumer demand less elastic, for the consumer is deprived of substitute products from other would-be competitors. Where the demand presented to the firm remains highly elastic, the monopolist will not reap a monopoly gain from his grant. Consumers and competitors will still be injured because of the prevention of their trade, but the monopolist will not gain because his price and income will be no higher than before. On the other hand, if his demand is now inelastic, then he institutes a monopoly price so as to maximize his revenue. His production has to be restricted in order to command the higher price. The restriction of production and the higher price for the product both injure the consumers. In contrast to conditions on the free market, we may no longer say that a restriction of production, such as in a voluntary cartel, benefits the consumers by arriving at the most value-productive point. On the contrary, the consumers are injured because their free choice would have resulted in the free market price. Because of coercive force applied by the state, they may not purchase goods freely from all those willing to sell.
In other words, any approach toward the free market equilibrium price and output point for any product benefits the consumers and thereby benefits the producers as well. Any movement away from the free market price and output injures the consumers. The monopoly price resulting from a grant of monopoly privilege leads away from the free market price. It lowers output and raises prices beyond what would be established if consumers and producers could trade freely. We cannot here use the argument that the restriction of output is voluntary because the consumers make their own demand inelastic. For the consumers are fully responsible for their demand only on the free market, and only this demand can be treated as an expression of their voluntary choice. Once the government steps in to prohibit trade and grant privileges, there is no longer wholly voluntary action. Consumers are forced, willy-nilly, to deal with the monopolist for a certain range of purchases. All the effects that the monopoly price theorists have mistakenly attributed to voluntary cartels do apply to governmental monopoly grants. Production is restricted and factors misallocated. It is true that the non-specific factors are again released for production elsewhere, but now we can say that this production will satisfy the consumers less than under free market conditions. Furthermore, the factors will earn less in the other occupations. There can never be lasting monopoly profits, since profits are ephemeral, and all eventually reduce to a uniform interest return. In the long run, monopoly returns are imputed to some factor. What is the factor that is being monopolized in this case? It is obvious that this factor is the right to enter the industry. In the free market, this right is unlimited to all. Here, however, the government has granted special privileges of entry and sale, and it is these special privileges or rights that are responsible for the extra monopoly gain from the monopoly price. The monopolist earns a monopoly gain, therefore, not for owning any productive factor, but from a special privilege granted by the government. And this gain does not disappear in the long run, as do profits. It is permanent, so long as the privilege remains, and consumer valuations continue as they are. Of course, the monopoly gain will tend to be capitalized into the asset value of the firm, so that subsequent owners who invest in the firm after the privilege is granted and the capitalization takes place will be earning only the generally uniform interest return on their investment. This whole discussion applies to the quasi-monopolist as well as to the monopolist, the quasi-monopolist has some competitors, but their number is restricted by the government privilege. Each quasi-monopolist will now have a different demand for his product on the market, and will be affected differently by the privilege. 
Those quasi-monopolists for whom demand becomes inelastic will reap a monopoly gain. Those for whom demand remains highly elastic will reap no gain from the privilege. Ceteris paribus, of course, a monopolist is more likely to achieve a monopoly gain than a quasi-monopolist. But whether each achieves a gain, and how much, depends purely on the data of each particular case. We must note again what we have said before, that even where no monopolist or quasi-monopolist can achieve a monopoly price, the consumers are still injured, because they are barred from buying from the most efficient and value-productive producers. Production is thereby restricted, and the decrease in output, particularly of the most efficiently produced output, raises the price to consumers. If the monopolist or quasi-monopolist also achieves a monopoly price, the injury to consumers and the misallocation of production will be redoubled. Since outright grants of monopoly or quasi-monopoly would usually be considered baldly injurious to the public, governments have discovered a variety of methods of granting such privileges indirectly, as well as a variety of arguments to justify these measures. But they all have the effects common to monopoly or quasi-monopoly grants and monopoly prices when these are obtained. The important types of monopolistic grants, monopoly and quasi-monopoly, are as follows. 1. Governmentally enforced cartels, which every firm in an industry is compelled to join. 2. Virtual cartels imposed by the government, such as the production quotas enforced by American agricultural policy. 3. Licenses, which require meeting government rules before a man or a firm is permitted to enter a certain line of production, and which also require the payment of a fee a payment that serves as a penalty tax on smaller firms with less capital, which are thereby debarred from competing with larger firms. 4. Quality standards, which prohibit competition by what the government, not the consumers, defines as lower-quality products. 5 tariffs, and other measures that levy a penalty tax on competitors outside a given geographical region. 6. Immigration restrictions, which prohibit the competition of laborers as well as entrepreneurs who would otherwise move from another geographical region of the world market. 7. Child labor laws, which prohibit the labor competition of workers below a certain age. 8. Minimum wage laws, which, by causing the unemployment of the least value-productive workers, remove their competition from the labor markets. 9. Maximum hour laws, which force partial unemployment on those workers who are willing to work longer hours. 10. 
compulsory unionism, such as the Wagner-Taft-Hartley Act imposes, causing unemployment among the workers with the least seniority or the least political influence in their union. 11. Conscription, which forces many young men out of the labor force. 12. Any sort of governmental penalty on any form of industrial or market organization, such as antitrust laws, special chain store taxes, corporate income taxes, laws closing businesses at specific hours, or outlawing pushcart peddlers or door-to-door salesmen. 13. Conservation laws, which restrict production by force. 14. Patents, where independent later discoverers of a process are debarred from entering a field of production. Subsidies, of course, penalize competitors not receiving the subsidy and thus have a decided monopolistic impact, but they are best discussed as part of the budgetary binary intervention of government. A. Compulsory Cartels Compulsory cartels are a forcing of all producers in an industry into one organization or virtual organization. Instead of being directly barred from an industry, firms are forced to obey governmentally imposed quotas of maximum output. Such cartels invariably go hand-in-hand with a governmentally imposed program of minimum price control. When the government comes to realize that minimum price control by itself will lead to unsold surpluses and distress in the industry, it imposes quota restrictions on the output of producers. Not only does this action injure consumers by restricting production and lowering output, the output must also be produced by certain state-designated producers. Regardless of how the quotas are arrived at, they are arbitrary, and as time passes, they more and more distort the production structure that attempts to adjust to consumer demands. Efficient newcomers are prevented from serving consumers, and inefficient firms are preserved because they are exempted by their old quotas from the necessity of meeting superior competition. Compulsory cartels furnish a haven in which the inefficient firms prosper at the expense of the efficient firms and of the consumers. B. Licenses Little attention has been paid to licenses, yet they constitute one of the most important and steadily growing monopolistic impositions in the current American economy. Licenses deliberately restrict the supply of labor and of firms in the licensed occupations. Various rules and requirements are imposed for work in the occupation or for entry into a certain line of business. Those who cannot qualify under the rules are prevented from entry. Further, those who cannot meet the price of the license are barred from entry. Heavy license fees place great obstacles in the way of competitors with little initial capital. 
Some licenses, such as those required in the liquor and taxicab businesses in some states, impose an absolute limit on the number of firms in the business. These licenses are negotiable, so that any new firm must buy from an older firm that wants to go out of business. Rigidity, inefficiency, and lack of adaptability to changing consumer desires are all evident in this arrangement. The market in license rights also demonstrates the burden that licenses place upon new entrants. Professor Fritz Machlup points out that the governmental administration of licensing is almost invariably in the hands of members of the trade and he cogently likens the arrangements to the self-governing guilds of the Middle Ages. Certificates of convenience and necessity are required of firms in industries such as railroads, airlines, etc., regulated by governmental commissions. These act as licenses, but are generally far more difficult to obtain. This system excludes would-be entrants from a field, granting a monopolistic privilege to the firms remaining. Furthermore, it subjects them to the detailed orders of the Commission. Since these orders countermand those of the free market, they invariably result in imposed inefficiency and injury to the consumers. A glaring example of a commission's role in banning efficient competitors from an industry is the Civil Aeronautics Board decision to close up Transamerican Airlines, despite a perfect safety record. Transamerican had pioneered in rate reductions for airline service. Licenses to workers, as distinct from businesses, differ from most other monopolistic grants, which may confer a monopoly price. For the former license, always confers a restrictionist price. Unions gain restrictionist wage rates by restricting the labor supply in an occupation. Here, once again, the same conditions prevail. Other factors are forcibly excluded, and since the monopolist does not own these excluded factors, he is not losing any revenue. Since a license always restricts entry into a field, it thereby always lowers supply and raises prices, or wage rates. The reason that a monopolistic grant to a business does not always raise prices is that businesses can always expand or contract their production at will. Licensing of grocers does not necessarily reduce total supply because it does not preclude the indefinite enlargement of the licensed grocery firms, which can take up the slack created by the exclusion of would-be competitors. But aside from hours worked, restriction of entry into a labor market must always reduce the total supply of that labor. Hence, licenses or other monopolistic grants to businesses may or may not confer a monopoly price, depending on the elasticity of the demand, whereas licenses to laborers always confer a higher restrictionist price on the licensees. C. Standards of Quality and Safety 
One of the favorite arguments for licensing laws and other types of quality standards is that governments must protect consumers by ensuring that workers and businesses sell goods and services of the highest quality. The answer, of course, is that quality is a highly elastic and relative term and is decided by the consumers in their free actions in the marketplace. The consumers decide according to their own tastes and interests, and particularly according to the price they wish to pay for the service. It may very well be, for example, that a certain number of years' attendance at a certain type of school turns out the best quality of doctors, although it is difficult to see why the government must guard the public from unlicensed cold cream demonstrators or from plumbers without a college degree or with less than ten years' experience. But by prohibiting the practice of medicine by people who do not meet these requirements, the government is injuring consumers who would buy the services of the outlawed competitors, is protecting qualified but less value-productive doctors from outside competition, and also grants restrictionist prices to the remaining doctors. It is hardly remarkable that we hear continual complaints about a shortage of doctors and teachers, but rarely hear complaints of shortages in unlicensed occupations. Consumers are prevented from choosing lower-quality treatment of minor ills in exchange for a lower price, and are also prevented from patronizing doctors who have a different theory of medicine from that sanctioned by the state-approved medical schools. How much these requirements are designed to protect the health of the public and how much to restrict competition may be gauged from the fact that giving medical advice free without a license is rarely a legal offense. Only the sale of medical advice requires a license. Since someone may be injured as much, if not more, by free medical advice than by purchased advice, the major purpose of the regulation is clearly to restrict competition rather than to safeguard the public. Other quality standards in production have an even more injurious effect. They impose governmental definitions of products and require businesses to hew to the specifications laid down by these definitions. Thus, the government defines bread as being of a certain composition. This is supposed to be a safeguard against adulteration, but in fact it prohibits improvement. If the government defines a product in a certain way, it prohibits change. A change, to be accepted by consumers, has to be an improvement, either absolutely or in the form of a lower price. Yet it may take a long time, if not forever, to persuade the government bureaucracy to change the requirements. In the meantime, competition is injured and technological improvements are blocked. 
quality standards by shifting decisions about quality from the consumers to arbitrary government boards impose rigidities and monopolization on the economic system. In the free economy, there would be ample means to obtain redress for direct injuries or fraudulent adulteration. No system of government standards or army of administrative inspectors is necessary. If a man is sold adulterated food, then clearly the seller has committed fraud, violating his contract to sell the food. Thus, if A sells B breakfast food and it turns out to be straw, A has committed an illegal act of fraud by telling B he is selling him food while actually selling straw. This is punishable in the courts under libertarian law, that is, the legal code of the free society that would prohibit all invasions of persons and property. The loss of the product and the price, plus suitable damages paid to the victim, not to the state, would be included in the punishment of fraud. No administrator is needed to prevent non-fraudulent sales. If a man simply sells what he calls bread, it must meet the common definition of bread held by consumers, and not some arbitrary specification. However, if he specifies the composition on the loaf, he is liable for prosecution if he is lying. It must be emphasized that the crime is not lying per se, which is a moral problem not under the province of a free market defense agency, but breaching a contract taking someone else's property under false pretenses and therefore being guilty of fraud. If, on the other hand, the adulterated product injures the health of the buyer, such as by an inserted poison, the seller is further liable for prosecution for injuring and assaulting the person of the buyer. Another type of quality control is the alleged protection of investors. SEC regulations force new companies selling stock, for example, to comply with certain rules, issue brochures, etc. The net effect is to hamper new and especially small firms and restrict them in acquiring capital, thereby conferring a monopolistic privilege upon existing firms. Investors are prohibited from investing in particularly risky enterprises. SEC regulations, blue sky laws, etc., thereby restrict the entry of new firms and prevent investment in risky but possibly successful ventures. Once again, efficiency in business and service to the consumer are hampered. Some people who generally adhere to the free market support the SEC and similar regulations on the ground that they raise the moral tone of competition. Certainly they restrict competition, but they cannot be said to raise the moral tone until morality is successfully defined. How can morality in production be defined except as efficient service to the consumer? And how can anyone be moral if he is prevented by force from acting otherwise?
Safety codes are another common type of quality standard. They prescribe the details of production and outlaw differences. The free market method of dealing, say, with the collapse of a building killing several persons, is to send the owner of the building to jail for manslaughter. But the free market can countenance no arbitrary safety code promulgated in advance of any crime. The current system does not treat the building owner as a virtual murderer should a collapse occur. Instead, he merely pays a sum of monetary damages. In that way, invasion of person goes relatively unpunished and undeterred. On the other hand, administrative codes proliferate, and their general effect is to prevent major improvements in the building industry, and thus to confer monopolistic privileges on existing builders, as contrasted with potentially innovating competitors. The building industry is so constituted that many laborers are quasi-independent entrepreneurs, Safety codes, therefore, compound the restrictionism of building unions. Evasion of safety codes through bribery then permits the actual aggressor, the builder whose property injures someone, to continue unpunished and go scot-free. It might be objected that free market defense agencies must wait until after people are injured to punish, rather than prevent crime. It is true that on the free market only overt acts can be punished. There is no attempt by anyone to tyrannize over anyone else on the ground that some future crime might possibly be prevented thereby. On the prevention theory, any sort of invasion of personal freedom can be, and in fact must be, justified. It is certainly a ludicrous procedure to attempt to prevent a few future invasions by committing permanent invasions against everyone. We might add here that on the purely free market, even the clear and present danger criterion would be far too lax and subjective a definition for a punishable deed. Safety regulations are also imposed on labor contracts. Workers and employers are prevented from agreeing on terms of hire unless certain governmental rules are obeyed. The result is a loss imposed on workers and employers who are denied their freedom to contract and who must turn to other, less remunerative employments. Factors are therefore distorted and misallocated in relation to both the maximum satisfaction of the consumers and maximum return to factors. Industry is rendered less productive and flexible. Another use of safety regulations is to prevent geographic competition, that is, to keep consumers from buying goods from efficient producers located in other geographical areas. Analytically, there is little distinction between competition in general and in location, since location is simply one of the many advantages or disadvantages that competing firms possess. 
Thus, state governments have organized compulsory milk cartels, which set minimum prices and restrict output, and absolute embargoes are levied on out-of-state milk imports under the guise of safety. The effect, of course, is to cut off competition and permit monopoly pricing. Furthermore, safety requirements that go far beyond those imposed on local firms are often exacted on out-of-state products. D. Tariffs Tariffs and various forms of import quotas prohibit partially or totally, geographical competition for various products. Domestic firms are granted a quasi-monopoly and, generally, a monopoly price. Tariffs injure the consumers within the protected area who are prevented from purchasing from more efficient competitors at a lower price. They also injure the more efficient foreign firms and the consumers of all areas who are deprived of the advantages of geographic specialization. In a free market, the best resources will tend to be allocated to their most value-productive locations. Blocking interregional trade will force factors to obtain lower remuneration at less efficient and less value-productive tasks. Economists have devoted a great deal of attention to the theory of international trade, attention far beyond its analytic importance. For on the free market there would be no separate theory of international trade at all, and the free market is the locus of the fundamental analytic problems. Analysis of interventionary situations consists simply in comparing their effects to what would have occurred on the free market. Nations may be important politically and culturally, but economically they appear only as a consequence of government intervention, either in the form of tariffs or other barriers to geographic trade, or as some form of monetary intervention. Tariffs have inspired a profusion of economic speculation and argument. The arguments for tariffs have one thing in common. They all attempt to prove that the consumers of the protected area are not exploited by the tariff. These attempts are all in vain. There are many arguments. Typical are worries about the continuance of an unfavorable balance of trade, but every individual decides on his purchases and therefore determines whether his balance should be favorable or unfavorable. Unfavorable is a misleading term because any purchase is the action most favorable for the individual at the time. The same is therefore true for the consolidated balance of a region or a country. There can be no unfavorable balance of trade from a region unless the traders so will it, either by selling their gold reserve or by borrowing from others, the loans being voluntarily granted by creditors. The absurdity of the pro-tariff arguments can be seen when we carry the idea of a tariff to its logical conclusion. Let us say the case of two individuals, Jones and Smith. 
This is a valid use of the reductio ad absurdum because the same qualitative effects take place when a tariff is levied on a whole nation as when it is levied on one or two people. The difference is merely one of degree. The impact of a tariff is clearly greater the smaller the geographic area of traders it covers. A tariff protecting the whole world would be meaningless, at least until other planets are brought within our trading market. Suppose that Jones has a farm, Jones Acres, and Smith works for him. Having become steeped in pro-tariff ideas, Jones exhorts Smith to buy Jones Acres. Keep the money in Jones Acres. Don't be exploited by the flood of products from the cheap labor of foreigners outside Jones Acres. And similar maxims become the watchword of the two men. To make sure that their aim is accomplished, Jones levies a 1,000% tariff on the imports of all goods and services from abroad, that is, from outside the farm. As a result, Jones and Smith see their leisure, or problems of unemployment, disappear as they work from dawn to dusk, trying to eke out the production of all the goods they desire. Many they cannot raise at all. Others they can, given centuries of effort. It is true that they reap the promise of the protectionists, self-sufficiency, although the sufficiency is bare subsistence instead of a comfortable standard of living. Money is kept at home, and they can pay each other very high nominal wages and prices, but the men find that the real value of their wages, in terms of goods, plummets drastically. Truly, we are now back in the situation of the isolated or barter economies of Crusoe and Friday, and that is effectively what the tariff principle amounts to. This principle is an attack on the market, and its logical goal is the self-sufficiency of individual producers. It is a goal that, if realized, would spell poverty for all, and death for most of the present world population. It would be a regression from civilization to barbarism. A mild tariff over a wider area is perhaps only a push in that direction, but it is a push, and the arguments used to justify the tariff apply equally well to a return to the self-sufficiency of the jungle. The tariff advocates will not wish to push the argument to this length, since all parties clearly lose so drastically. With a milder tariff, on the other hand, the tariff-protected oligopolists may gain more in the short run from exploiting the domestic consumers than they lose from being consumers themselves. One of the keenest parts of Henry George's analysis of the protective tariff is his discussion of the term protection. Protection implies prevention. What is it that protection by tariff prevents? It is trade, but trade from which protection essays to preserve and defend us is not, like flood, earthquake, or tornado, something that comes without human agency. Trade implies human action. 
There can be no need of preserving from or defending against trade unless there are men who want to trade and try to trade. Who then are the men against whose efforts to trade protection preserves and defends us? The desire of one party, however strong it may be, cannot of itself bring about trade. To every trade there must be two parties who actually desire to trade, and whose actions are reciprocal. No one can buy unless he finds someone willing to sell, and no one can sell unless there is some other one willing to buy. If Americans did not want to buy foreign goods, foreign goods could not be sold here, even if there were no tariff. The efficient cause of the trade which our tariff aims to prevent is the desire of Americans to buy foreign goods, not the desire of foreign producers to sell them. It is not from foreigners that protection preserves and defends us, it is from ourselves. Ironically, the long-run exploitative possibilities of the protective tariff are far less than those that arise from other forms of monopoly grant, for only firms within an area are protected. Yet anyone is permitted to establish a firm there, even foreigners. As a result, other firms from within and without the area will flock into the protected industry and the protected area, until finally the monopoly gain disappears, although misallocation of production and injury to consumers remain. In the long run, therefore, a tariff per se does not establish a lasting benefit even for the immediate beneficiaries. Many writers and economists otherwise in favor of free trade have conceded the validity of the infant industry argument for a protective tariff. Few free traders, in fact, have challenged the argument beyond warning that the tariff might be continued beyond the stage of infancy of the industry. This reply, in effect, concedes the validity of the infant industry argument. Aside from the utterly false and misleading biological analogy which compares a newly established industry to a helpless newborn baby who needs protection, the substance of the argument has been stated by Frank Tausig. The argument is that while the price of the protected article is temporarily raised by the duty, eventually it is lowered competition sets in and brings a lower price in the end. This reduction in domestic price comes only with the lapse of time. At the outset, the domestic producer has difficulties and cannot meet the foreign competition. In the end, he learns how to produce to best advantage and then can bring the article to market as cheaply as the foreigner, even more cheaply. Thus, older competitors are alleged to possess historically acquired skill and capital that enable them to outcompete any new rivals. Wise protection of the government granted to the new firms, therefore, will in the long run promote rather than hinder competition.
The infant industry argument reverses the true conclusion from a correct premise. The fact that capital has already been sunk in older locations does, it is true, give the older firms an advantage, even if today, in the light of present knowledge and consumer wants, the investments would have been made in the new locations. But the point is that we must always work with a given situation, with the capital handed down to us by the investment of our ancestors. The fact that our ancestors made mistakes, from the point of view of our present superior knowledge, is unfortunate, but we must always do the best with what we have. We do not and never can begin investing from scratch. Indeed, if we did, we should be in the situation of Robinson Crusoe, facing land again with our bare hands and no inherited equipment. Therefore, we must make use of the advantages given us by the sunk capital of the past. To subsidize new plants would be to injure consumers by depriving them of the advantages of historically given capital. In fact, if long-run prospects in the new industry are so promising, why does not private enterprise, ever on the outlook for a profitable investment opportunity, enter the new field? Only because entrepreneurs realize that such investment would be uneconomic, that is, it would waste capital, land, and labor that could otherwise be invested to satisfy more urgent desires of the consumers. As Mises says, the truth is that the establishment of an infant industry is advantageous from the economic point of view only if the superiority of the new location is so momentous that it outweighs the disadvantages resulting from abandonment of non-convertible and non-transferable capital goods invested in the older established plants. If this is the case, the new plants will be able to compete successfully with the old ones without any aid given by the government. If it is not the case, the protection granted to them is wasteful, even if it is only temporary and enables the new industry to hold its own at a later period. The tariff amounts virtually to a subsidy, which the consumers are forced to pay as a compensation for the employment of scarce factors of production for the replacement of still-utilizable capital goods to be scrapped, and the withholding of these scarce factors from other employments in which they could render services valued higher by the consumers. In the absence of tariffs, the migration of industries to better locations is postponed until the capital goods invested in the old plants are worn out or become obsolete by technological improvements which are so momentous as to necessitate their replacement by new equipment. Logically, the infant industry argument must be applied to interlocal and interregional trade as well as international. Failure to realize this is one of the reasons for the persistence of the argument. 
Logically extended, in fact, the argument would have to imply that it is impossible for any new firm to exist and grow against the competition of older firms wherever their locations. New firms, after all, have their own peculiar advantage to offset that of existing sunken capital possessed by the old firms. New firms can begin afresh with the latest and most productive equipment, as well as on the best locations. The advantages and disadvantages of a new firm must be weighed against each other by entrepreneurs in each case to discover the most profitable and therefore the most serviceable course. E. Immigration restrictions. Laborers may also ask for geographical grants of oligopoly in the form of immigration restrictions. In the free market, the inexorable trend is to equalize wage rates for the same value-productive work all over the earth. This trend is dependent on two modes of adjustment: businesses flocking from high-wage to low-wage areas, and workers flowing from low-wage to high-wage areas. Immigration restrictions are an attempt to gain restrictionist wage rates for the inhabitants of an area. They constitute a restriction rather than a monopoly because a in the labor force each worker owns himself, and therefore the restrictionists have no control over the whole of the supply of labor. And b, the supply of labor is large in relation to the possible variability in the hours of an individual worker. That is, a worker cannot, like a monopolist, take advantage of the restriction by increasing his output to take up the slack, and hence obtaining a higher price is not determined by the elasticity of the demand. A higher price is obtained in any case by the restriction of the supply of labor. There is a connexity throughout the entire labor market. Labor markets are linked with each other in different occupations, and the general wage rate, in contrast to the rate in specific industries, is determined by the total supply of all labor, as compared with the various demands for different types of labor in different industries. A reduced total supply of labor in an area will thus tend to increase wage rates all around. Immigration restrictions, therefore, may earn restrictionist wage rates for all people in the restricted area, although clearly the greatest relative gainers will be those who would have directly competed in the labor market with the potential immigrants. They gain at the expense of the excluded people who are forced to accept lower-paying jobs at home. Obviously, not every geographic area will gain by immigration restrictions. Only a high-wage area. Those in relatively low-wage areas rarely have to worry about immigration. There, the pressure is to emigrate. Many states have imposed emigration restrictions upon their subjects. These are not monopolistic. 
they are probably motivated by a desire to keep taxable and conscriptable people within a state's jurisdiction. The high-wage areas won their position through a greater investment of capital per head than the other areas, and now the workers in that area try to resist the lowering of wage rates that would stem from an influx of workers from abroad. Immigration barriers confer gains at the expense of foreign workers. Few residents of the area trouble themselves about that. It is instructive to study the arguments of those internationalist congressmen who advocate changes in American immigration barriers. The changes proposed do not even remotely suggest the removal of these barriers. The barriers raise other problems, however. The process of equalizing wage rates, though hobbled, will continue in the form of an export of capital investment to foreign, low-wage countries. Insistence on high wage rates at home creates more and more incentive for domestic capitalists to invest abroad. In the end, the equalization process will be effected anyway, except that the location of resources will be completely distorted. Too many workers and too much capital will be stationed abroad, and too little at home, in relation to the satisfaction of the world's consumers. Secondly, the domestic citizens may very well lose more from immigration barriers as consumers than they gain as workers. For immigration barriers, a. Impose shackles on the international division of labor, the most efficient location of production and population, etc., and b. The population in the home country may well be below the optimum population for the home area. An inflow of population might well stimulate greater mass production and specialization, and thereby raise the real income per capita. In the long run, of course, the equalization would still take place, but perhaps at a higher level, especially if the poorer countries were overpopulated in comparison with their optimum. In other words, the high-wage country may have a population below the optimum real income per head, and the low-wage country may have excessive population over the optimum. In that case, both countries would enjoy increased real wage rates from the migration, although the low-wage country would gain more. It is fashionable to speak of the overpopulation of some countries such as China and India, and to assert that the Malthusian terrors of population pressing on the food supply are coming true in these areas. This is fallacious thinking, derived from focusing on countries instead of the world market as a whole. It is fallacious to say that there is overpopulation in some parts of the market and not in others. The theory of over- or under-population in relation to an arbitrary maximum of real income per person applies properly to the market as a whole. 
If parts of the market are under and parts overpopulated, the problem stems not from human reproduction or human industry, but from artificial governmental barriers to migration. India is overpopulated only because its citizens will not move abroad, or because other governments will not admit them. If the former, then the Indians are making a voluntary choice to accept lower money wages in return for the great psychic gain of living in India. Wages are equalized internationally only if we incorporate such psychic factors into the wage rate. Moreover, if other governments forbid their entry, the problem is not absolute. Overpopulation, but coercive barriers thrown up against personal migration. Advocates of the free market, who also advocate immigration barriers, have rarely faced the implications of their position. The loss to everyone as consumers from shackling the interregional division of labor and the efficient location of production should not be overlooked in considering the effects of immigration barriers. The reductio ad absurdum, though not quite as devastating as in the case of the tariff, is also relevant here. As Oscar W. Cooley and Paul Poirot point out, if it is sound to erect a barrier along our national boundary lines against those who see greater opportunities here than in their native land, why should we not erect similar barriers between states and localities within our nation? Why should a low-paid worker be allowed to migrate from a failing buggy shop in Massachusetts to the expanding automobile shops in Detroit? He would compete with native Detroiters for food and clothing and housing. He might be willing to work for less than the prevailing wage in Detroit, upsetting the labor market there. Anyhow, he was a native of Massachusetts, and therefore that state should bear the full responsibility for his welfare. Those are matters we might ponder, but our honest answer to all of them is reflected in our actions. We'd rather ride in automobiles than in buggies. It would be foolish to try to buy an automobile or anything else on the free market, and at the same time deny any individual an opportunity to help produce those things we want. The advocate of immigration laws who fears a reduction in his standard of living is actually misdirecting his fire. Implicitly, he believes that his geographic area now exceeds its optimum population point. What he really fears, therefore, is not so much immigration as any population growth. To be consistent, therefore, he would have to advocate compulsory birth control to slow down the rate of population growth desired by individual parents. F. Child labor laws. Child labor laws are a clear-cut example of restrictions placed on the employment of some labor for the benefit of restrictive wage rates for the remaining workers. 
In an era of much discussion about the unemployment problem, many of those who worry about unemployment also advocate child labor laws, which coercively prevent the employment of a whole body of workers. Child labor laws, then, amount to compulsory unemployment. Compulsory unemployment, of course, reduces the general supply of labor and raises wage rates restrictively as the connexity of the labor market diffuses the effects throughout the market. Not only is the child prevented from laboring, but the income of families with children is arbitrarily lowered by the government, and childless families gain at the expense of families with children. Child labor laws penalize families with children because the period of time in which children remain net monetary liabilities to their parents is thereby prolonged. Child labor laws, by restricting the supply of labor, lower the production of the economy and hence tend to reduce the standard of living of everyone in the society. Furthermore, the laws do not even have the beneficial effect that compulsory birth control might have in reducing population when it is above the optimum point, for the total population is not reduced, except from the indirect effects of the penalty on children, but the working population is. To reduce the working population while the consuming population remains undiminished is to lower the general standard of living. Child labor laws may take the form of outright prohibition or of requiring working papers and all sorts of red tape before a youngster can be hired, thus partially achieving the same effect. The child labor laws are also bolstered by compulsory school attendance laws, compelling a child to remain in a state or state-certified school until a certain age has the same effect of prohibiting his employment and preserving adult workers from younger competition. Compulsory attendance, however, goes even further in compelling a child to absorb a certain service— schooling, when he or his parents would prefer otherwise, thus imposing a further loss of utility upon these children. An item from the New York Daily News illustrates the connection between child labor laws and restrictionist wage rates for adults, particularly for unions. Through the cooperation of some 26,000 grocers plus trade unions, thousands of teenage boys will get a chance to earn summer spending money. Deputy Police Commissioner James B. Nolan, president of the Police Athletic League, PAL, PAL, disclosed yesterday. The program was worked out by PAL with the assistance of Grocer Graphic, a trade newspaper. Raymond Bill, publisher of the trade paper, explained that thousands of groceries can employ one and, in some cases, two or three boys in odd jobs which do not interfere with union jobs. G. Conscription It has rarely been realized that conscription is an effective means of granting a monopolistic privilege and imposing restrictionist wage rates. 
Conscription, like child labor laws, removes a part of the labor force from competition in the labor market, in this case, the removal of healthy adult members. Coerced removal and compulsory labor in the armed forces at only nominal pay increases the wage rates of those remaining, especially in those fields most directly competitive with the jobs of the drafted men. Of course, the general productivity of the economy also decreases, offsetting the increases for at least some of the workers. But, as in other cases of monopoly grants, some of the privileged will probably gain from the governmental action. Directly, conscription is a method by which the government can commandeer labor at far less than market wage rates, the rate it would have to pay to induce the enlistment of a volunteer army. H. Minimum Wage Laws and Compulsory Unionism Compulsory unemployment is achieved indirectly through minimum wage laws. On the free market, everyone's wage tends to be set at his discounted marginal value productivity. A minimum wage law means that those whose DMVP is below the legal minimum are prevented from working. The worker was willing to take the job and the employer to hire him, but the decree of the state prevents this hiring from taking place. Compulsory unemployment thus removes the competition of marginal workers and raises the wage rates of the other workers remaining. Thus, while the announced aim of a minimum wage law is to improve the incomes of the marginal workers, the actual effect is precisely the reverse. It is to render them unemployable at legal wage rates. The higher the minimum wage rate relative to free market rates, the greater the resulting unemployment. Unions aim for restrictionist wage rates which on a partial scale cause distortions in production, lower wage rates for non-members, and pockets of unemployment, and on a general scale lead to greater distortions and permanent mass unemployment. By enforcing restrictive production rules rather than allowing individual workers voluntarily to accept work rules laid down by the enterpriser in the use of his property, unions reduce general productivity and hence the living standards of the economy. Any governmental encouragement of unions, therefore, such as is imposed under the Wagner-Taft-Hartley Act, leads to a regime of restrictive wage rates, injury to production, and general unemployment. The indirect effect on employment is similar to that of a minimum wage law, except that fewer workers are affected, and it is then the union-enforced minimum wage that is being imposed. I. Subsidies to Unemployment Government unemployment benefits are an important means of subsidizing unemployment caused by unions or minimum wage laws. When restrictive wage rates lead to unemployment, the government steps in to prevent the unemployed workers from injuring union solidarity and union-enforced wage rates. 
By receiving unemployment benefits, the mass of potential competitors with unions are removed from the labor market, thus permitting an indefinite extension of union policies. And this removal of workers from the labor market is financed by the taxpayers, the general public. J. Penalties on Market Forms Any form of governmental penalty on a type of market production or organization injures the efficiency of the economic system and prevents the maximum remuneration to factors, as well as maximum satisfaction to consumers. The most efficient are penalized, and indirectly, the least efficient producers are subsidized. This tends not only to stifle market forms that are efficient in adapting the economy to changes in consumer valuations and given resources, but also to perpetuate inefficient forms. There are many ways in which governments have granted quasi-monopoly privileges to inefficient producers by imposing special penalties on the efficient, Special chain store taxes hobble chain stores and injure consumers for the benefit of their inefficient competitors. Numerous ordinances outlawing pushcart peddlers destroy an efficient market form and efficient entrepreneurs for the benefit of less efficient but more politically influential competitors. Laws closing businesses at specific hours injure the dynamic competitors who wish to stay open and prevent consumers from maximizing their utilities in the time pattern of their purchases. Corporation income taxes place an extra burden on corporations, penalizing these efficient market forms and privileging their competitors. Government requirements of reports from businesses place artificial restrictions on small firms with relatively little capital and constitute an indirect grant of privilege to large business competitors. The withholding tax is an example of a wartime measure that now appears to be an indestructible part of our tax system. It compels businesses to be tax collectors for the government without pay. It is thus a type of binary intervention that particularly penalizes small firms, which are burdened more than proportionately by the overhead requirements of running their business. All forms of government regulation of business, in fact, penalize efficient competitors and grant monopolistic privileges to the inefficient. An important example is regulation of insurance companies, particularly those selling life insurance. Insurance is a speculative enterprise, as is any other, but based on the relatively greater certainty of biological mortality. All that is necessary for life insurance is for premiums to be currently levied in sufficient amount to pay benefits to the actuarially expected beneficiaries. 
Yet life insurance companies have, peculiarly, launched into the investment business by contending that they need to build up a net reserve so large as to be almost sufficient to pay all benefits if half the population died immediately. They are able to accumulate such reserves by charging premiums far higher than would be needed for mere insurance protection. Furthermore, by charging constant premiums over the years, they are able to phase out their own risks and place them on the shoulders of their unwitting policyholders through the accumulating cash surrender values of their policies. Moreover, the companies, not the policyholders, keep the returns on the invested reserves. The insurance companies have been able to charge and collect the absurdly high premiums required by such a policy because state governments have outlawed, in the name of consumer protection, any possible competition from the low rates of non-reserve insurance companies. As a result, existing half-insurance, half-uneconomic investment companies have been granted special privilege by the government. K. Antitrust Laws It may seem strange to the reader that one of the most important governmental checks on efficient competition, and therefore grants of quasi-monopolies, are the antitrust laws. Very few, whether economists or others, have questioned the principle of the antitrust laws, particularly now that they have been on the statute books for some years. As is true of many other measures, evaluation of the antitrust laws has not proceeded from an analysis of their nature or of their necessary consequences, but from an impressionistic reaction to their announced aims. The chief criticism of these laws is that they haven't gone far enough. Some of those most ardent in the proclamation of their belief in the free market have been most clamorous in calling for stringent antitrust laws and the breakup of monopolies. Even the most right-wing economists have only gingerly criticized certain antitrust procedures without daring to attack the principle of the laws per se. The only viable definition of monopoly is a grant of privilege from the government. It therefore becomes quite clear that it is impossible for the government to decrease monopoly by passing punitive laws. The only way for the government to decrease monopoly, if that is the desideratum, is to remove its own monopoly grants. The antitrust laws, therefore, do not in the least diminish monopoly. What they do accomplish is to impose a continual, capricious harassment of efficient business enterprise. The law in the United States is couched in vague, indefinable terms, permitting the administration and the courts to omit defining in advance what is a monopolistic crime and what is not. 
Whereas Anglo-Saxon law has rested on a structure of clear definitions of crime, known in advance and discoverable by a jury after due legal process, the antitrust laws thrive on deliberate vagueness and ex post facto rulings. No businessman knows when he has committed a crime and when he has not. And he will never know until the government, perhaps after another shift in its own criteria of crime, swoops down upon him and prosecutes. The effects of these arbitrary rules and ex post facto findings of crime are manifold. Business initiative is hampered. Businessmen are fearful and subservient to the arbitrary rulings of government officials, and business is not permitted to be efficient in serving the consumer. Since business always tends to adopt those practices and that scale of activity which maximize profits and income and serve the consumers best, any harassment of business practice by government can only hamper business efficiency and reward inefficiency. It is vain, however, to call simply for clearer statutory definitions of monopolistic practice, for the vagueness of the law results from the impossibility of laying down a cogent definition of monopoly on the market. Hence the chaotic shift of the government from one unjustifiable criterion of monopoly to another. Size of firm, closeness of substitutes, charging a price too high or too low or the same as a competitor, merging that substantially lessens competition, etc. All these criteria are meaningless. An example is the criterion of substantially lessening competition. This implicitly assumes that competition is some sort of quantity, but it is not. It is a process whereby individuals and firms supply goods on the market without using force. To preserve competition does not mean to dictate arbitrarily that a certain number of firms of a certain size have to exist in an industry or area. It means to see to it that men are free to compete or not, unrestrained by the use of force. The original Sherman Act stressed collusion in restraint of trade. Here again, there is nothing anti-competitive per se about a cartel, for there is conceptually no difference between a cartel, a merger, and the formation of a corporation. All consist of the voluntary pooling of assets in one firm to serve the consumers efficiently. If collusion must be stopped and cartels must be broken up by the government, that is, if to maintain competition it is necessary that cooperation be destroyed, then the anti-monopolists must advocate the complete prohibition of all corporations and partnerships. Only individually owned firms would then be tolerated. 
Aside from the fact that this compulsory competition and outlawed cooperation is hardly compatible with the free market that many antitrusters profess to advocate, the inefficiency and lower productivity stemming from the outlawing of pooled capital would send the economy a good part of the way from civilization to barbarism. An individual becoming idle instead of working may be said to restrain trade, although he is simply not engaging in it rather than restraining it. If antitrusters wish to prevent idleness, which is the logical extension of the W.H. Hutt concept of consumer's sovereignty, then they would have to pass a law compelling labor and outlawing leisure, a condition certainly close to slavery. Municipal ordinances against vagrancy or loitering are certainly a beginning in this direction and are used to impose forced labor upon the poorest sectors of the population. But if we confine the definition of restraint to restraining the trade of others, then clearly there can be no restraint of trade at all on the free market, and only the government or some other institution using violence can restrain trade. And one conspicuous form of such restraint is antitrust legislation itself. One of the few cogent discussions of the antitrust principle in recent years has been that of Isabel Patterson. As Mrs. Patterson states, Standard Oil did not restrain trade. It went out to the ends of the earth to make a market. Can the corporations be said to have restrained trade when the trade they cater to had no existence until they produced and sold the goods? Were the motor car manufacturers restraining trade during the period in which they made and sold 50 million cars, where there had been no cars before? Surely nothing more preposterous could have been imagined than to fix upon the American corporations, which have created and carried on, in ever-increasing magnitude, a volume and variety of trade so vast that it makes all previous production and exchange look like a rural roadside stand, and call this performance restraint of trade further stigmatizing it as a crime. And Mrs. Patterson concludes, Government cannot restore competition or ensure it. Government is monopoly, and all it can do is to impose restrictions which may issue in monopoly, when they go so far as to require permission for the individual to engage in production. This is the essence of the society of status. The reversion to status law in the antitrust legislation went unnoticed. The politicians had secured a law under which it was impossible for the citizen to know beforehand what constituted a crime, and which therefore made all productive effort liable to prosecution, if not to certain conviction. In the earlier days of the trust problem, Paul de Roussier commented, 
Directly, the formation of trusts is not induced by the natural action of economic forces. As soon as they depend on artificial protection, such as tariffs, the most effective method of attack is to simply reduce the number and force of these protective accidents to the greatest possible extent. We can attack artificial conditions, but are impotent when opposing natural conditions. America has hitherto pursued the exactly reverse methods, blaming economic forces tending to concentrate industry and joining issue by means of antitrust legislation, a series of entirely artificial measures. Thus, there is to be no understanding between competing companies, etc. The results have been pitiful: a violent restriction of fruitful initiative. The legislation does not touch the rest of the evil, enlarges in place of restraining artificial conditions, and finally regulates and complicates matters whose supreme needs are simplification and removal of restrictions. L, outlawing basing point pricing. An important example of the monopolizing effects of a program supposedly designed to combat monopoly is the court decision outlawing basing point pricing. On the free market, price uniformity means uniformity at each consuming center and not uniformity at each mill. In commodities where freight costs are a large proportion of final price, this distinction becomes important, and many firms adopt such price uniformity, enabling firms further away from a consuming center to absorb some freight charges in order to compete with local firms. One of the forms of freight absorption is called basing point pricing. Ruling this practice monopolistic and virtually decreeing that every firm must charge uniform prices at the mill not only prevents interlocational competition in such industries, but confers an artificial monopolistic privilege on local firms. Each local firm is granted the area of its own location, with a haven set by the freight costs of out-of-town rivals, within which it can charge its customers a monopoly price. Firms better able to absorb freight costs and prosper in a wider market are penalized and prevented from doing so. Furthermore, the decreasing cost advantages of a large-scale market and large-scale production are eliminated, as each firm is confined to a small compass. Firms' locations are altered, and they are forced to cluster near large consuming areas, despite the greater advantages that other locations had offered to these companies. Furthermore, such a ruling penalizes small businesses, since only large firms can afford to build many branches to compete in each local area. M. Conservation laws. Conservation laws restrict the use of depleting resources and force owners to invest in the maintenance of replaceable natural resources. The effect of both cases is similar. 
the restriction of present production for the supposed benefit of future production. This is obvious in the case of depleting resources. Factors are also compelled to maintain replaceable resources, such as trees, when they could have more profitably engaged in other forms of production. In the latter case, there is a double distortion. Factors are forcibly shifted to future production, and they are also forced into a certain type of future production, the replacement of these particular resources. Clearly, one aim of conservation laws is to force the ratio of consumption to saving, investment, lower than the market would prefer. People's voluntary allocations made according to their time preferences are forcibly altered, and relatively more investment is forced into production for future consumption. In short, the state decides that the present generation must be made to allocate its resources more to the future than it wishes to do. For this service, the state is held up as being far-seeing compared to short-sighted free individuals. But presumably, depleting resources must be used at some time, and some balance must always be struck between present and future production. Why does the claim of the present generation weigh so lightly in the scales? Why is the future generation so much more worthy that it can compel the present to carry a greater load? What did the future ever do to deserve privileged treatment? Anthony Scott points out that this attitude rests on the contemptuous and unsupported view that future generations will not be as competent to take care of themselves as is the present generation. Indeed, since the future is likely to be wealthier than the present, the reverse might well apply. The same reasoning applies to all attempts to change the market's time preference ratio. Why should the future be able to enforce greater sacrifices on the present than the present is willing to undergo? Furthermore, after a span of years, the future will become the present. Must the future generations then also be restricted in their production and consumption because of another wraith-like future? It must not be forgotten that the aim of all productive activity is goods and services that will and can be consumed only in some present. There is no rational basis for penalizing consumption in one present and privileging one future present, and there is still less reason for restricting all presents in favor of some will-o'-the-wisp future that can never appear and lies always beyond the horizon. Yet this is the goal of conservation laws. Conservation laws are truly pie-in-the-sky legislation. As Scott aptly asks, why agree to preserve resources as they would be in the absence of their human users? And further, most of our progress has taken the form of converting natural resources into more desirable forms of wealth. If man had prized natural resources above his own product, he would doubtless have remained savage, practicing conservatism. 
If the logic of tariffs is to destroy the market, then the logic of conservation laws is to destroy all human production and consumption. Individuals in the market decide on the time structure in their allocation of factors in accordance with the estimated revenue that their resources will bring in present as against future use. In other words, they will tend to maximize the present value at any time of their land and capital assets. The time structure of rental income from assets is determined by the interest rate, which in turn is determined by the time preference schedules of all individuals on the market. Time preference, in addition to the specific estimated demands for each good, will determine the allocations of factors to each use. Since a lower time preference will connote more investment in future consumers' goods, it will also mean more conservation of natural resources. A high time preference will lead to less investment and more consumption in the present, and consequently to less conservation. In some cases, however, lower time preferences and greater investment activity will deplete natural resources at a more rapid rate if there is a particularly great demand for their use in the new activity. This is likely to be true of such resources as coal and oil. Most conservationist arguments evince almost no familiarity with economics. Many assume that entrepreneurs have no foresight and would blithely use natural resources only to find themselves someday suddenly without any property. Only the wise providential state can foresee depletion. The absurdity of this argument is evident when we realize that the present value of the entrepreneur's land is dependent on the expected future rents from his resources. Even if the entrepreneur himself should be unaccountably ignorant, the market will not be, and its valuation, that is, the valuation of interested experts with money at stake, will tend to reflect its value accurately. In fact, it is the entrepreneur's business to forecast, and he is rewarded for correct forecasting by profits. Will entrepreneurs on the market have less foresight than bureaucrats comfortably ensconced in their seizure of the taxpayer's money? Entrepreneurs with poor foresight are quickly expelled from their positions through losses. It is ironic that the plight of the Okies in the 1930s, widely publicized as a plea for conservation laws and the result of cruel capitalism, actually resulted from the fact that bad entrepreneurs, the Okies, farmed land that was valueless and submarginal. Forced conservation investment on this submarginal land or government subsidization of the Okies would have aggravated a dislocation that the market quickly eliminated. Much American soil erosion, furthermore, has stemmed from failure to preserve full private property rights in land.
Tenant farmers, moving every few years, often milked the capital of the landlord's property, wasting the resource, in default of proper enforcement of the contractual necessity to return the land to its owner intact. Another error made by the conservationists is to assume a technology fixed for all time. Human beings use what resources they have, and as technological knowledge grows, the types of usable resources multiply. If we have less timber to use than past generations, we need less, too, for we have found other materials that can be used for construction or fuel. Past generations possessed an abundance of oil in the ground, but for them, oil was valueless, and hence not a resource. Our modern advances have taught us how to use oil, and have enabled us to produce the equipment for this purpose. Our oil resources, therefore, are not fixed. They are infinitely greater than those of past generations. Artificial conservation will wastefully prolong resources beyond the time when they have become obsolete. How many writers have wept over capitalism's brutal ravaging of the American forests? Yet it is clear that American land has had more value-productive uses than timber production, and hence the land was diverted to those ends that better satisfied consumer wants. A typical conservationist complainer was J.D. Brown, who in 1832 worried over the consumption of timber. Whence shall we procure supplies of timber fifty years hence for the continuance of our navy? Scott notes that the critics never seem to realize that a nation's timber can be purchased from abroad. What standards can the critics set up instead? If they think too much forest has been cut down, how can they arrive at a quantitative standard to determine how much is too much? In fact, it is impossible to arrive at any such standard, just as it is impossible to arrive at any quantitative standards for market action outside the market. Any attempt to do so must be arbitrary and unsupported by any rational principle. America has been the prime home of conservation laws, particularly on behalf of its public domain. Under a purely free enterprise system, there would be no such thing as a governmentally owned public domain. Land would simply remain unowned until it first came into use, after which it would be owned by the first user and his heirs or assigns. This system was dimly adumbrated by the Homestead Law of 1862. However, this law imposed an arbitrary and pointless maximum on the size of farm that could be staked out by the first user. This limitation had the result of nullifying the law further west, where the minimum acreage needed for cattle or sheep grazing was far larger than the antiquated legal maximum would allow. Furthermore, the maximum limitation and the requirement that the land be used for farming led to the very ravaging of the forests that conservationists now deplore. 
for it hobbled private ownership of large forest tracts. The consequences of government ownership of the public domain will be further explored later. Here we may state a few of them. When the government owns the land and permits private individuals to use it freely, the result is indeed a wasteful over-exploitation of the resource. More factors are employed to use up the resource than on a free market, since the only gains to the users are immediate, and if they wait, other users will deplete the limited resource. Free use of a governmentally owned resource truly inaugurates a war of all against all, as more and more users, eager for the free bargain, attempt to exploit the scarce resource. To have a scarce resource, and to make everyone believe because of the free gift of use that its supply is unlimited, causes overuse of the resource, favoritism, figurative queuing up, etc. A striking example was the western grazing lands in the latter half of the 19th century. The government prevented cattlemen from owning the land and fencing it in, and insisted it be kept as open range owned by the government. The result was excessive use of the range and its untimely depletion. The government's failure to extend the homestead principle to the larger areas had another important social effect. It led to constant squabbles between the users, the cattlemen, and the other homesteaders who came later and demanded their just share of the free land. Another example is the rapid depletion of the fisheries. Since no one is permitted to own any segment of the sea, no one sees any sense in preserving the value of the resource, as each is benefited only by rapid use in advance of his competitors. Leasing is hardly a superior form of land use. If the government owns the land and leases it to grazers or timber users, once again, there is no incentive for the lessee to preserve the value of the resource since he does not own it. It is to his best interest as a lessee to use the resource as intensively as possible in the present. Hence, leasing also depletes natural resources excessively. In contrast, if private individuals were to own all the lands and resources, then it would be to the owner's interest to maximize the present value of each resource. Excessive depletion of the resource would lower its capital value on the market. Against the preservation of the capital value of the resource as a whole, the resource owner balances the income to be presently obtained from its use. The balance is decided, ceteris paribus, by the time preference and the other preferences of the market. High demand for the product increases the value of the resource, and thereby stimulates its preservation investment in it, and exploration for it. High-cost sources of supply will now be tapped, thus further increasing the effective supply of the product on the market. 
If private individuals can only use, but not own, the land, the balance is destroyed, and the government has provided an impetus to excessive present use. Not only is the announced aim of conservation laws to aid the future at the expense of the present illegitimate, and the arguments in favor of it invalid, but compulsory conservation would not achieve even this goal, for the future is already provided for through present saving and investment. Conservation laws will indeed coerce greater investment in natural resources, using other resources to maintain renewable resources and forcing a greater inventory of stock in depletable resources. But total investment is determined by the time preferences of individuals, and these will not have changed. Conservation laws, then, do not really increase total provisions for the future, they merely shift investment from capital goods, buildings, etc., to natural resources. They thereby impose an inefficient and distorted investment pattern on the economy. Given the nature and consequences of conservation laws, why should anyone advocate this legislation? Conservation laws, we must note, have a very practical aspect. They restrict production, that is, the use of a resource by force, and thereby create a monopolistic privilege, which leads to a restrictionist price to owners of this resource or of substitutes for it. Conservation laws can be more effective monopolizers than tariffs, because, as we have seen, tariffs permit new entry and unlimited production by domestic competitors. There is another similarity between tariffs and conservation laws. Both aim at national self-sufficiency, and both try to foster national or local industries by coercive intervention in the free market. Conservation laws, on the other hand, serve to cartelize a land factor and absolutely restrict production, thereby helping to ensure permanent and continuing monopoly gains for the owners. These monopoly gains, of course, will tend to be capitalized into an increase in the capital value of the land. The person who later buys the monopolized factor, then, will simply earn the going rate of interest on his investment, even though the monopoly gain will be included in his earnings. Conservation laws, therefore, must also be looked upon as grants of monopolistic privilege. One outstanding example is the American government's policy, since the end of the 19th century, of reserving vast tracts of the public domain, that is, the government's land holdings. Reserving means that the government keeps land under its ownership and abandons its earlier policy of keeping the domain open for homesteading by private owners. Forests, in particular, have been reserved, ostensibly for the purpose of conservation. What is the effect of withholding huge tracts of timberland from production? 
It is to confer a monopolistic privilege and therefore a restrictionist price on competing private lands and on competing timber. We have seen that limiting the labor supply confers a restrictionist wage on the privileged workers, while the workers pushed out by union wage rates or by licenses or immigration laws must find lower-paying and less value-productive jobs elsewhere. A monopoly or quasi-monopoly privilege for the production of capital or consumer goods, on the other hand, may or may not confer a monopoly price, depending on the configuration of the demand for the individual firms, as well as their costs. Since a firm can contract or expand its supply at will, it sets its supply with the knowledge that lowering output to achieve a monopoly price must also lower the total amount of goods sold. On the free market, the demand for each firm in equilibrium must be elastic above the equilibrium price, otherwise the firm would reduce output. This does not, of course, mean that the demand for the entire industry must be elastic. When we refer to a possible monopoly price, the demand consulted by each monopolistic firm is its own. The laborer need bother with no such consideration, aside from a negligible variation in demands for each laborer's total hours of service. What about the privileged landowner? Will he achieve a definite restrictionist or a possible monopoly price? A prime characteristic of a piece of land is that it cannot be increased by labor. If it is augmentable, then it is a capital good, not land. The same, in fact, applies to labor, which in all but long periods of time can be regarded as fixed in its total supply. Since labor in its totality cannot be increased, except, as we have noted in regard to hours of work per day, government restriction on the labor supply, child labor laws, immigration barriers, etc., therefore confers a restrictionist wage increase on the workers remaining. Capital or consumer goods can be increased or decreased so that privileged firms must take their demand into account. Land, on the other hand, cannot be increased. Restriction of the supply of land, therefore, also confers a restrictionist price of land above the free market price. Another example of government creation of a monopoly gain in land has been cited by the Georgist economist Mason Gaffney. City governments all over the country deliberately keep dead lands off the market with the avowed purpose of protecting other land prices. Gaffney cites the head of the American Society of Planning Officials as advising that a vacant one-third of urban land be more or less permanently removed from private ownership in order to keep up land values for the owners of the remaining two-thirds. Gaffney concludes, Following this advice, many state and local governments avoid returning tax-reverted lands to use.
The same is true for depleting natural resources, which cannot have their supply increased and are therefore considered part of land. If the government forces land or natural resources out of the market, therefore, it inevitably lowers the supply available on the market, and just as inevitably confers a monopoly gain and a restrictionist price on the remaining landowners or resource owners. In addition to all of their other effects, conservation laws force labor to abandon good lands and instead cultivate the remaining submarginal land. This coerced shift lowers the marginal productivity of labor and consequently reduces the general standard of living. Let us return to the government's policy of reserving timber lands. This confers a restrictionist price and a monopoly gain on the lands remaining in use. Land markets are specific and do not have the same general connexity as labor markets. Therefore, the restrictionist price rise is confined far more to lands that directly competed or would compete with the withdrawn or reserved lands. In the case of American conservation policy, the particular beneficiaries were a. the land-grant western railroads and b. the existing timber owners. The land-grant railroads had received vast subsidies of land from the government, not only rights-of-way for their roads, but 15-mile tracts on either side of the line. Government reservation of public lands greatly raised the price received by the railroads when they later sold this land to new inhabitants of the area. The railroads thus received another gift from the government, this time in the form of a monopoly gain at the expense of the consumers. The railroads were not ignorant of the monopolistic advantages that would be conferred upon them by conservation laws. In fact, the railroads were the financial angel of the entire conservation movement. Thus, Louise Peffer writes, There was a definite basis for the charge that the railroads were interested in a repeal of various laws permitting easy transfer of the public domain to the hands of private settlers. The National Irrigation Association, which was the most vigorous advocate of land law reform outside of the administration, was financed in part by the transcontinental railroads and by the Burlington and the Rock Island railroads to the amount of $39,000 a year, out of a total budget of around $50,000. The program of this association and the railroads, as announced by James J. Hill, a preeminent railroad magnate, was almost more advanced than that of the leading conservationists. Senator H. C. Hansbrough also pointed out that the railroads paid $45,000 annually to a leading conservationist magazine, The Talisman, and financed the Washington Conservation Lobby. The timber owners also understood the gains they would acquire from forest conservation. President Theodore Roosevelt himself announced that the great users of timber are themselves forwarding the movement for forest preservation. 
As one student of the problem declared, the lumber manufacturers and timber owners had arrived at a harmonious understanding with Gifford Pinchot, the leader in forest conservation, as early as 1903. In other words, the government, by withdrawing timberlands from entry and keeping them off the market, would aid in appreciating the value of privately owned timber. N. Patents A patent is a grant of monopoly privilege by the government to first discoverers of certain types of inventions. The patent was instituted in England by King Charles I as a transparent means of evading the parliamentary prohibition of grants of monopoly in 1624. Some defenders of patents assert that they are not monopoly privileges, but simply property rights in inventions, or even in ideas. But in free market or libertarian law, everyone's right to property is defended without a patent. If someone has an idea or plan and produces an invention, which is then stolen from his house, the stealing is an act of theft, illegal under general law. On the other hand, patents actually invade the property rights of those independent discoverers of an idea or an invention who happen to make the discovery after the patentee. These later inventors and innovators are prevented by force from employing their own ideas and their own property. Furthermore, in a free society, the innovator could market his invention and stamp it copyright, thereby preventing buyers from reselling the same or a duplicate product. Patents, therefore, invade rather than defend property rights. The speciousness of the argument that patents protect property rights in ideas is demonstrated by the fact that not all, but only certain types of original ideas, certain types of innovations, are considered legally patentable. Numerous new ideas are never treated as subject to patent grants. Another common argument for patents is that society simply makes a contract with the inventor to purchase his secret, so that society will have use of it. But in the first place, society could then pay a straight subsidy or price to the inventor. It does not have to prevent all later inventors from marketing their inventions in this field. Secondly, there is nothing in the free economy to prevent any individual or group of individuals from purchasing secret inventions from their creators. No monopolistic patent is therefore necessary. The most popular argument for patents among economists is the utilitarian one that a patent for a certain number of years is necessary to encourage a sufficient amount of research expenditure toward inventions and innovations in new processes and products. This is a curious argument, because the question immediately arises, by what standard do you judge that research expenditures are too much, too little, or just about enough? Resources in society are limited, and they may be used for countless alternative ends. 
By what standards does one determine that certain uses are excessive, that certain uses are insufficient, etc.? Someone observes that there is little investment in Arizona, but a great deal in Pennsylvania. He indignantly asserts that Arizona deserves more investment. But what standards can he use to justify such a statement? The market does have a rational standard, the highest money incomes and highest profits, for these may be achieved only through maximum service to the consumers. This principle of maximum service to consumers and producers alike, that is, to everybody, governs the seemingly mysterious market allocation of resources, how much to devote to one firm or another to one area or another, to the present or the future, to one good or another, to research rather than other forms of investment. The observer who criticizes this allocation can have no rational standards for decision. He has only his arbitrary whim. This is particularly true of criticism of production relations in contrast to interference with consumption. Someone who chides consumers for buying too many cosmetics may have, rightly or wrongly, some rational basis for his criticism. But someone who thinks that more or less of a certain resource should be used in a certain manner, or that business firms are too large or too small, or that too much or too little is spent on research or is invested in a new machine— can have no rational basis for his criticism. Businesses, in short, are producing for a market guided by the valuations of consumers on that market. Outside observers may criticize the ultimate valuations of consumers if they choose, although if they interfere with consumption based on these valuations, they impose a loss of utility upon the consumers but they cannot legitimately criticize the means, the allocations of factors by which these ends are served. Capital funds are limited, as are all other resources, and they must be allocated to various uses, one of which is research expenditures. On the market, Rational decisions are made with regard to setting research expenditures in accordance with the best entrepreneurial expectations of future returns. To subsidize research expenditures by coercion would restrict the satisfaction of consumers and producers on the market. Many advocates of patents believe that the ordinary competitive processes of the market do not sufficiently encourage the adoption of new processes, and that therefore innovations must be coercively promoted by the government. But the market decides on the rate of introduction of new processes just as it decides on the rate of industrialization of a new geographic area. In fact, this argument for patents is very similar to the infant industry argument for tariffs, that market procedures are not sufficient to permit the introduction of worthy new processes. And again, the answer is the same, that people must balance the superior productivity of the new processes against the cost of installing them. 
that is, against the advantage possessed by the old process in being already in existence. Conferring special coercive privileges upon innovation would needlessly scrap valuable plants already in existence and impose an excessive burden upon consumers. Nor is it by any means self-evident even that patents encourage an increase in the absolute quantity of research expenditures. But certainly we can say that patents distort the allocation of factors on the type of research being conducted. For while it is true that the first discoverer benefits from the privilege, it is also true that his competitors are excluded from production in the area of the patent for many years, and since a later patent can build on an earlier related one in the same field, competitors can often be discouraged indefinitely from further research expenditures in the general area covered by the patent. Moreover, the patentee himself is discouraged from engaging in further research in this field, for the privilege permits him to rest on his laurels for the entire period of the patent, with the assurance that no competitor can trespass on his domain. The competitive spur to further research is eliminated. Research expenditures, therefore, are overstimulated in the early stages before anyone has a patent and unduly restricted in the period after the patent is received. In addition, some inventions are considered patentable while others are not. The patent system thus has the further effect of artificially stimulating research expenditures in the patentable areas, while artificially restricting research in the non-patentable areas. As Arnold Plant summed up the problem of competitive research expenditures and innovations, Neither can it be assumed that inventors would cease to be employed if entrepreneurs lost the monopoly over the use of their inventions. Businesses employ them today for the production of non-patentable inventions, and they do not do so merely for the profit which priority secures. In active competition, no business can afford to lag behind its competitors. The reputation of a firm depends upon its ability to keep ahead, to be first in the market with new improvements in its products and new reductions in their prices. Finally, of course, the market itself provides an easy and effective course for those who feel that there are not enough expenditures being made in certain directions on the free market. They are free to make these expenditures themselves. Those who would like to see more inventions made and exploited are at liberty to join together and subsidize such efforts in any way they think best. In doing so, they would, as consumers, add resources to the research and invention business, and they would not then be forcing other consumers to lose utility by conferring monopoly grants and distorting the allocation of the market. Their voluntary expenditures would become part of the market and help to express its ultimate consumer valuations. Furthermore, later inventors would not be restricted. 
The friends of invention could accomplish their aims without calling in the state and imposing losses on the mass of consumers. Patents, like any monopoly grant, confer a privilege on one and restrict the entry of others, thereby distorting the freely competitive pattern of industry. If the product is sufficiently demanded by the public, the patentee will be able to achieve a monopoly price. Patentees, instead of marketing their invention themselves, may elect either to 1. sell their privilege to another, or 2. keep the patent privilege but sell licenses to other firms, permitting them to market the invention. The patent privilege thereby becomes a capitalized monopoly gain. It will tend to sell at the price that capitalizes the expected future monopoly gain to be derived from it. Licensing is equivalent to renting capital, and a license will tend to sell at a price equal to the discounted sum of the rental income that the patent will earn for the period of the license. A system of general licensing is equivalent to a tax on the use of the new process, except that the patentee receives the tax instead of the government. This tax restricts production in comparison with the free market, thereby raising the price of the product and reducing the consumer's standard of living. It also distorts the allocation of resources, keeping factors out of these processes and forcing them to enter less value-productive fields. Most current critics of patents direct their fire not at the patents themselves, but at alleged monopolistic abuses in their use. They fail to realize that the patent itself is the monopoly and that, when someone is granted a monopoly privilege, it should occasion neither surprise nor indignation when he makes full use of it. O. Franchises and Public Utilities Franchises are generally grants of permission by the government for the use of its streets. Where the franchises are exclusive or restrictive, they are grants of monopoly or quasi-monopoly privilege. Where they are general and not exclusive, however, they cannot be called monopolistic. For the franchise question is complicated by the fact that the government owns the streets and therefore must give permission before anyone uses them. In a truly free market, of course, streets would be privately, not governmentally owned, and the problem of franchises would not arise. The fact that the government must give permission for the use of its streets has been cited to justify stringent government regulations of public utilities, many of which, like water or electric companies, must make use of the streets. The regulations are then treated as a voluntary quid pro quo, but to do so overlooks the fact that governmental ownership of the streets is itself a permanent act of intervention. Regulation of public utilities or of any other industry discourages investment in these industries, thereby depriving consumers of the best satisfaction of their wants. 
for it distorts the resource allocations of the free market. Prices set below the free market create an artificial shortage of the utility service. Prices set above those determined by the free market impose restrictions and a monopoly price on the consumers. Guaranteed rates of return exempt the utility from the free play of market forces and impose burdens on the consumers by distorting market allocations. The very term public utility, furthermore, is an absurd one. Every good is useful to the public, and almost every good, if we take a large enough chunk of supply as the unit, may be considered necessary. Any designation of a few industries as public utilities is completely arbitrary and unjustified. P. The Right of Eminent Domain in contrast to the franchise, which may be made general and non-exclusive, as long as the central organization of force continues to own the streets, the right of eminent domain could not easily be made general. If it were, then chaos would truly ensue. For when the government confers a privilege of eminent domain, as it has done on railroads and many other businesses, it has virtually granted a license for theft. If everyone had the right of eminent domain, every man would be legally empowered to compel the sale of property that he wanted to buy. If A were compelled to sell property to B at the latter's will, and vice versa, then neither could be called the owner of his own property. The entire system of private property would then be scrapped in favor of a society of mutual plunder. Saving and accumulation of property for oneself and one's heirs would be severely discouraged, and rampant plunder would cut ever more sharply into whatever property remained. Civilization would soon revert to barbarism, and the standards of living of the barbarian would prevail. The government itself is the original holder of the right of eminent domain, and the fact that the government can despoil any property holder at will is evidence that, in current society, the right to private property is only flimsily established. Certainly no one can say that the inviolability of private property is protected by the government, and when the government confers this power on a particular business, it is conferring upon it the special privilege of taking property by force. Evidently, the use of this privilege greatly distorts the structure of production. Instead of being determined by voluntary exchange, self-ownership, and efficient satisfaction of consumer wants, Prices and the allocation of productive resources are now determined by brute force and government favor. The result is an overextension of resources, a malinvestment in the privileged firm or industry, and an underinvestment in other firms and industries. At any given time, as we have stressed, there is a limited amount of capital a limited supply of all resources that can be devoted to investment. 
compulsory increase in investment in one field can be achieved only by an arbitrary decline in investment in other fields. Inevitably, someone will point to the plight of the railroad or highway company that must pay extortionate rates to the man who merely owns the property along the way. Yet these same people do not complain, and properly so, of the fact that property values have enormously increased in downtown areas of cities, thus benefiting someone who merely happens to own them. The fact is that all property is available to everyone who finds or buys it. If the property owner in these cases is penalized because of his speculation, then all entrepreneurs must be penalized for their correct forecasting of future events. Furthermore, economic progress imputes gains to original factors, land and labor. To render land artificially cheap is to lead to its overuse, and the government is then actually imposing a maximum price on the land in question. Many advocates of eminent domain contend that society, in the last analysis, has the right to use any land for its purposes. Without knowing it, they have thus conceded the validity of a major Henry Georgist plank, that every person, by virtue of his birth, has a right to his aliquot share of God-given land, except that the eminent domain thesis is on even shakier ground, since the Georgists at least exempt or try to exempt from the social claim the improvements that the owner has made. Actually, however, since society does not exist as an entity, it is impossible for each individual to translate his theoretical aliquot right into real ownership. As Benjamin R. Tucker pointed out years ago, the Georgist Equal Rights Thesis, or Eminent Domain, leads logically not to a single tax, but to each individual's right to appropriate his theoretical share of the value of everybody else's land. The state's appropriation of this value then becomes sheer robbery of the other individual claims, rather than of just the claim of the landowner. Therefore, the ownership of the property devolves not on everybody, but on the government, or on those individuals whom it specially privileges. Q. Bribery of Government Officials because it is illegal, bribery of government officials receives practically no mention in economic works. Economic science, however, should analyze all aspects of mutual exchange, whether these exchanges are legal or illegal. We have seen that bribery of a private firm is not actually bribery at all, but simply payment of the market price for the product. Bribery of government officials is also a price for the payment of a service. What is this service? It is the failure to enforce the government edict as it applies to the particular person paying the bribe. In short, the acceptance of a bribe is equivalent to the sale of permission to engage in a certain line of business. 
Acceptance of a bribe is therefore praxeologically identical with the sale of a government license to engage in a business or occupation, and the economic effects are similar to those of a license. There is no economic difference between the purchase of a government permission to operate by buying a license or by paying government officials informally. What the briber receives, therefore, is an informal, oral license to operate. The fact that different government officials receive the money in the two cases is irrelevant to our discussion. The extent to which an informal license acts as a grant of monopolistic privilege depends on the conditions under which it is granted. In some instances, the official accepts a bribe by one person and, in effect, grants him a monopoly in a particular area or occupation. In other cases, the official may grant the informal license to anybody who is willing to pay the necessary price. The former is an example of a clear monopoly grant followed by a possible monopoly price. In the latter case, the bribe acts as a lump-sum tax, penalizing poorer competitors who cannot pay. They are forced out of business by the bribe system. However, we must remember that bribery is a consequence of the outlawing of a certain line of production, and therefore that it serves to mitigate some of the loss of utility imposed on consumers and producers by the government prohibition. Given the state of outlawry, bribery is the chief means for the market to reassert itself. Bribery moves the economy closer to the free market situation. The same is true of an official license. A firm's payment for a license is the only means for it to exist. A licensed firm cannot be stamped as a willing party to the monopolistic privilege unless it had helped to lobby for the licensing law's establishment or continuance, as very often happens. In fact, we must distinguish between an invasive bribe and a defensive bribe. The defensive bribe is what we have been discussing, that is, the purchase of a permission to operate after an activity is outlawed. On the other hand, a bribe to attain an exclusive or quasi-exclusive permission, barring others from the field, is an example of an invasive bribe, a payment for a grant of monopolistic privilege. The former is a significant movement toward the free market. The latter is a movement away from it. R. Policy Toward Monopoly Economic historians often inquire about the extent and importance of monopoly in the economy. Almost all of this inquiry has been misdirected because the concept of monopoly has never been cogently defined. In this chapter, we have traced types of monopoly and quasi-monopoly and their economic effects, it is clear that the term monopoly properly applies only to governmental grants of privilege, direct and indirect. Truly gauging the extent of monopoly in an economy means studying the degree and extent of monopoly and quasi-monopoly privilege that the government has granted. 
American opinion has been traditionally anti-monopoly. Yet it is clearly not only pointless, but deeply ironic to call upon the government to pursue a positive anti-monopoly policy. Evidently, all that is necessary to abolish monopoly is that the government abolish its own creations. It is certainly true that in many, if not all, cases, the privileged businesses or laborers had themselves agitated for the monopolistic grant, but it is still true that they could not become quasi-monopolists except through the intervention of the state. It is therefore the action of the state that must bear prime responsibility. Historians, however, will go sadly astray if they ignore the monopolistic motivation for passage of such measures by the state. Historians who are in favor of the free market often neglect this problem, and thus leave themselves wide open to opposition charges that they are apologists for monopoly capital. Actually, of course, advocates of the free market are pro-business, as they are pro-any voluntary relationship, only when it is carried on in the free market. They oppose governmental grants of monopolistic privilege to businesses or others, for to this extent, business is no longer free, but a partner of the coercive state. Finally, the question may be raised, are corporations themselves mere grants of monopoly privilege? Some advocates of the free market were persuaded to accept this view by Walter Lippmann's The Good Society. It should be clear from previous discussion, however, that corporations are not at all monopolistic privileges. They are free associations of individuals pooling their capital— on the purely free market, such men would simply announce to their creditors that their liability is limited to the capital specifically invested in the corporation, and that beyond this their personal funds are not liable for debts, as they would be under a partnership arrangement. It then rests with the sellers and lenders to this corporation to decide whether or not they will transact business with it. If they do, then they proceed at their own risk. Thus, the government does not grant corporations a privilege of limited liability. Anything announced and freely contracted for in advance is a right of a free individual, not a special privilege. It is not necessary that governments grant charters to corporations. It is true that limited liability for torts is the illegitimate conferring of a special privilege, but this does not loom large among the total liabilities of any corporation. Appendix A. On Private Coinage The common erroneous phrasing of Gresham's Law, Bad Money Drives Out Good Money, has often been used to attack the concept of private coinage as unworkable, and thereby to defend the state's age-old monopolization of the minting business. As we have seen, however, Gresham's law applies to the effect of government policy, not to the free market. 
The argument most often advanced against private coinage is that the public would be burdened by fraudulent coin and would be forced to test coins frequently for their weight and fineness. The government's stamp on the coin is supposed to certify its fineness and weight. The long record of the abuse of this certification by governments is well known. Moreover, the argument is hardly unique to the mitting business. It proves far too much. In the first place, those mitters who fraudulently certify the weight or fineness of coins will be prosecuted for fraud, just as defrauders are prosecuted now. Those who counterfeit the certifications of well-established private mitters will meet a fate similar to those who counterfeit money today. Numerous products of business depend upon their weight and purity. People will either safeguard their wealth by testing the weight and purity of their coins as they do their money bullion, or they will mint their coins with private mitters who have established a reputation for probity and efficiency. These mitters will place their stamps on the coins, and the best mitters will soon come into prominence as coiners and as assayers of previously minted coins. Thus, ordinary prudence, the development of goodwill toward honest and efficient business firms, and legal prosecutions against fraud and counterfeiting, would suffice to establish an orderly monetary system. There are numerous industries where the use of instruments of precise weight and fineness are essential, and where a mistake would be of greater import than an error involving coins— Yet prudence and the process of market selection of the best firms, coupled with legal prosecution against fraud, have facilitated the purchase and use of the most delicate machine tools, for example, without any suggestion that the government must nationalize the machine tool industry in order to ensure the quality of the products. Another argument against private coinage is that standardizing the denominations of coin is more convenient than permitting the diversity of coins that would ensue under a free system. The answer is that if the market finds standardization more convenient, private mints will be led by consumer demand to confine their minting to certain standard denominations. On the other hand, if greater variety is preferred, consumers will demand and obtain a more diverse range of coins. Under the government mintage monopoly, the desires of consumers for various denominations are ignored, and the standardization is compulsory, rather than in accord with public demand. Appendix B. Coercion and Lebensraum Tariffs and immigration barriers as a cause of war may be thought far afield from our study, but actually this relationship may be analyzed praxeologically. A tariff imposed by Government A prevents an exporter residing under Government B from making a sale. Furthermore, an immigration barrier imposed by Government A prevents a resident of B from migrating. Both of these impositions are effected by coercion. Tariffs as a prelude to war have often been discussed. Less understood is the Lebensraum argument. 
overpopulation of one particular country, insofar as it is not the result of a voluntary choice to remain in the homeland at the cost of a lower standard of living, is always the result of an immigration barrier imposed by another country. It may be thought that this barrier is purely a domestic one, but is it? By what right does the government of a territory proclaim the power to keep other people away? Under a purely free market system, only individual property owners have the right to keep people off their property. The government's power rests on the implicit assumption that the government owns all the territory that it rules. Only then can the government keep people out of that territory. Caught in an insoluble contradiction are those believers in the free market and private property who still uphold immigration barriers. They can do so only if they concede that the state is the owner of all property, but in that case they cannot have true private property in their system at all. In a truly free market system, such as we have outlined, only first cultivators would have title to unowned property. Property that has never been used would remain unowned until someone used it. At present, the state owns all unused property, but it is clear that this is conquest incompatible with the free market. In a truly free market, for example, it would be inconceivable that an Australian agency could arise, laying claim to ownership over the vast tracts of unused land on that continent, and using force to prevent people from other areas from entering and cultivating that land. It would also be inconceivable that a state could keep people from other areas out of property that the domestic property owner wishes them to use. No one but the individual property owner himself would have sovereignty over a piece of property. Chapter 4. Binary Intervention. Taxation. 1. Introduction. Government Revenues and Expenditures An interventionist agency such as the government must spend funds. In the monetary economy, this means spending money. This money can be derived only from revenues or income. The bulk of the revenue, and the reason the agency is called interventionary, must come from two sources – in the case of the government, taxation and inflation. Taxation is a coerced levy that the government extracts from the populace. Inflation is the basically fraudulent issue of pseudo-warehouse receipts for money, or new money. Inflation, which poses special problems of its own, has been dealt with elsewhere. This chapter focuses on taxation. We are discussing the government for the most part since empirically it is the prime organization for coercive intervention. However, our analysis will actually apply to all coercive organizations. If governments budget their revenues and expenditures, so must criminals. Where a government levies taxes, 
criminals extract their own brand of coerced levies. Where a government issues fraudulent or fiat money, criminals may counterfeit. It should be understood that praxeologically there is no difference between the nature and effects of taxation and inflation on the one hand, and of robberies and counterfeiting on the other. Both intervene coercively in the market, to benefit one set of people at the expense of another set. But the government imposes its jurisdiction over a wide area, and usually operates unmolested. Criminals, on the contrary, usually impose their jurisdiction on a narrow area only, and generally eke out a precarious existence. Even this distinction does not always hold true, however. In many parts of many countries, bandit groups win the passive consent of the majority in a particular area and establish what amounts to effective governments, or states, within the area. The difference between a government and a criminal band, then, is a matter of degree rather than kind, and the two often shade into each other. Thus, a defeated government in a civil war may often take on the status of a bandit group, clinging to a small area of the country, and there is no praxeological difference between the two. The striking title of Mr. Frank Chodorov's pamphlet, Taxation is Robbery, is therefore praxeologically accurate. As Chodorov says, a historical study of taxation leads inevitably to loot, tribute, ransom, the economic purpose of conquest. The barons who put up toll gates along the Rhine were tax gatherers. So were the gangs who protected, for a forced fee, the caravans going to market. The Danes, who regularly invited themselves into England and remained as unwanted guests until paid off, called it Donegelt. For a long time, that remained the basis of English property taxes. The conquering Romans introduced the idea that what they collected from subject peoples was merely just payment for maintaining law and order. For a long time, the Norman conquerors collected catch-as-catch-can tribute from the English, but when, by natural processes, an amalgam of the two peoples resulted in a nation, the collections were regularized in custom and law and were called taxes. Some writers maintain that only government expenditures, not revenues, constitute a burden on the rest of society. But the government cannot spend money until it obtains it as revenue, whether that revenue comes from taxation, inflation, or borrowing from the public. On the other hand, all revenue is spent. Revenue can differ from expenditure only in the rare case of deflation of part of the government funds, or government hoarding if the standard is purely specie. In that case, as we shall see, revenues are not a full burden, but government expenditures are more burdensome than their monetary amount would indicate, because the real proportion of government expenditures to the national income will have increased.
For the rest of this chapter, we shall assume that there is no such fiscal deflation, and therefore that every increase in taxes is matched by an increase in government expenditures. 2. The Burdens and Benefits of Taxation and Expenditures As John C. Calhoun brilliantly pointed out, there are two groups of individuals in society, the taxpayers and the tax consumers, those who are burdened by taxes and those who benefit. Who is burdened by taxation? The direct or immediate answer is those who pay taxes. We shall postpone the questions of the shifting of tax burdens to a later section. Who benefits from taxation? It is clear that the primary beneficiaries are those who live full-time off the proceeds, for example, the politicians and the bureaucracy. These are the full-time rulers. It should be clear that regardless of legal forms, the bureaucrats pay no taxes. They consume taxes. If a bureaucrat receives a salary of $5,000 a year and pays $1,000 in taxes to the government, it is quite obvious that he is simply receiving a salary of $4,000 and pays no taxes at all. The heads of the government have simply chosen a complex and misleading accounting device to make it appear that he pays taxes in the same way as any other men making the same income. The UN's arrangement, whereby all its employees are exempt from any income taxation, is far more candid. Additional beneficiaries of government revenue are those in society subsidized by the government. These are the part-time rulers. Generally, a state cannot win the passive support of a majority unless it supplements its full-time employees, that is, its members, with subsidized adherents. The hiring of bureaucrats and the subsidizing of others are essential in order to win active support from a large group of the populace. Once a state can cement a large group of active adherents to its cause, it can count on the ignorance and apathy of the remainder of the public to win passive adherence from a majority and to reduce any active opposition to a bare minimum. The problem of the diffusion of expenditures and benefits is, however, more complicated when the government spends money for its various activities and enterprises. In this case, it acts always as a consumer of resources, for example, military expenditures, public works, etc., and it puts tax money into circulation by spending it on factors of production. Suppose, to make the illustration clearer, the government taxes the codfish industry and uses the proceeds of this tax to spend money on armaments. The first receiver of the money is the armament manufacturer, who pays it out to his suppliers and the owners of original factors, etc., in the meantime, the codfish industry, stripped of capital, reduces its demand for factors. 
In both cases, the burdens and benefits diffuse themselves throughout the economy. Consumer demand, by virtue of state coercion, has shifted from codfish to armaments. The result imposes short-run losses on the codfish industry and those who supply it, and short-run gains on the armaments industry and those who supply it. As the ripples of expenditure are pushed further and further back, the impact dies out, having been strongest at the points of first contact, that is, the codfish and the armaments industries. In the long run, however, all firms and all industries earn a uniform return, and any gains or losses are imputed back to original factors. The non-specific or convertible factors will tend to shift out of the codfish and into the armaments industry. The shift will not necessarily or even probably be from the codfish to the armament industry directly. Rather, factors will shift from the codfish to other related industries and to the armament industry from its related lines. The purely specific or non-convertible original factors will remain to bear the full burden of the loss and to reap the gain respectively. Even the non-specific factors will bear losses and reap gains, though to a lesser degree. The major effect of the change, however, will eventually be felt by the owners of the specific original factors, largely the landowners of the two industries. Taxes are compatible with equilibrium and therefore we may trace the long-run effects of a tax and expenditure in this manner. The diffusion effect of inflation differs from that of taxation in two ways. A. It is not compatible with a long-run equilibrium, and B. The new money always benefits the first half of the money receivers and penalizes the last half. Taxation diffusion has the same effect at first, but shifting alters incidence in the final reckoning. In the short run, of course, entrepreneurs suffer losses and earn profits because of the shift in demand. All government expenditure for resources is a form of consumption expenditure in the sense that the money is spent on various items because the government officials so decree. The purchases may therefore be called the consumption expenditure of government officials. It is true that the officials do not consume the product directly, but their wish has altered the production pattern to make these goods, and therefore they may be called its consumers. On the other hand, since the officials do not usually consume the products directly, they often believe that they are acting on behalf of the consumers. Hence, their choices are liable to an enormous degree of error. 
Alec Nove has pointed out that if these choices were simply the consumer preferences of the government planners themselves, they would not, as they do now, realize that they can and do make grievous errors. Thus, the choices made by government officials do not even possess the virtue of satisfying their own consumption preferences. As will be seen, all talk of government investment is fallacious. Taxation always has a twofold effect. One, it distorts the allocation of resources in the society so that consumers can no longer most efficiently satisfy their wants. And two, for the first time, it severs distribution from production. It brings the problem of distribution into being. The first point is clear. Government coerces consumers into giving up part of their income to the state, which then bids away resources from these same consumers. Hence, the consumers are burdened, their standard of living is lowered, and the allocation of resources is distorted away from consumer satisfaction toward the satisfaction of the ends of the government. More detailed analysis of the distorting effects of different types of taxes will be presented later. The essential point is that the object of many economists' quest, a neutral tax, that is, a tax that will leave the market exactly the same as it was without taxation, must always be a chimera. No tax can be truly neutral. Every one will cause distortion. Neutrality can be achieved only on a purely free market where governmental revenues are obtained by voluntary purchase only. Two other types of revenue are consonant with neutrality and a purely free market, fines on criminals and the sale of products of prison labor. Both are methods for making the criminals pay the cost of their own apprehension. It is often stated that capitalism has solved the problem of production and that the state must now intervene to solve the problem of distribution. A more clearly erroneous formulation would be difficult to conceive, for the problem of production will never be solved until we are all in the Garden of Eden. Furthermore, there is no problem of distribution on the free market. In fact, there is no distribution at all. On the free market, a man's monetary assets have been acquired precisely because his or his predecessor's services have been purchased by others. There is no distributional process apart from the production and exchange of the market. Hence, the very concept of distribution as something separate becomes meaningless. Since the free market process benefits all participants on the market and increases social utility, it follows directly that the distributional results of the free market, the pattern of income and wealth, also increases social utility and, in fact, maximizes it at any given time. 
When the government takes from Peter and gives to Paul, it then creates a separate distribution process and a problem of distribution. No longer do income and wealth flow purely from service rendered on the market. They now flow from special privilege created by the coercion of the state. Wealth is now distributed to exploiters at the expense of the exploited. It might be objected that while bureaucrats are solely exploiters and not producers, other subsidized groups may also be producers as well. Their exploitation extends, however, to the degree that they are net tax consumers rather than taxpayers. Their other productive activities are beside the point. The crucial point is that the extent of the distortion of resources and of the state's plunder of producers is in direct proportion to the level of taxation and government expenditures in the economy as compared with the level of private income and wealth. It is a major contention of our analysis, in contrast to many other discussions of the subject, that by far the most important impact of taxation results not so much from the type of tax as from its amount. It is the total level of taxation, of government income compared with the income of the private sector, that is the most important consideration. Far too much significance has been attached in the literature to the type of tax, to whether it is an income tax, progressive or proportional, sales tax, spending tax, etc. Though important, this is subordinate to the significance of the total level of taxation. 3. The Incidents and Effects of Taxation Part 1. Taxes on Incomes A. The General Sales Tax and the Laws of Incidence One of the oldest problems connected with taxation is, who pays the tax? It would seem that the answer is clear-cut, since the government knows on whom it levies a tax. The problem, however, is not who pays the tax immediately, but who pays it in the long run, that is, whether or not the tax can be shifted from the immediate taxpayer to somebody else. Shifting occurs if the immediate taxpayer is able to raise his selling price to cover the tax, thus shifting the tax to the buyer or if he is able to lower the buying price of something he buys, thus shifting the tax to some other seller. In addition to this problem of the incidence of taxation, there is the problem of analyzing other economic effects of various types and amounts of taxes. The first law of incidence can be laid down immediately, and it is a rather radical one. No tax can be shifted forward. In other words, no tax can be shifted from seller to buyer and on to the ultimate consumer. 
We shall see how this applies specifically to excise and sales taxes, which are commonly thought to be shifted forward. It is generally considered that any tax on production or sales increases the cost of production, and therefore is passed on as an increase in price to the consumer. Prices, however, are never determined by costs of production, but rather the reverse is true. The price of a good is determined by its total stock in existence and the demand schedule for it on the market. But the demand schedule is not affected at all by the tax. The selling price is set by any firm at the maximum net revenue point, and any higher price, given the demand schedule, will simply decrease net revenue. A tax, therefore, cannot be passed on to the consumer. It is true that a tax can be shifted forward in a sense if the tax causes the supply of the good to decrease and therefore the price to rise on the market. This can hardly be called shifting per se, however, for shifting implies that the tax is passed on with little or no trouble to the producer. If some producers must go out of business in order for the tax to be shifted, it is hardly shifting in the proper sense, but should be placed in the category of other effects of taxation. A general sales tax is the classic example of a tax on producers that is believed to be shifted forward. The government, let us say, imposes a 20% tax on all sales at retail. We shall assume that the tax can be equally well enforced in all branches of sales. Usually, of course, it cannot, and the result will be equivalent to a specific excise tax on some branches of sales, but not on others. To most people, it seems obvious that the business will simply add 20% to their selling prices and merely serve as unpaid collection agencies for the government. The problem is hardly that simple, however. In fact, as we have seen, there is no reason whatever to believe that prices can be raised at all. Prices are already at the point of maximum net revenue. The stock has not been decreased, and demand schedules have not changed. Therefore, prices cannot be increased. Furthermore, if we look at the general array of prices, these are determined by the supply of and the demand for money. For the array of prices to rise, there must be an increase in the supply of money, a decrease in the schedule of the demand for money, or both. Yet neither of these alternatives has occurred. The demand for money to hold has not decreased, the supply of goods available for money has not declined, and the supply of money has remained constant. There is no possible way that a general price increase can be obtained. Whereas a partial excise tax will eventually cause a drop in supply and therefore a rise in the price of the product, 
there is no way by which resources can escape a general tax except into idleness, since, as we shall see, a sales tax is a tax on incomes. The rise in the opportunity cost of leisure may push some workers into idleness and thereby lower the quantity of goods produced. To this tenuous extent, prices will rise. It should be quite evident that if businesses were able to pass tax increases along to the consumer in the form of higher prices, they would have raised these prices already, without waiting for the spur of a tax increase. Businesses do not deliberately peg along at the lowest selling prices they can find. If the state of demand had permitted higher prices, firms would have taken advantage of this fact long before. It might be objected that a sales tax increase is general, and therefore that all the firms together can shift the tax. Each firm, however, follows the state of the demand for its own product, and none of these demands has changed. A tax increase does nothing to make higher prices more profitable. The myth that a sales tax can be shifted forward is comparable to the myth that a general union-imposed wage increase can be shifted forward to higher prices, thereby causing inflation. There is no way that the general array of prices can rise, and the only result of such a wage increase will be mass unemployment. Of course, if the money supply is increased and credit expanded, prices can be raised so that money wages are no longer above their discounted marginal value products. Many people are misled by the fact that the price the consumer pays must necessarily include the tax. When someone goes to a movie and sees prominently posted the information that the $1 admission covers a price of $0.85 cents and a tax of $0.15, cents, he tends to conclude that the tax has simply been added on to the price. But one dollar is the price, not 85 cents, the latter sum being the income accruing to the firm after taxes. This income might well have been reduced to allow for payment of taxes. In fact, this is precisely the effect of a general sales tax. Its immediate impact lowers the gross revenue of firms by the amount of the tax. In the long run, of course, firms cannot pay the tax, for their loss in gross revenue is imputed back to interest income by capitalists and to wages and rents earned by original factors, labor and ground land. A decrease in the gross revenue of retail firms is reflected back to a decreased demand for the products of all the higher-order firms. All the firms, however, earn in the long run a pure, uniform interest return. Here a difference arises between a general sales tax and, say, a corporate income tax. 
There has been no change in time preference schedules or other components of the interest rate. While an income tax compels a lower percent interest return, a sales tax can and will be shifted completely from investment and back to the original factors. The result of a general sales tax is a general reduction in the net revenue accruing to original factors, to all wages and ground rents. The sales tax has been shifted backwards to original factor returns. No longer does every original factor of production earn its discounted marginal value product. Now, original factors earn less than their DMVPs, the reduction consisting of the sales tax paid to the government. It is necessary now to integrate this analysis of the incidence of a general sales tax with our previous general analysis of the benefits and burdens of taxation. This is accomplished by remembering that the proceeds of taxation are, in turn, spent by the government. If the government does not spend all of its revenue, then deflation is added to the impact of taxation. Whether the government spends the money for resources for its own activities or simply transfers the money to people it subsidizes, the result is to shift consumption and investment demand from private hands to the government or to government-supported individuals by the amount of the tax revenue. In this case, the tax has been ultimately levied on the incomes of original factors and the money transferred from their hands to the government. The income of the government and or those it subsidizes has been increased at the expense of those taxed, and therefore consumption and investment demands on the market have been shifted from the latter to the former by the amount of the tax. As a consequence, the value of the money unit will remain unchanged, barring a difference in demands for money between the taxpayers and the tax consumers, but the array of prices will shift in accordance with the shift in demands. Thus, if the market has been spending heavily on clothing, and the government uses the revenue mostly for the purchase of arms, there will be a fall in the price of clothes a rise in the price of arms, and a tendency for non-specific factors to shift out of clothing and into the production of armaments. As a result, there will not be, as might be assumed, a proportional 20% fall in the incomes of all original factors as a result of a 20% general sales tax. Specific factors in industries that have lost business as a result of the shift from private to governmental demand will lose proportionately more in income. Specific factors in industries gaining in demand will lose proportionately less, and some may gain so much as to gain absolutely as a result of the change. 
Non-specific factors will not be affected as much proportionately, but they too will lose and gain according to the difference that the concrete shift in demand makes in their marginal value productivity. The knowledge that taxes can never be shifted forward is a consequence of adhering to the Austrian analysis of value, that is, that prices are determined by ultimate demands for stock and not in any sense by the cost of production. Unhappily, all previous discussions of the incidence of taxation have been marred by hangovers of classical cost-of-production theory and the failure to adopt a consistent Austrian approach. The Austrian economists themselves never really applied their doctrines to the theory of tax incidence, so that this discussion breaks new ground. The shifting forward doctrine has actually been carried to its logical and absurd conclusion that producers shift taxes to consumers, and consumers in turn can shift them to their employers, and so on ad infinitum, with no one really paying any tax at all. It should be carefully noted that the general sales tax is a conspicuous example of failure to tax consumption. It is commonly supposed that a sales tax penalizes consumption rather than income or capital. But we find that the sales tax reduces not just consumption, but the incomes of original factors. The general sales tax is an income tax, albeit a rather haphazard one, since there is no way that its impact on income classes can be made uniform. Many right-wing economists have advocated general sales taxation as opposed to income taxation on the ground that the former taxes consumption but not savings investment. Many left-wing economists have opposed sales taxation for the same reason. Both are mistaken. The sales tax is an income tax, though of more haphazard and uncertain incidence. The major effect of the general sales tax will be that of the income tax to reduce the consumption and the savings investment of the taxpayers. Mr. Frank Chodorov, in his The Income Tax, Root of All Evil, fails to indicate what other type of tax would be better from a free market point of view than the income tax. It will be clear from our discussion that there are few taxes indeed that will not be as bad as the income tax from the viewpoint of an advocate of the free market. Certainly, sales or excise taxation will not fill the bill. Chodorov, furthermore, is surely wrong when he terms income and inheritance taxes unique denials of the right of individual property. Any tax whatever infringes on property rights, and there is nothing in an indirect tax which makes that infringement any less clear. It is true that an income tax forces the subject to keep records and disclose his personal dealings, thus imposing a further loss in his utility. 
The sales tax, however, also forces record-keeping. The difference, again, is one of degree rather than of kind. For here, the extent of directness covers only retail storekeepers instead of the bulk of the population. In fact, since, as we shall see, the income tax by its nature falls more heavily on savings investment than on consumption, we reach the paradoxical and important conclusion that a tax on consumption will also fall more heavily on savings investment in its ultimate incidence. B. Partial Excise Taxes other production taxes. The partial excise tax is a sales tax levied on some, rather than all, commodities. The chief distinction between this and the general sales tax is that the latter does not, in itself, distort productive allocations on the market, since a tax is levied proportionately on the sale of all final products. A partial excise, on the other hand, penalizes certain lines of production. The general sales tax, of course, distorts market allocations insofar as government expenditures from the proceeds differ in structure from private demands in the absence of the tax. The excise tax has this effect, too, and, in addition, penalizes the particular industry taxed. The tax cannot be shifted forward, but tends to be shifted backward to the factors working in the industry. Now, however, the tax exerts pressure on non-specific factors and entrepreneurs to leave the taxed industry and enter other non-taxed industries. During the transition period, the tax may well be added to cost, as the price, however, cannot be directly increased, the marginal firms in this industry will be driven out of business and will seek better opportunities elsewhere. The exodus of non-specific factors and perhaps firms from the taxed industry reduces the stock of the good that will be produced. This reduction in stock, or supply, will raise the market price of the good, given the consumer's demand schedule. Thus, there is a sort of indirect shifting, in the sense that the price of the good to consumers will ultimately increase. However, as we have stated, it is not appropriate to call this shifting, a term better reserved for an effortless, direct passing on of a tax in the price. Everyone in the market suffers as a result of an excise tax. Non-specific factors must shift to fields of lower income, since the discounted marginal value product is lower there, specific factors are hit particularly hard, and consumers suffer as the allocations of factors and the price structure are distorted in comparison with what would have satisfied their desires. The supply of factors in the taxed industries becomes excessively low, and the selling price in these industries too high, while the supply of factors in other industries becomes excessively large, and their product prices too low. 
In addition to those specific effects, the excise tax also has the same general effect as all other taxes, namely that the pattern of market demands is distorted from private to government or government-subsidized once by the amount of the tax intake. Far too much has been written on the elasticity of demand in relation to the effect of taxation. We know that the demand schedule for one firm is always elastic above the free market price, and the cost of production is not something fixed but is in itself determined by the selling price. Most important, any decrease in the stock will raise the market price, and any increase in the stock will lower the price, regardless of the elasticity of demand for the product. Elasticity of demand is a topic that warrants only a relatively minor role in economic theory. Perhaps the reason for the undeserved popularity of the elasticity concept is that economists need to employ it in their vain search for quantitative laws and measurements in economics. In sum, an excise tax, A, injures consumers in the same way that all taxes do by shifting resources and demands from private consumers to the state and b. injures consumers and producers in its own particular way by distorting market allocations, prices, and factor revenues. But c. cannot be considered a tax on consumption in the sense that the tax is shifted to consumers. The excise tax is also a tax on incomes, except that in this case the effect is not general because the impact falls most heavily on the factors specific to the taxed industry. Any partial tax on production will have effects similar to an excise tax. A license tax imposed on an industry, for example, granting a monopolistic privilege to firms with a large amount of capital, will restrict the supply of the product and raise the price. Factors and pricing will be misallocated, as in an excise tax. In contrast to the latter, however, the indirect grant of monopolistic privilege will benefit the specific quasi-monopolized factors that are able to remain in the industry. C. General Effects of Income Taxation In the dynamic real economy, money income consists of wages, ground rents, interest, and profits, counterbalanced by losses. Ground rents are also capitalized on the market, so that income from rents is resolvable into interest and profit minus losses. The income tax is designed to tax all such net income. We have seen that sales and excise taxes are really taxes on some original factor incomes. This has been generally ignored, and perhaps one reason is that people are accustomed to thinking of income taxation as being uniformly levied on all incomes of the same amount. 
Later we shall see that the uniformity of such a levy has been widely upheld as an important canon of justice for taxation. Actually, no such uniformity does or need exist. Excise and sales taxes, as we have seen, are not uniformly levied, but are imposed on some income receivers and not others of the same income class. It must be recognized that the official income tax, the tax that is generally known as the income tax, is by no means the only form in which income is or can be taxed by the government. Even the official tax is hardly uniform, being interlarded with extra burdens and exemptions. An income tax cannot be shifted to anyone else. The taxpayer himself bears the burden. He earns profits from entrepreneurial activity, interest from time preference, and other income from marginal productivity, and none can be increased to cover the tax. Income taxation reduces every taxpayer's money income and real income, and hence his standard of living. His income from working is more expensive and leisure cheaper, so that he will tend to work less. Everyone's standard of living in the form of exchangeable goods will decline. In rebuttal, much has been made of the fact that every man's marginal utility of money rises as his money assets fall and therefore that there may be a rise in the marginal utility of the reduced income obtainable from his current expenditure of labor. It is true, in other words, that the same labor now earns every man less money, but this very reduction in money income may also raise the marginal utility of a unit of money to the extent that the marginal utility of his total income will be raised, and he will be induced to work harder as a result of the income tax. This may very well be true in some cases, and there is nothing mysterious or contrary to economic analysis in such an event, However, it is hardly a blessing for the man or for society, for if more work is expended, leisure is lost, and people's standards of living are lower because of this coerced loss. In the free market, in short, individuals are always balancing their money income or real income in exchangeable goods against their real income in the form of leisure activities. Both are basic components of the standard of living. The greater their exchangeable goods income, in fact, the higher will be their marginal utility of a unit of leisure time, non-exchangeable goods, and the more proportionately will they take their income in the form of leisure. It is not surprising, therefore, that a coerced lower income may force individuals to work harder. Whichever the effect, the tax lowers the standard of living of the taxpayers, either depriving them of leisure or of exchangeable goods. In addition to penalizing work relative to leisure, an income tax also penalizes work for money as against work for a return in kind 
Obviously, a relative advantage is conferred on work done for a non-monetary reward. Working women are penalized as compared with housewives. People will tend to work for their families rather than enter into the labor market, etc. Do-it-yourself activities are stimulated. In short, the income tax tends to bring about a reduction in specialization and a breakdown of the market, and hence a retrogression in living standards. Make the income tax high enough, and the market will disintegrate altogether, and primitive economic conditions will prevail. The income tax confiscates a certain portion of a person's income, leaving him free to allocate the remainder between consumption and investment. It might be thought that since we may assume time preference schedules as given, the proportion of consumption to savings investment and the pure interest rate will remain unaffected by the income tax. But this is not so. For the taxpayer's real income and the value of his monetary assets have been lowered. The lower the level of a man's real monetary assets, the higher will his time preference rate be, given his time preference schedule, and the higher the proportion of his consumption to investment spending. How is an individual taxpayer's time preference schedule related to his monetary assets? Let us say that the government levies an income tax, reducing his initial monetary assets at the start of his spending period. His effective time preference rate is now higher. We have seen that an individual's real as well as nominal money assets must decline in order for this result to take place. If there is deflation, the value of the monetary unit will increase roughly in proportion and, in the long run, time preference ratios, ceteris paribus, will not be changed. In the case of income taxation, however, there will be no change in the value of the monetary unit, since the government will spend the proceeds of taxation. As a result, the taxpayer's real as well as nominal money assets decline, and decline to the same extent. It might be objected that the government officials or those subsidized receive additional money, and the fall in their time preference ratios may well offset or balance the rise in the rate from the taxpayer's side. It could not be concluded, then, that the social rate of time preference will rise, and savings investment particularly decrease. Government expenditures, however, constitute diversion of resources from private to government purposes. Since the government, by definition, desires this diversion, this is a consumption expenditure by the government. These expenditures are commanded by the government and not by the free action of individuals. They therefore may satisfy the utility or are expected to satisfy the utility only of the government officials, and we cannot be sure that anyone else's is satisfied.
The Keynesians, on the contrary, classify all government resource-using expenditure as investment on the ground that these, like investment expenditures, are independent and not passively tied to income by means of a psychological function. The reduction in income, and therefore in consumption and savings investment, imposed on the taxpayers will therefore be counterbalanced by government consumption expenditure. As for the transfer expenditures made by the government, including the salaries of bureaucrats and subsidies to privileged groups, it is true that some of this will be saved and invested. These investments, however, will not represent the voluntary desires of consumers, but rather investments in fields of production not desired by the producing consumers. They represent the desires not of the producing consumers on the free market, but of exploiting consumers fed by the unilateral coercion of the state. Once let the tax be eliminated, and the producers are free to earn and consume again. The new investments called forth by the demands of the specially privileged will turn out to be malinvestments. At any rate, the amount consumed by the government ensures that the effect of income taxation will be to raise time preference ratios and to reduce saving and investment. Some economists maintain that income taxation reduces saving and investment in the society in a third way. They assert that income taxation, by its very nature, imposes a double tax on savings investment as against consumption. Double is used in the sense of two instances, not arithmetically twice. The reasoning runs as follows. Saving and consumption are not really symmetrical. All saving is directed toward enjoying more consumption in the future. Otherwise, there would be no point at all in saving. Saving is abstaining from possible present consumption in return for the expectation of increased consumption at some time in the future. No one wants capital goods for their own sake. Although there is much merit in Professor John F. Dew's critique of this general position, he is incorrect in believing that people may own capital for its own sake. If people, because of the uncertainty of the future, wish to hold wealth for its service in relieving risk, they will hold wealth in its most marketable form, cash balances. Capital is far less marketable and is desired only for its fructification in consumers' goods and earnings from the sale of these goods. Capital goods are only the embodiment of an increased consumption in the future. Savings investment is Crusoe's building a stick to obtain more apples at a future date. It fructifies in increased consumption later. Hence, the imposition of an income tax excessively penalizes savings investment as against consumption.
These economists generally go on to advocate taxation of consumption alone as the only real income. This line of reasoning is correct in its explanation of the investment consumption process. It suffers, however, from one grave defect. It is irrelevant to problems of taxation. It is true that saving is a fructifying agent. But the point is that everyone knows this. That is precisely why people save. Yet, even though they know that saving is a fructifying agent, they do not save all their income. Why? Because of their time preference for present consumption. Every individual, given his current income and value scales, allocates that income in the most desired proportion among consumption, investment, and addition to his cash balance. Any other allocation would satisfy his desires to a lesser extent and lower his position on his value scale. There is, therefore, no reason here to say that an income tax especially penalizes savings investment. It penalizes the individual's entire standard of living, encompassing present consumption, future consumption, and his cash balance. It does not per se penalize saving any more than it does the other avenues of income allocation. There is another way, however, in which an income tax does, in fact, levy a particular burden on saving. For the interest return on savings investment, like all other earnings, is subject to the income tax. The net interest rate received, therefore, is lower than the free market rate. The return is not consonant with free market time preferences. Instead, the imposed lower return induces people to bring their savings investment into line with the reduced return. In short, the marginal savings and investments, now not profitable at the lower rate, will not be made. The argument cited earlier, based on the work of John Stuart Mill and Irving Fisher, is an example of a curious tendency among economists generally devoted to the free market to be unwilling to consider its ratio of consumption to investment allocations as optimal. The economic case for the free market is that market allocations tend at all points to be optimal with respect to consumer desires. The economists who favor the free market recognize this in most areas of the economy, but for some reason show a predilection for and special tenderness toward savings investment as against consumption. They tend to feel that a tax on saving is far more of an invasion of the free market than a tax on consumption. It is true that saving embodies future consumption, but people voluntarily choose between present and future consumption in accordance with their time preferences, and this voluntary choice is their optimal choice. Any tax levied particularly on their consumption, therefore, is just as much a distortion and invasion of the free market as a tax on their savings. 
There is nothing, after all, especially sacred about savings. They are simply the road to future consumption. But they are no more important than present consumption, the allocation between the two being determined by the time preferences of all individuals. The economist who shows more concern for free market savings than he does for free market consumption is implicitly advocating statist interference and a coerced distortion of resource allocation in favor of greater investment and lower consumption. The free market advocate should oppose with equal fervor coerced distortion of the ratio of consumption to investment in either direction. Thus, one of the standard conservative arguments against progressive income taxation is that savings would be taxed in greater proportion than consumption. Many of these writers leave the reader with the inference that if present consumption were taxed more heavily, everything would be all right. Yet what is so worthy about future as against present consumption? And what principle do these economists adopt that permits them to alter by force the voluntary time preference ratios between present and future? As a matter of fact, we have seen that income taxation, by other routes, tends to distort the allocation of resources into more consumption and less savings investment, and we have seen that attempts to tax consumption in the form of sales or production taxation must fail and end as levies on incomes instead. D. Particular Forms of Income Taxation 1. Taxes on Wages A tax on wages is an income tax that cannot be shifted away from the wage earner. There is no one to shift it to, especially not the employer, who always tends to earn a uniform interest rate. In fact, there are indirect taxes on wages that are shifted to the wage earner in the form of lower wage incomes. An example is that part of Social Security or of unemployment compensation premiums levied on the employer. Most employees believe that they completely escape this part of the tax which the employer pays. They are wholly mistaken. The employer, as we have seen, cannot shift the tax forward to the consumer. In fact, since the tax is levied in proportion to wages paid, the tax is shifted backward wholly on the wage earners themselves. The employer's part is simply a collected tax levied at the expense of a reduction of the net wages of the employees. Two. Corporate Income Taxation Taxation of corporate net income imposes a double tax on the owners of corporations, once on the official corporate income and once on the remaining distributed net income of the owners themselves. The extra tax cannot be shifted forward onto the consumer. Since it is levied on net income itself, it can hardly be shifted backward. 
It has the effect of penalizing corporate income as opposed to income from other market forms, single ownership, partnerships, etc., thereby penalizing efficient forms of enterprise and encouraging the inefficient. Resources shift from the former to the latter until the expected rate of net return is equalized throughout the economy at a lower level than originally. Since interest return is forcibly lower than before, the tax penalizes savings and investment as well as an efficient market form. Some writers have pointed out that the penalty lowers future consumption from what it would have been, reducing the supply of goods and raising prices to consumers. This can hardly be called shifting, however, but is rather a manifestation of the ultimate effect of the tax in reducing consumer standards of living from the free market level. The penalty or double taxation feature of corporate income taxes could be eliminated only by abolishing the tax and treating any net incomes accruing to a corporation as pro rata income to its stockholder owners. In other words, a corporation would be treated as a partnership, and not according to the absurd fiction that it is some sort of separate real entity functioning apart from the actions of its actual owners. Income accruing to the corporation obviously accrues pro rata to the owners. Some writers have objected that the stockholders do not really receive the income on which they would be taxed, Thus, suppose that the Star Corporation earns a net income of $100,000 in a certain period, and that it has three stockholders, Jones with 40% of the stock, Smith holding 35% of the stock, and Robinson owning 25%. The majority stockholders, or their management representatives, decide to retain $60,000 as undistributed earnings in the firm, while paying only $40,000 as dividends. Under present law, Jones' net income from the Star Corporation is considered as $16,000. Smith's as $14,000, and Robinson's as $10,000. The corporation's is listed at $100,000. Each of these entities is then taxed on these amounts. Yet, since there is no real corporate entity separate from its owners, the incomes would be more properly recorded as follows. Jones, $40,000. Smith, $35,000, Robinson, $25,000. The fact that these stockholders do not actually receive the money is no objection, for what happens is the equivalent of someone's earning money yet keeping it on account without bothering to draw it out and use it. Interest that piles up in someone's savings bank account is considered as income and taxed accordingly, and there is no reason why undistributed earnings should not be considered individual income as well. The fact that total corporate income is first taxed and then distributed as dividend income to be taxed again 
encourages a further distortion of market investment and organization, for this practice encourages stockholders to leave a greater proportion of their earnings undistributed than they would have done in a free market. Earnings are frozen in and either held or invested in an uneconomic fashion in relation to the satisfaction of consumer wants. To the reply that this at least fosters investment, there are two rejoinders. One, that a distortion in favor of investment is as much a distortion of optimum market allocations as anything else. And two, that not investment is encouraged, but rather frozen investment by owners back into their original firms at the expense of mobile investment. This distorts and renders inefficient the pattern and allocation of investment funds and tends to freeze them in the original firms, discouraging the diffusion of funds to different concerns. Dividends, after all, are not necessarily consumed. They may be reinvested in other firms and other investment opportunities. The corporate income tax greatly hampers the adjustment of the economy to dynamic changes in conditions. 3. Excess Profit Taxation This tax is generally levied on that part of business net income, dubbed excess, which is greater than a base income in a previous period of time. A penalty tax on excess business income directly penalizes efficient adjustment of the economy. The profit drive by entrepreneurs is the motive power that adjusts, estimates, and coordinates the economic system so as to maximize producer income in the service of maximizing consumer satisfactions. It is the process by which malinvestments are kept to a minimum and good forecasts encouraged, so as to arrange advance production to be in close harmony with consumer desires at the date when the final product appears on the market. Attacking profits doubly disrupts and hampers the whole market adjustment process. Such a tax penalizes efficient entrepreneurship. Furthermore, it helps to freeze market patterns and entrepreneurial positions as they were in some previous time period, thus distorting the economy more and more as time passes. No economic justification can be found for attempting to freeze market patterns in the mold of some previous period. The greater the changes in economic data that have occurred, the more important it is not to tax excess profits, or any form of excess revenue for that matter. Otherwise, adaptation to the new conditions will be blocked, just when rapid adjustment is particularly required. It is difficult to find a tax more indefensible from more points of view than this one. 4. The Capital Gains Problem Much discussion has raged over the question, are capital gains income? It seems evident that they are. Indeed, capital gain is one of the leading forms of income. 
In fact, capital gain is the same as profit. Those who desire uniformity of income pattern taxation would therefore have to include capital gains if all forms of monetary profit are to be brought into the category of taxable income. It must not be inferred that the present author is an advocate of uniform taxation. Uniformity, in fact, will be sharply criticized as an ideal impossible of attainment. An ethical goal absolutely impossible of attainment is an absurd goal. To this extent, we may engage not in ethical exhortation, but in praxeological criticism of the possibility of realizing certain ethical goals. However, it is analytically more convenient to treat various types of income taxation in relation to uniform treatment of all income. Using as an example the Star Corporation described earlier, let us consider time one to be the period just after the corporation has earned $100,000 net income and just before it decides where to allocate this income. In short, it is at a decision point in time. It has earned a profit of $100,000. For the sake of convenience, we are assuming that this income is pure profit and that interest income has already been disposed of. Only pure profit increases capital value, for in the evenly rotating economy there will be no net savings, and the interest income will just pay for maintaining the capital income structure intact. At time one, its capital value has therefore increased by $100,000. The stockholders have, in the aggregate, earned a capital gain of $100,000, but this is the same as their aggregate profit. Now the Star Corporation keeps $60,000 and distributes $40,000 in dividends, and for the sake of simplicity, we shall assume that the stockholders consume this amount. What is the situation at time two, after this allocation has taken place? In comparison with the situation prevailing originally, say at time zero, we find that the capital value of the Star Corporation has increased by $60,000. This is unquestionably part of the income of the stockholders. Yet, if uniform income taxation is desired, there is no need to levy a tax on it for it was already included in the $100,000 income of the stockholders subject to tax. The stock market always tends toward an accurate reflection of the capital value of a firm. One might think, therefore, that the quoted value of the firm's shares would increase, in the aggregate, by $60,000. In the dynamic world, however, the stock market reflects anticipations of future profit, and therefore its values will diverge from the relatively ex-post accounting of the firm's balance sheet. 
Furthermore, entrepreneurship, in addition to profits and losses, will be reflected in the valuations of the stock market as well as in business enterprises directly. A firm may be making slim profits now, but a far-seeing entrepreneur will purchase stock from more short-sighted ones. A rise in price will net him a capital gain, and this is a reflection of his entrepreneurial wisdom in directing capital. Since it would be impossible administratively to identify the profits of the firm, it would be better from the point of view of uniform income taxation not to tax the business income of corporate stockholders at all, but to tax a stockholder's capital gains instead. Whatever gains the owners reap will be reflected in capital gains on their stock anyway, so that taxation of the business income itself becomes unnecessary. On the other hand, taxation of business income, while exempting capital gains, would exclude from income the entrepreneurial gains reaped on the stock market. In the case of partnerships and single enterprises that are not owned in shares of stock, the business income of the owners would, of course, be taxed directly. Taxation of both business income, that is, profits accruing to stockholders, and capital gains on stock would impose a double tax on efficient entrepreneurs. A genuinely uniform income tax, then, would not tax a stockholder's pro-rata business income at all, but rather the capital gain from his shares of stock. If business profits or capital gains are income subject to tax, then, of course, business losses or capital losses are a negative income, deductible from other income earned by any particular individual. What of the problem of land and housing? Here, the same situation obtains. Landlords earn income annually, and this may be included in their net income as business profits, However, real estate, while not given to stock ownership, also has a flourishing capital market. Land is capitalized, and capital values increase or dwindle on the capital market. It is clear that once again the government has an alternative if it desires to impose uniform personal income taxes. Either it can impose the tax on net profits from real estate, or it can forego this and impose a tax on increases in the capital values of real estate. If it does the former, it will omit the entrepreneurial gains and losses made on the capital market, the regulator and anticipator of investment and demand. If it does both, it imposes a double tax on this form of business. The best solution, once again within the context of a uniform income tax, is to impose a tax on the capital gain minus the capital loss on the land values. 
It must be emphasized that a capital gains tax is truly an income tax only when it is levied on accrued rather than on realized capital gains or losses. In other words, if a man's capital assets have increased during a certain period from 300 ounces of gold to 400 ounces, his income is 100 ounces, whether or not he has sold the asset to take the profit. In any period, his earnings consist not simply in what he may use for spending, The situation is analogous to that of a corporation's undistributed profits, which, as we have seen, must be included in each stockholder's accumulation of income. Taxing realized gains and losses introduces great distortions into the economy. It then becomes highly advantageous to investors never to sell their stock, but to hand it down to future generations. Any sale would require the old owner to pay the capital gains levy accumulated for an entire period. The effect is to freeze an investment in the hands of one person, and particularly of one family, for generations. The result is rigidity in the economy and failure of the hampered market to meet flexibly the continual changes in data that always take place. As time goes on, the distortive effects of the economic rigidity grow worse and worse. Another serious hampering of the capital market results from the fact that once the capital gain is taken or realized, the income tax on this particular gain is actually far higher and not uniform. For the capital gains accrue over a long stretch of time and not simply at the point of sale, but the income tax is based only on each year's realized income. In other words, a man who realizes his gain in a certain year must pay a far bigger tax in that year than would be justified by a tax on his actually acquired income during the year. Suppose, for example, that a man buys a capital asset at 50 and its market value increases by 10 each year until he finally sells it for 90 in four years' time. For three years, his income of 10 goes untaxed, while in the fourth year he is taxed on an income of 40 when his income was only 10. The final tax, therefore, largely becomes one on accumulated capital rather than on income. The incentive for keeping investment rigid, therefore, becomes even greater. There are, of course, grave difficulties in any such tax on accrued capital gains, but, as we shall see, there are many insuperable obstacles to any attempt to impose uniform income taxes. Estimates of market value would pose the greatest problem. Appraisals are always simply conjectures, and there would be no way of knowing that the assessed value was the correct one. Another insuperable difficulty arises from changes in the purchasing power of the monetary unit. 
If the purchasing power has fallen in half, then a change in capital value of an asset from 50 to 100 does not represent a real capital gain. It simply reflects the maintenance of real capital as nominal values double. Clearly, a constant nominal value of capital when other prices and values double would reflect a high capital loss, a halving of real capital value. To reflect gains or losses in income, then, a person's capital gain or loss would have to be corrected for changes in the purchasing power of money. Thus, a fall in purchasing power tends to result in the overstatement of business income, and hence leads to a consumption of capital. But if a man's capital gains or losses must be corrected for changes in the purchasing power of money in order to state his true income for a certain period, what standards can be used for such a correction? For changes in purchasing power cannot be measured. Any index used would be purely arbitrary. Whichever method is adopted, therefore, uniformity in income taxation cannot be achieved because an accurate measurement of income cannot be attained. Another problem in levying a tax on accrued capital gains is that the income is not realized in money directly. Uniform taxation of income in kind, as well as of psychic income, faces insuperable problems, as will be seen. Just as there may be taxes on the imputed monetary equivalence of income in kind, however, there may also be taxes on accrued capital gains. Thus, to the controversial question, are capital gains income? The answer is emphatically yes, provided that 1. A correction is made for changes in the purchasing power of the monetary unit, and 2. The accrued, rather than the realized, capital gain is considered. In fact, whenever businesses are owned by stockholders and bondholders, the gains on these stocks and bonds will provide a fuller guide to income earned than the actual net income of the firm. If it is desired to tax incomes uniformly, then taxes would have to be levied on the former only. To tax both would be to level a double tax on the same income. Professor Harold M. Groves, while agreeing that capital gains are income, lists several reasons for giving capital gains preferential treatment. Almost all of them apply, however, to taxation on realized rather than on accrued capital gains. The only relevant case is the familiar one that capital gains and losses are not regularly recurrent as are most other incomes. But no income is regularly recurrent. Profits and losses, of course, are volatile, being based on speculative entrepreneurship and adjustments to changing conditions. Yet no one contends that profits are not income. All other income is flexible as well. 
no one has a guaranteed income on the free market. Everyone's resources are subject to change as conditions and the data of the market change. That the division between income and capital gains is illusory is demonstrated by the confusion over the classification of authors' incomes. Is the income in one year resulting from five years' writing of a book income or an increase in the capital worth of the author? It should be evident that this entire distinction is valueless. Irregular income poses the same problem as irregular realized capital gain. The difficulty can be met in both cases by the suggested solution of averaging income over several years and paying taxes annually on the average. Capital gains are profits and the real value of aggregate capital gains in society will equal total aggregate profits. A profit increases the capital worth of the owner, whereas a loss decreases it. Moreover, there are no other sources from which real capital gains can come. What of the savings of individuals? Individual savings, to the extent that they do not add to cash balances, go into investments. These purchases of capital lead to capital gains for stockholders. Aggregate savings lead to aggregate capital gains. But it is also true that profits can exist in the aggregate only when there is aggregate net saving in the economy. Thus, aggregate pure profits, aggregate capital gains, and aggregate net savings all go hand-in-hand in, hand in the economy. Net dissavings lead to aggregate pure losses and aggregate capital losses. To sum up, if it is desired to tax uniformly, this goal will be analyzed critically later, the correct procedure would be to consider capital gains as equivalent to income when corrected for changes in the purchasing power of the monetary unit and to consider capital losses as negative income. Some critics charge that it would be discriminatory to correct capital for changes in prices without doing the same for income. But this objection misses the point. If the desire is to tax income rather than accumulated capital, it is necessary to correct for changes in the purchasing power of money. For example, capital rather than pure income is being taxed during an inflation. 5. Is a tax on consumption possible? We have seen that attempts to tax consumption via sales and excise taxes are vain, and that they inexorably result in a tax on incomes. Irving Fisher has suggested an ingenious plan for a consumption tax, a direct tax on the individual akin to the income tax, requiring annual returns, etc., the base for the individual's tax, however, would be his income minus net additions to his capital or cash balance plus net subtractions from that capital for the period, 
that is, his consumption spending. The individual's consumption spending would then be taxed in the same way as his income is now. We have seen the fallacy in the Fisher argument that only a tax on consumption would be a true income tax, and that the ordinary income tax constitutes a double tax on savings. This argument places greater weight on savings than the market does, since the market knows all about the fructifying power of saving and allocates its expenditures accordingly. The problem we have to face here is this. Would such a tax as Fisher proposes actually have the intended effect? Would it tax consumption only? Let us consider a Mr. Jones with a yearly income of 100 gold ounces. During the year, he spends 90% or 90 ounces on consumption and saves 10% or 10 ounces. If the government imposes a 20% income tax upon him, he must pay 20 ounces at the end of the year. Assuming that his time preference schedule remains the same, and setting aside the fact that there will be an increased proportion spent on consumption because an individual with fewer money assets has a higher time preference rate, the ratio of his consumption to investment will still be 90 to 10. Jones will now spend 72 ounces on consumption and 8 on investment. Now suppose that instead of an income tax, the government levies a 20% annual tax on consumption. Fisher maintained that such a tax would be levied only on consumption. But this is incorrect, since savings investment is based solely on the possibility of future consumption. Since future consumption will also be taxed in equilibrium at the same rate as present consumption, it is evident that saving does not receive any special encouragement. Neither does hoarding receive any special encouragement, since hoarding must finally eventuate in consumption. It is true that keeping cash balances itself yields a benefit, but the basis for such balances is always the prospect of future consumption. Even if it were desirable for the government to encourage saving at the expense of consumption, taxing consumption would not do so. Since future and present consumption will be taxed equally, there will be no shift in favor of savings. In fact, there will be a shift in favor of consumption to the extent that a diminished amount of money causes an increase in the rate of preference for present goods. Setting aside this shift, his loss of funds will cause him to reallocate and reduce his savings as well as his consumption. Any payment of funds to the government necessarily reduces the net income remaining to him, and since his time preference remains the same, he reduces his savings and his consumption proportionately. It will help to see how this works arithmetically. We may use the following simple equation to sum up Jones' position. 
net income equals gross income minus tax. Consumption equals 90% of net income. Tax equals 20% of consumption. With gross income equal to 100, and solving for these three equations, we get this result. Net income equals 85, tax equals 15, consumption equals 76. We may now sum up what happened to Jones under an income tax and under a consumption tax. Under a 20% income tax, Jones' gross income was 100. His tax was 20. His net income was 80. His consumption was 72. And his savings investment was 8. Under a 20% consumption tax, Jones' gross income was 100. His tax was 15. His net income was 85. His consumption was 76, and his savings investment was 9. We thus see this important truth. A consumption tax is always shifted so as to become an income tax, though at a lower rate. In fact, the 20% consumption tax becomes equivalent to a 15% income tax, this is a very important argument against the plan. Fisher's attempt to tax consumption alone must fail. The tax is shifted by the individual until it becomes an income tax, albeit at a lower rate than the equivalent income tax. Thus, the rather startling conclusion is reached in our analysis that there can be no tax on consumption alone. All consumption taxes resolve themselves in one way or another into taxes on incomes. Of course, as is true of the direct consumption tax, the effect of the rate is discounted. And here, perhaps, lies a clue to the relative predilection that free market economists have shown toward consumption taxes. Their charm, in the final analysis, consists in the discounting in the fact that the same rate in a consumption tax has the effect of a lower rate of income tax. The tax burden on society and the market is lower. In the same way, the charm of the sales tax lies in the fact that it cannot be progressive, thus reducing the burden of income taxation on the upper groups. This reduction of the tax burden may be a very commendable objective, but it should be stated as such, and it should be realized that the problem lies not so much in the type of tax levied as in the overall burden of taxes on individuals in the society. We must now modify our conclusions by admitting the case of dishoarding or dissaving, which we had ruled out of the discussion. To the extent that dishoarding occurs, consumption is tapped rather than income, for the dissaver consumes out of previously accumulated wealth and not out of current income. The Fisher tax would thus tap spending out of accumulated wealth, which would remain untaxed by ordinary income taxation. 
4. The Incidents and Effects of Taxation Part 2. Taxes on Accumulated Capital In a sense, all taxes are taxes on capital. In order to pay a tax, a man must save the money. This is a universal rule. If the saving took place in advance, then the tax reduces the capital invested in the society. If the saving did not take place in advance, then we may say that the tax reduced potential saving. Potential saving is hardly the same as accumulated capital, however, and we may therefore consider a tax on current income as separate from a tax on capital. Even if the individual were forced to save to pay the tax, the saving is current, just as the income is current, and therefore we may make the distinction between taxes on current saving and current incomes and taxes on accumulated capital from past periods. In fact, since there can be no consumption taxes except where there is dis-saving, Almost all taxes resolve themselves into income taxes or taxes on accumulated capital. We have already analyzed the effect of an income tax. We come now to taxes on accumulated capital. Here we encounter a genuine case of double taxation. When current savings are taxed, the charge of double taxation is a dubious one, since people are allocating their newly produced current income. Accumulated capital, on the contrary, is our heritage from the past. It is the accumulation of tools and equipment and resources from which our present and future standard of living derive. To tax this capital is to reduce the stock of capital, especially to discourage replacements as well as new accumulations, and to impoverish society in the future. It may well happen that time preferences on the market will dictate voluntary capital consumption. In that case, people will deliberately choose to impoverish themselves in the future so as to live better in the present. But when the government compels such a result, the distortion of market choices is particularly severe, for the standard of living of everyone in the society will be absolutely lowered and this includes perhaps some of the tax consumers, the government officials and the other recipients of tax privilege. Instead of living off present productive income, the government and its favorites are now dipping into the accumulated capital of society, thereby killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Taxation of capital, therefore, differs considerably from income taxation. Here, the type matters, as well as the level. A 20% tax on accumulated capital will have a far more devastating, distorting, and impoverishing effect than a 20% tax on income. A. Taxation on Gratuitous Transfers Bequests and Gifts The receipt of gifts has often been considered simple income. 
It should be obvious, however, that the recipient produced nothing in exchange for the money received. In fact, it is not an income from current production at all, but a transfer of ownership of accumulated capital. Any tax on the receipt of gifts, then, is a tax on capital. This is particularly true of inheritances, where the aggregation of capital is shifted to an heir, and the gift clearly does not come from current income. An inheritance tax, therefore, is a pure tax on capital. Its impact is particularly devastating because a large sums will be involved, since at some point within a few generations, every piece of property must pass to heirs. And b the prospect of an inheritance tax destroys the incentive and the power to save and build up a family competence. The inheritance tax is perhaps the most devastating example of a pure tax on capital. A tax on gifts and bequests has the further effect of penalizing charity and the preservation of family ties. It is ironic that some of those most ardent in advocating taxation of gifts and bequests are the first to assert that there would never be enough charity were the free market left to its own devices. B. Property taxation. A property tax is a tax levied on the value of property and hence on accumulated capital. There are many problems peculiar to property taxation. In the first place, the tax depends on an assessment of the value of property, and the rate of tax is applied to this assessed value. But since an actual sale of property has usually not taken place, there is no way for assessments to be made accurately. Since all assessments are arbitrary, the road is open for favoritism, collusion, and bribery in making them. Another weakness of current property taxation is that it taxes doubly both real and intangible property. The property tax adds real and intangible property assessments together. Thus, the bondholder's equity in property is added to the amount of the debtor's liability. Property under debt is therefore doubly taxed as against other property. If A and B each own a piece of property worth ten thousand dollars, but C also holds a bond worth six thousand dollars on B's property. The latter is assessed at a total of sixteen thousand dollars and taxed accordingly. Thus, the use of the credit system is penalized, and the rate of interest paid to creditors must be raised to allow for the extra penalty. One peculiarity of the property tax is that it attaches to the property itself rather than to the person who owns it. As a result, the tax is shifted on the market in a special way, known as tax capitalization. Suppose, for example, that the social time preference rate, or pure rate of interest, is five percent. 
5% is earned on all investments in equilibrium, and the rate tends to 5% as equilibrium is reached. Suppose a property tax is levied on one particular property or set of properties, for example, on a house worth $10,000. Before this tax was imposed, the owner earned $500 annually on the property. An annual tax of 1% is now levied, forcing the owner to pay $100 per year to the government. What will happen now? As it stands, the owner will earn $400 per year on his investment. The net return on the investment will now be 4%. Clearly, no one will continue to invest at 4% in this property when he can earn 5% elsewhere. What will happen? The owner will not be able to shift his tax forward by raising the rental value of the property. The property's earnings are determined by its discounted marginal value productivity, and the tax on the property does not increase its merits or earning power. In fact, the reverse occurs. The tax lowers the capital value of the property to enable owners to earn a 5% return. The market drive toward uniformity of interest return pushes the capital value of the property down to enable a return on investment. The capital value of the property will fall to $8,333, so that future returns will be 5%. The final capital value is not $8,000, since the property tax is levied at 1% of the final value. The tax does not remain at 1% of the original capital value of $10,000. The capital value will fall to $8,333. Property tax payment will be $83.00. Net annual return will be $417, and an annual rate of return of 5% on the capital of $8,333. In the long run, this process of reducing capital value is imputed backward, falling mainly on the owners of ground land. Suppose a property tax is levied on a capital good or a set of capital goods. Income to a capital good is resolvable into wages, interest, profit, and rental to ground land. A lower capital value of capital goods would shift resources elsewhere. Workers, confronted with lower wages in producing this particular good, would shift to a better-paying job capitalists would invest in a more remunerative field, and so forth. As a result, workers and entrepreneurs would largely be able to slough off the burden of the property tax, the former suffering to the extent that their original DMVP was higher here than in the next highest-paying occupations. Consumers would, of course, suffer from a coerced misallocation of resources. The man bearing the major burden, then, is the owner of ground land. 
Therefore, the process of tax capitalization applies most fully to a property tax upon ground land. The incidence falls on the owner of the original ground land, that is, the owner at the time the tax is first imposed. For not only does the landlord pay the annual tax, a tax he cannot shift, so long as he is the owner, but he also suffers a loss in capital value. If Mr. Smith is the owner of the property, not only does he pay $83 per year in taxes, but the capital value of his property also falls from $10,000 to $8,333. Smith openly absorbs the loss when he sells the property. What, however, of the succeeding owners? They buy the property at $8,333 and earn a steady 5% interest, although they continue to pay $83 a year to the government. The expectation of the tax payment attached to the property, therefore, has been capitalized by the market and taken into account in arriving at its capital value. As a result, the future owners are able to shift the entire incidence of the property tax to the original owner. They do not really pay the tax in the sense that they bear its burden. Tax capitalization is an instance of a process by which the market adjusts to burdens placed upon it. Those whom the government wanted to pay the burden can avoid doing so because of the market's resilience in adjusting to new impositions. The original owners of ground land, however, are especially burdened by a property tax. Some writers argue that where tax capitalization has taken place, it would be unjust for the government to lower or remove the tax, because such an action would grant a free gift to the current owners of property, who will receive a counterbalancing increase in its capital value. This is a curious argument. It rests on a fallacious identification of the removal of a burden with a subsidy. The former, however, is a move toward free market conditions, whereas the latter is a move away from such conditions. Furthermore, the property tax, while not burdening future owners, depresses the capital value of the property below what it would be on the free market, and therefore discourages the employment of resources in this property. Removal of the property tax would reallocate resources to the advantage of the consumers. Tax capitalization and its incidence on owners of ground land occur only where the property tax is partial rather than universal, on some pieces of property rather than all. A truly general property tax will reduce the rate of income earned from all investments, and thereby reduce the rate of interest instead of the capital value. In that case, the interest return of both the original owner and later owners is reduced equally, and there is no extra burden on the original owner. 
A general uniform property tax on all property values, then, will, like an income tax, reduce the interest return throughout the economy. This will penalize saving, thereby reducing capital investment below what it would have been and depressing real wage rates further below their free market level. Finally, a property tax necessarily distorts the allocation of resources in production. It penalizes those lines of production in which capital equipment per sales dollar is large and causes resources to shift from these to less capitalistic fields. Thus, investment in higher-order productive processes is discouraged and the standard of living lowered. Individuals will invest less in housing, which bears a relatively heavy property tax burden, and shift instead to less durable consumers' goods, thus distorting production and injuring consumer satisfaction. In practice, the property tax tends to be uneven from one line and location to another. Of course, geographic differences in property taxation, in impelling resources to escape heavy tax rates, will distort the location of production by driving it from those areas that would maximize consumer satisfaction. This distortion of location would result from all other forms of taxes as well. Thus, a higher income tax rate in Region A than in Region B would induce workers to shift from A to B in order to equalize net wage rates after taxes. The location of production is distorted as compared with the free market. C. A Tax on Individual Wealth Although a tax on individual wealth has not been tried in practice, it offers an interesting topic for analysis. Such a tax would be imposed on individuals instead of on their property and would levy a certain percentage of their total net wealth, excluding liabilities. In its directness, it would be similar to the income tax and to Fisher's proposed consumption tax. A tax of this kind would constitute a pure tax on capital and would include in its grasp cash balances which escape property taxation. It would avoid many difficulties of a property tax, such as double taxation of real and tangible property and the inclusion of debts as property. However, it would still face the impossibility of accurately assessing property values. A tax on individual wealth could not be capitalized, since the tax would not be attached to a property where it could be discounted by the market. Like an individual income tax, it could not be shifted, although it would have important effects. Since the tax would be paid out of regular income, it would have the effect of an income tax in reducing private funds and penalizing savings investment, but it would also have the further effect of taxing accumulated capital.
How much accumulated capital would be taken by the tax depends on the concrete data and the valuations of the specific individuals. Let us postulate, for example, two individuals, Smith and Robinson. Each has an accumulated wealth of $100,000. Smith, however, also earns $50,000 a year. And Robinson, because of retirement or other reasons, earns only $1,000 a year. Suppose the government levies a 10% annual tax on an individual's wealth. Smith might be able to pay the $10,000 a year out of his regular income without reducing his accumulated wealth, although it seems clear that since his tax liability is reduced thereby, he will want to reduce his wealth as much as possible. Robinson, on the other hand, must pay the tax by selling his assets, thereby reducing his accumulated wealth. It is clear that the wealth tax levies a heavy penalty on accumulated wealth and that, therefore, the effect of the tax will be to slash accumulated capital. No quicker route could be found to promote capital consumption and general impoverishment than to penalize the accumulation of capital. Only our heritage of accumulated capital differentiates our civilization and living standards from those of primitive men, and a tax on wealth would speedily work to eliminate this difference. The fact that a wealth tax could not be capitalized means that the market could not, as in the case of the property tax, reduce and cushion its effect after the impact of the initial blow. 5. The Incidents and Effects of Taxation Part 3. The Progressive Tax Of all the patterns of tax distribution, the progressive tax has generated the most controversy. In the case of the progressive tax, the conservative economists who oppose it have taken the offensive— for even its advocates must grudgingly admit that the progressive tax lowers incentives and productivity. Hence, the most ardent champions of the progressive tax on equity grounds admit that the degree and intensity of progression must be limited by considerations of productivity. The major criticisms that have been levied against progressive taxation are a. It reduces the savings of the community, b. It reduces the incentive to work and earn, and c. It constitutes robbery of the rich by the poor. To evaluate these criticisms, let us turn to an analysis of the effects of the progression principle. The progressive tax imposes a higher rate of taxation on a man earning more. In other words, it acts as a penalty on service to the consumer, on merit in the market. Incomes in the market are determined by service to the consumer in producing and allocating factors of production, and vary directly according to the extent of such services. To impose penalties on the very people who have served the consumers most is to injure not only them, but the consumers as well. 
A progressive tax is therefore bound to cripple incentives, impair mobility of occupation, and greatly hamper the flexibility of the market in serving the consumers. It will consequently lower the general standard of living. The ultimate of progression, coercively equalized incomes, will, as we have seen, cause a reversion to barbarism. There is also no question that progressive income taxation will reduce incentives to save, because people will not earn the return on investment consonant with their time preferences. Their earnings will be taxed away. Since people will earn far less than their time preferences would warrant, their savings will be depressed far below what they would be on the free market. Thus, conservatives' charges that the progressive tax reduces incentives to work and save are correct, and, in fact, are usually understated, because there is not sufficient realization that these effects stem a priori from the very nature of progression itself. It should not be forgotten, however, that proportional taxation will induce many of the same effects, as, in fact, will any tax that goes beyond equality or the cost principle. For proportional taxation also penalizes the able and the saver. It is true that proportional taxation will not have many of the crippling effects of progression, such as the progressive hampering of effort from one income bracket to another, but proportional taxation also imposes heavier burdens as the income brackets rise, and these also hamper earning and saving. A second argument against the progressive income tax, and one which is perhaps the most widely used, is that by taxing the incomes of the wealthy, it reduces savings in particular, thus injuring society as a whole. This argument is predicated on the usually plausible assumption that the rich save more proportionately than the poor. Yet, as we have indicated, this is an extremely weak argument, particularly for partisans of the free market. It is legitimate to criticize a measure for forcing deviations from free market allocations to arbitrary ones, but it can hardly be legitimate simply to criticize a measure for reducing savings per se. For why does consumption possess less merit than saving? Allocation between them on the market is simply a matter of time preference. This means that any coerced deviation from the market ratio of saving to consumption imposes a loss in utility, and this is true whichever direction the deviation takes. A government measure that might induce more saving and less consumption is then no less subject to criticism than one that would lead to more consumption and less saving. To say differently is to criticize free market choices and, implicitly, to advocate governmental measures to force more savings upon the public. If they were consistent, therefore, these conservative economists would have to advocate taxation of the poor to subsidize the rich, 
for in that case, savings would presumably increase and consumption diminish. The third objection is a political-ethical one, that the poor rob the rich. The implication is that the poor man who pays 1% of his income in taxes is robbing the rich man who pays 80%. Without judging the merits or demerits of robbery, we may say that this is invalid. Both citizens are being robbed by the state. That one is robbed in greater proportion does not eliminate the fact that both are being injured. It may be objected that the poor receive a net subsidy out of the tax proceeds because the government spends money to serve the poor. Yet this is not a valid argument, for the actual act of robbery is committed by the state and not by the poor. Secondly, the state may spend its money, as we shall see, on many different projects. It may consume products, it may subsidize some or all of the rich, it may subsidize some or all of the poor. The fact of progressive income taxation does not itself imply that the poor en masse will be subsidized. If some of the poor are subsidized, others may not be, and these latter will still be net tax payers rather than tax consumers, and will be robbed along with the rich. The extent of this deprivation will be less for a poor taxpayer than for a rich one, and yet, since usually there are far more poor than rich, the poor en masse may very well bear the greatest burden of the tax robbery. In contrast, the state bureaucracy, as we have seen, actually pays no taxes at all. This misconception of the incidence of robbery and the defective argument on savings, among other reasons, have led most conservative economists and writers to overemphasize greatly the importance of the progressiveness of taxation. Actually, the level of taxation is far more important than its progressiveness in determining the distance that a society has traveled from a free market. An example will clarify the relative importance of the two. Let us contrast two people and see how they fare under two different tax systems. Smith makes $1,000 a year, and Jones makes $20,000 a year. In Society A, taxation is proportionate for all at 50%. In Society B, taxation is very steeply progressive. Rates are one-half percent for $1,000 income, 20% for $20,000 income. How much money will each pay in taxes in the different societies? Smith, with an income of $1,000, pays $500 in taxes in Society A and $5 in taxes in Society B. Jones, with an income of $20,000, pays $10,000 in taxes in Society A and $4,000 in taxes in Society B. Now we may ask both the rich and the poor taxpayers, under which system of taxation are you better off? 
both the rich man and the poor man will unhesitatingly pick Society B, where the rate structure is far more progressive, but where the level of taxation for every man is lower. Some may object that the total amount of tax levied is far greater in Society A, but this is precisely the point. The point is that what the rich man objects to is not the progressiveness of the rates, but the high level of the rates imposed upon him, and he will prefer progressiveness when rates are lower. This demonstrates that it is not the poor who rob the rich through the progressive principle of taxation. It is the state that robs both through all taxation, and it indicates that what the conservative economists are actually objecting to, whether they fully realize it or not, is not progression, but high levels of taxation and that their real objection to progression is that it opens the sluice gates for high levels of taxation of the rich. Yet this prospect will not always be realized, for it is certainly possible, and has often occurred, that a rate structure is very progressive and yet lower all around, on the high brackets and on the low, than a less progressive structure. As a practical matter, however, progressiveness is necessary for high tax rates because the multitude of lower-income citizens might revolt against very steep tax rates if they were imposed on all equally. On the other hand, many people may accept a high tax burden if they are secure in the knowledge or belief that the rich pay a still higher rate. We have seen that coerced egalitarianism will cause a reversion to barbarism, and that steps in that direction will result in dislocations of the market and a lowering of living standards. Many economists, notably the members of the Chicago School, believe that they champion the free market, and yet they do not consider taxation as connected with the market or as an intervention in the market process. These writers strongly believe that on the market every individual should earn the profits and marginal value productivity that the consumers wish to pay in order to achieve a satisfactory allocation of productive factors. Nevertheless, they see no inconsistency in then advocating drastic taxation and subsidies. They believe that these can alter the distribution of incomes without lowering the efficiency of productive allocations. In this way, they rely on an equivalent of Keynesian money illusion a tax illusion, a belief that individuals will arrange their activities according to their gross rather than net, after-tax income. This is a palpable error. There is no reason why people should not be tax-conscious and allocate their resources and energies accordingly. Altering relative rewards by taxation will disrupt all the allocations of the market, the movement of labor, the alertness of entrepreneurship, etc. 
The market is a vast nexus with all strands interconnected, and it must be analyzed as such. The prevailing fashion in economics of chopping up the market into isolated compartments, the firm, a few macroscopic holistic aggregates, market exchanges, taxation, etc., distorts the discussion of each one of these compartments and fails to present a true picture of the interrelations of the market. 6. The Incidents and Effects of Taxation Part 4. The Single Tax on Ground Rent We have refuted elsewhere the various arguments that form part of the Henry Georgist edifice, the idea that society owns the land originally and that every new baby has a right to an aliquot part. The moral argument that an increase in the value of ground land is an unearned increment due to external causes, and the doctrine that speculation in sites wickedly withholds productive land from use. Here we shall analyze the famous Georgist proposal itself, the single tax or the 100% expropriation of ground rent. One of the first things to be said about the Georgist theory is that it calls attention to an important problem, the land question. Current economics tends to treat land as part of capital and to deny the existence of a separate land category at all. In such an environment, the Georgist thesis serves to call attention to a neglected problem, even though every one of its doctrines is fallacious. Much of the discussion of ground-rent taxation has been confused by the undoubted stimulus to production that would result not from this tax, but from the elimination of all other forms of taxation. George waxed eloquent over the harmful effect taxation has upon production and exchange, However, these effects can as easily be removed by eliminating taxation altogether as by shifting all taxes onto ground rent. George virtually admitted as much. As he wrote in Progress and Poverty, to abolish the taxation which, acting and reacting, now hampers every wheel of exchange and presses upon every form of industry, would be like removing an immense weight from a powerful spring. Imbued with fresh energy, production would start into new life, and trade would receive a stimulus which would be felt to the remotest arteries. The present method of taxation operates upon energy and industry and skill and thrift like a fine upon those qualities. If I have worked harder and built myself a good house while you have been contented to live in a hovel, the tax-gatherer now comes annually to make me pay a penalty for my energy and my industry by taxing me more than you. If I have saved while you wasted, I am mulked while you are exempt. We say we want capital, but if anyone accumulate it or bring it among us, we charge him for it as though we were giving a privilege. 
To abolish these taxes would be to lift the enormous weight of taxation from productive industry. Instead of saying to the producer, as it does now, the more you add to the general wealth, the more shall you be taxed. The state would say to the producer, be as industrious, as thrifty, as enterprising as you choose. You shall have your full reward. You shall not be taxed for adding to the aggregate wealth. In fact, it will be here demonstrated that taxation of ground rent also hampers and distorts production. Whatever beneficial effects the single tax might have on production would flow only from the elimination of other taxes, not from the imposition of this one. The two acts must be kept conceptually distinct. A tax on ground rent would have the effect of a property tax as described earlier. That is, it could not be shifted, and it would be capitalized, with the initial burden falling on the original owner, and later owners escaping any burden because of the fall in the capital value of the ground land. The Georgists proposed to place a 100% annual tax on ground rents alone. One critical problem that the single tax could not meet is the difficulty of estimating ground rents. The essence of the single tax scheme is to tax ground rent only and to leave all capital goods free from tax. But it is impossible to make this division. Georgists have dismissed this difficulty as merely a practical one, but it is a theoretical flaw as well. As is true of any property tax, it is impossible accurately to assess value because the property has not been actually sold on the market during the period. Ground land taxation faces a further problem that cannot be solved how to distinguish quantitatively between that portion of the gross rent of a land area which goes to ground land and that portion which goes to interest and to wages. Since land in use is often amalgamated with capital investment and the two are bought and sold together, this distinction between them cannot be made. But the Georgist theory faces even graver difficulties, for its proponents contend that the positive virtue of the tax consists in spurring production. They point out to hostile critics that the single tax, if it could be accurately levied, would not discourage capital improvements and maintenance of landed property. But then they proceed to argue that the single tax would force idle land into use. This is supposed to be one of the great merits of the tax. Yet, if land is idle, it earns no gross rent whatever. If it earns no gross rent, then obviously it earns no net rent as ground land. Idle land earns no rent, and therefore earns no ground rent that could be taxed. It would bear no taxes under a consistent operation of the Georgist scheme. Since it would not be taxed, it could not be forced into use.
The only logical explanation for this error by the Georgists is that they concentrate on the fact that much idle land has a capital value, that it sells for a price on the market, even though it earns no rents in current use. From the fact that idle land has a capital value, the Georgists apparently deduce that it must have some sort of true annual ground rent. This assumption is incorrect, however, and rests on one of the weakest parts of the Georgists' system, its deficient attention to the role of time. George himself can hardly be blamed for the weak treatment of time, for he could draw only on the classical economic theories, which had the same defect. In fact, compared with the classical school, George made advances in many areas of economic theory. The Austrian school, with its definitive analysis of time, was barely beginning when George framed his theory. There is less excuse for George's modern followers, who have largely ignored all advances in economics since 1880. The fact that currently idle land has a capital value means simply that the market expects it to earn rent in the future. The capital value of ground land, as of anything else, is equal to and determined by the sum of expected future rents, discounted by the rate of interest. But these are not presently earned rents. Therefore, any taxation of idle land violates the Georgists' own principle of a single tax on ground rent. It goes beyond this limit to penalize land ownership further and to tax accumulated capital, which has to be drawn down in order to pay the tax. Any increase in the capital value of idle land, then, does not reflect a current rent. It merely reflects an upgrading of people's expectations about future rents. Suppose, for example, that future rents from an idle site are such that, if known to all, the present capital value of the site would be $10,000. Suppose further that these facts are not generally known, and therefore that the ruling price is $8,000. Jones, being a far-sighted entrepreneur, correctly judges the situation and purchases the site for $8,000. If everyone soon realizes what Jones has foreseen, the market price will now rise to $10,000. Jones' capital gain of $2,000 is the profit to his superior judgment, not earnings from current rent. The Georgist bogey is idle land. The fact that land is idle, they assert, is caused by land speculation, and to this land speculation they attribute almost all the ills of civilization, including business cycle depressions. The Georgists do not realize that since labor is scarce in relation to land, submarginal land must remain idle. The sight of idle land enrages the Georgist, who sees productive capacity being wasted and living standards reduced. 
Idle land should, however, be recognized as beneficial, for if land were ever fully used, this would mean that labor had become abundant in relation to land, and that the world had at last entered on the terrible overpopulation stage in which some labor has to remain idle because no employment is available. The present writer used to wonder about the curious Georgist preoccupation with idle or withheld ground land as the cause of most economic ills, until he found a clue in a revealing passage of a Georgist work. Poor countries do not lack capital. Most of us have learned to believe that the people of India, China, Mexico, and other so-called backward nations are poor because they lack capital. Since, as we have seen, capital is nothing more than wealth, and wealth nothing more than human energy combined with land in one form or another, the absence of capital too often suggests that there is a shortage of land or of labor in backward countries like India and China. But that isn't true, for these poor countries have many times more land and labor than they use. Undeniably, they have everything it takes, both land and labor, to produce as much capital as people anywhere. And so, since these poor countries have plenty of land and labor, it follows that landlords must be withholding land from use. Only this could explain the low living standards. Here, a crucial Georgist fallacy is exposed clearly. Ignorance of the true role of time in production. It takes time to save and invest and build up capital goods, and these capital goods embody a shortening of the ultimate time period needed to acquire consumers' goods. India and China are short of capital because they are short of time. They start from a low level of capital, and therefore it would take them a long time to reach a high capital level through their own savings. Once again, the Georgist difficulty stems from the fact that their theory was formulated before the rise of Austrian economics, and that the Georgists have never re-evaluated their doctrine in the light of this development. As we have indicated earlier, land speculation performs a useful social function. It puts land into the hands of the most knowledgeable and develops land at the rate desired by the consumers. And good sites will not be kept idle, thus incurring a loss of ground rent to the site owner unless the owner expects a better use to be imminently available. The allocation of sites to their most value-productive uses, therefore, requires all the virtues of any type of entrepreneurship on the market. As Frank Knight puts it, men do hold land speculatively for an expected increase in value. This is a social service, tending to put ownership in the hands of those who know best how to handle the land, so that the value will increase. 
They obviously do not need to keep it idle to get the increase, and do not if there is a clear opening for remunerative use. If land having value for use is not used by an owner, it is because of uncertainty as to how it should be used, and waiting for the situation to clear up or develop. An owner naturally does not wish to make a heavy investment in fitting a plot for use which does not promise amortization before some new situation may require a different plan. One of the most surprising deficiencies in the literature of economics is the lack of effective criticism of the Georgist theory. Economists have either temporized, misconceived the problem, or, in many cases, granted the economic merit of the theory, but caviled at its political implications or its practical difficulties. Such gentle treatment has contributed greatly to the persistent longevity of the Georgist movement. One reason for this weakness in the criticism of the doctrine is that most economists have conceded a crucial point of the Georgists, namely that a tax on ground rent would not discourage production and would have no harmful or distorting economic effects. Granting the economic merits of the tax, criticism of it must fall back on other political or practical considerations. Many writers, while balking at the difficulties in the full single-tax program, have advocated the 100% taxation of future increments in ground rent. Georgists have properly treated such halfway measures with scorn, once the opposition concedes the economic harmlessness of a ground-rent tax, its other doubts must seem relatively minor. The crucial economic problem of the single tax, then, is this. Will a tax on ground-rent have distortive and hampering effects? Is it true that the owner of ground land performs no productive service, and therefore that a tax upon him does not hamper and distort production? Ground rent has been called economic surplus, which would be taxed up to any amount with no side effects. Many economists have tacitly agreed with this conclusion and have agreed that a landowner can perform a productive service only as an improver, that is, as a producer of capital goods on land. Yet this central Georgist contention overlooks the realities. The owner of ground land performs a very important productive service, he brings sites into use and allocates them to the most value-productive bidders. We must not be misled by the fact that the physical stock of land is fixed at any given time. In the case of land, as of other goods, it is not just the physical good that is sold, but a whole bundle of services along with it among which is the service of transferring ownership from seller to buyer. Ground land does not simply exist. It must be served to the user by the owner. One man can perform both functions when the land is vertically integrated. 
As Spencer Heath put it, land itself does not service civilized men any more than food itself does. Both are served to them. The landowner earns the highest ground rents by allocating land sites to their most value-productive uses, that is, to those uses most desired by consumers. In particular, we must not overlook the importance of location and the productive service of the site owner in ensuring the most productive locations for each particular use. The view that bringing sites into use and deciding on their location is not really productive is a vestige of the old classical view that a service which does not tangibly create something physical is not really productive. As Spencer Heath states, Wherever the services of landowners are concerned, Henry George is firm in his dictum that all values are physical. In the exchange services performed by landowners, their social distribution of sites and resources, no physical production is involved. Hence, he is unable to see that they are entitled to any share in the distribution for their non-coercive distributive or exchange services. He rules out all creation of values by the services performed in land distribution by free contract and exchange, which is the sole alternative to either a violent and disorderly or an arbitrary and tyrannical distribution of land. Actually, this function is just as productive as any other, and a particularly vital function it is. To hamper and destroy this function would have grave effects on the economy. Suppose that the government did in fact levy a 100% tax on ground rent. What would be the economic effects? The current owners of ground land would be expropriated, and the capital value of ground land would fall to zero. Since site owners could not obtain rents, the sites would become valueless on the market. From then on, sites would be free, and the site owner would have to pay his annual ground rent into the treasury. But since all ground rent is siphoned off to the government, there is no reason for owners to charge any rent. Ground rent will fall to zero as well and rentals will thus be free. So, one economic effect of the single tax is that, far from supplying all the revenue of government, it would yield no revenue at all. The single tax, then, makes sites free when they are actually not free and unlimited, but scarce. Any good is always scarce, and therefore must always command a price in accordance with the demand for it and the supply available. The only free goods on the market are not goods at all, but abundant conditions of human welfare that are not the subject of human action. The effect of this tax, then, is to fool the market into believing that sites are free when they are decidedly not. The result will be the same as any case of maximum price control, 
Instead of commanding a high price and therefore being allocated to the highest bidders, the most value-productive sites will be grabbed by first-comers and wasted, since there will be no pressure for the best sites to go into their most efficient uses. People will rush in to demand and use the best sites, while no one will wish to use the less productive ones. On the free market, the less productive sites cost less to the tenant. If they cost no less than the best sites, that is, if they are free, then no one will want to use them. Thus, in a city, the best or most potentially value-productive sites are in the downtown areas, and these consequently earn and charge higher rents than the less productive but still useful sites in the outlying areas. If the Henry George scheme went into effect, there would not only be complete misallocation of sites to less productive uses, but there would also be great overcrowding in the downtown areas, as well as underpopulation and underuse of the outlying areas. If Georgists believe that the single tax would end overcrowding of the downtown areas, they are gravely mistaken for the reverse would occur. Furthermore, suppose the government imposed a tax of more than 100% on ground rents, as the Georgists really envision, so as to force idle land into use. The result would be aggravated wasteful misapplication of labor and capital, since labor is scarce relative to land, the compulsory use of idle land would wastefully misallocate labor and capital, and force more work on poorer land, and therefore less on better land. At any rate, the result of the single tax would be locational chaos, with waste and misallocation everywhere, overcrowding would prevail, and poorer sites would either be overused or underused and abandoned altogether. The general tendency would be toward underuse of the poorer sites, because of the tax-induced rush to the better ones. As under conditions of price control, the use of the better sites would be decided by favoritism, queuing, etc., instead of economic ability. Since location enters into the production of every good, locational chaos would introduce an element of chaos into every area of production, and perhaps ruin economic calculation as well. For an important element to be calculated, location would be removed from the sphere of the market. To this contention, the Georgists would reply that the owners would not be allowed to charge no rents, because the government's army of assessors would set the proper rents. But this would hardly alleviate the problem. In fact, it would aggravate matters in many ways. It might bring in revenue and check some of the excess demand of land users, but it would still provide no reason and no incentive for the land owners to perform their proper function of allocating land sites efficiently. 
In addition, if assessment is difficult and arbitrary at any time, how very much more chaotic would it be when the government must blindly estimate, in the absence of any rent market, the rent for every piece of ground land? This would be a hopeless and impossible task, and the resulting deviations from free market rents would compound the chaos, with over- and under-use and wrong locations. With no vestige of market left, not only would the landowners be deprived of any incentive for efficient allocation of sites, they would have no way of finding out whether their allocations were efficient or not. Finally, this all-around fixing of rents by the government would be tantamount to virtual nationalization of the land, with all the enormous wastes and chaos that afflict any government ownership of business, all the greater in a business that would permeate every nook and cranny of the economy. The Georgists contend that they do not advocate the nationalization of land, since ownership would remain de jure in the hands of private individuals. The returns from this ownership, however, would all accrue to the state. George himself admitted that the single tax would accomplish the same thing as the land nationalization in a simpler, easier, and quieter way. George's method, however, would, as we have seen, be neither simple, easy, nor quiet. The single tax would leave de jure ownership in private hands while completely destroying its point, so that the single tax is hardly an improvement upon, or differs much from, outright nationalization. As Frank Knight puts it, to collect such rent, the government would, in practice, have to compel the owner actually to use the land in the best way, hence to prescribe its use in some detail. Thus, we already see that the advantage of taxation over socialization of management has practically disappeared. Of course, as we shall see further, the state has no incentive or means for efficient allocation either. At any rate, land sites, like any other resources, must be owned and controlled by someone, either a private owner or the government. Sites can be allocated either by voluntary contract or by governmental coercion and the latter is what is attempted by the single tax or by land nationalization. As Spencer Heath puts it, must we suppose that land distributes itself? It can be and often is distributed by the government of a prison camp or by the popularly elected denizens of a city hall. Alternatively, in any free society, its sites and resources must be, and chiefly are, distributed by the process of free contract, in which the title holder is the only possible first party to the contract. From him flows his social service of distribution. The rent is his automatic recompense, set and limited in amount by the free market. 
Frank Knight says of the Georgist dream of every man's unconditional right of access to the soil that, one, everyone actually has this right subject to competitive conditions, that is, that he pay for it what it is worth, and that, two, the only viable alternative would be to get permission from some political agent of government. For any attempt to give every person an unconditional right to access to the soil would establish anarchy, the war of all against all, and is, of course, not approximated by a confiscation and distribution of rent or its employment for social ends. The Georgists believe that ownership or control by the state means that society will own or command the land or its rent. But this is fallacious. Society or the public cannot own anything. Only an individual or a set of individuals can do so. At any rate, in the Georgist scheme, it would not be society, but the state that would own the land. Caught in an inescapable dilemma are a group of anti-statist Georgists who wish to statize ground rent, yet abolish taxation at the same time. Frank Chodorov, a leader of this group, could offer only the lame suggestion that ground land be municipalized rather than nationalized, to avoid the prospect that all of a nation's land might be owned by a central government monopoly. Yet the difference is one of degree, not of kind. The effects of government ownership and regional land monopoly still appear, albeit in a number of small regions instead of one big region. Every element in the Georgist system is thus seen to be fallacious. Yet the Georgist doctrines hold a considerable attraction even now, and, surprisingly, for many economists and social philosophers otherwise devoted to the free market. There is a good reason for this attraction, for the Georgists, though in a completely topsy-turvy manner, do call attention to a neglected problem, the land question. There is a land question, and no attempt to ignore it can meet the issue. Contrary to Georgist doctrine, however, the land problem does not stem from free market ownership of ground land. It stems from failure to live up to a prime condition of free market property rights, namely that new, unowned land be first owned by its first user, and that from then on it become the full private property of the first user or those who receive or buy the land from him. This is the free market method. Any other method of allocating new unused land to ownership employs statist coercion. Under a first-user, first-owner regime, the Georgists would be wrong in asserting that no labor had been mixed with nature-given land to justify private ownership of sites. For then, land could not be owned unless it were first used, and could be originally appropriated for ownership only to the extent that it was so used. 
the mixing of labor with nature may take the form of draining, filling, clearing, paving, or otherwise preparing the site for use. Tilling the soil is only one possible type of use. American homestead legislation, while attempting to establish a first-user, first-owner principle, erred in believing that a certain type of agriculture was the only legitimate use for land. Actually, any productive activity, including grazing or laying railroad tracks, qualifies as use. The use claim to the land could be certified by courts if any dispute over its ownership arose. Certainly the claim of the pioneer as first finder and first user is no more disputable than any other claim to a product of labor. Knight does not overdraw the picture when he charges that the allegation that our pioneers got the land for nothing, robbing future generations of their rightful heritage, should not have to be met by argument. The whole doctrine was invented by city men living in comfort, not by men in contact with the facts as owners or renters. If society were later to confiscate the land value, allowing retention only of improvements or their value, it would ignore the costs in bitter sacrifice and would arbitrarily discriminate between one set of property owners and another set. Problems and difficulties arise whenever the first-user, first-owner principle is not met. In almost all countries, governments have laid claim to ownership of new, unused land. Governments could never own original land on the free market. This act of appropriation by the government already sows the seeds for distortion of market allocations when the land goes into use. Thus, suppose that the government disposes of its unused public lands by selling them at auction to the highest bidder. Since the government has no valid property claim to ownership, neither does the buyer from the government. If the buyer, as often happens, owns but does not use or settle the land, then he becomes a land speculator in a pejorative sense. For the true user, when he comes along, is forced either to rent or buy the land from this speculator, who does not have valid title to the area. He cannot have valid title because his title derives from the state, which also did not have valid title in the free market sense. Therefore, some of the charges that the Georgists have leveled against land speculation are true not because land speculation is bad per se, but because the speculator came to own the land not by valid title, but via the government, which originally arrogated title to itself. So now the purchase price, or alternatively the rent, paid by the would-be user, really does become the payment of a tax for permission to use the land. Governmental sale of unused land becomes similar to the old practice of tax farming, where an individual would pay the state for the privilege of himself collecting taxes. 
the price of payment, if freely fluctuating, tends to be set at the value that this privilege confers. Government sale of its unused land to speculators, therefore, restricts the use of new land, distorts the allocation of resources, and keeps land out of use that would be employed were it not for the tax penalty of paying a purchase price or rent to the speculator. Keeping land out of use raises the marginal value product and the rents of remaining land, and lowers the marginal value product of labor, thereby lowering wage rates. The affinity of rent and taxation is even closer in the case of feudal land grants. Let us postulate a typical case of feudal beginnings. A conquering tribe invades a territory of peasants and sets up a state to rule them. It could levy taxes and support its retinue out of the proceeds, but it could also do something else, and it is important to see that there is no essential difference between the two. It could parcel out all of the land as individual grants of ownership to each member of the conquering band. Then, instead of or in addition to one central taxing agency, there would be a series of regional rent-collecting agencies. But the consequences would be exactly the same. This is clearly seen in Middle Eastern countries, where rulers have been considered to own their territories personally, and have therefore collected taxes in the form of rent charged for that ownership. The subtle gradations linking taxation and feudal rent have been lucidly portrayed by Franz Oppenheimer. The peasant surrenders a portion of the product of his labor without any equivalent service in return. In the beginning was the ground rent. The forms under which the ground rent is collected or consumed vary. In some cases, the lords, as a closed union or community, are settled in some fortified camp and consume as communists the tribute of their peasantry. In some cases, each individual warrior noble has a definite strip of land assigned to him, but generally the produce of this is still, as in Sparta, consumed in the Sicetia by class associates and companions in arms. In some cases, the landed nobility scatters over the entire territory, each man housed with his following in his fortified castle, and consuming, each for himself, the produce of his dominion or lands. As yet, these nobles have not become landlords in the sense that they administer their property. Each of them receives tribute from the labor of his dependents, whom he neither guides nor supervises. This is the type of medieval dominion in the lands of the Germanic nobility. Finally, the knight becomes the owner and administrator of the knight's fee. Of course, there are considerable differences between land speculation by the original buyer from the government and a feudal land grant. In the former case, the user eventually purchases the land from the original buyer, 
and once he does so, the tax has been fully paid and disappears. From that point on, free market allocations prevail. Once land gets into the hands of the user, he has, as it were, bought out the permission tax, and from then on everything proceeds on a free market basis. It must be repeated here that direct users would not be the only ones ever permitted to own land in the free market. The only stipulation is that use be the principle that first brings original, unused land into ownership. Once ownership accrues to a user, then the user can sell the land to a speculator, let it be idle again, etc., without distorting market allocations. The problem is the original establishment of valid titles to property. After valid titles are established, the owner can, of course, do what he likes with his property. In contrast, the feudal lord passes the land on to his heirs. The true owners now have to pay rent where they did not have to pay before. This rent tax continues indefinitely. Because of the generally vast extent of the grant, as well as various prohibitory laws, it is most unusual for the feudal lord to be bought out by his tenant subjects. When they do buy out their own plots, however, their land is, from then on, freed from the permission tax incubus. One charge often made against the market is that all property can be traced back to coercive depredations or state privilege, and therefore there is no need to respect current property rights. Waiving the question of the accuracy of the historical contention, we may state that historical tracings generally make little difference. Suppose, for example, that Jones steals money from Smith, or that he acquires the money through state expropriation and subsidy, and suppose that there is no redress. Smith and his heirs die, and the money continues in Jones' family. In that case, the disappearance of Smith and his heirs means the dissolution of claims from the original title holders at that point on the homestead principle of property right from possession of unowned property. The money, therefore, accrues to the Jones family as their legitimate and absolute property. Note the assumption that Smith and his heirs die out or cannot be traced. If they can be, then the property rightly reverts to them in a free market system. This process of converting force to service, however, does not work where rent paid for ground land is akin to regional taxation. The effects of speculation in original land disappear as the users purchase the land sites, but dissolution does not take place where feudal land grants are passed on unbroken over the generations. As Mises states, Nowhere and at no time has the large-scale ownership of land come into being through the working of economic forces in the market. It is the result of military and political effort. Founded by violence, it has been upheld by violence and by that alone. 
As soon as the latifundia are drawn into the sphere of market transactions, they begin to crumble, until at last they disappear completely. Neither at their formation nor in their maintenance have economic causes operated. The great landed fortunes did not arise through the economic superiority of large-scale ownership, but through violent annexation outside the area of trade. The non-economic origin of landed fortunes is clearly revealed by the fact that, as a rule, the expropriation by which they have been created in no way alters the manner of production. The old owner remains on the soil under a different legal title and continues to carry on production. 7. Canons of Justice in Taxation a. The Just Tax and the Just Price For centuries before the science of economics was developed, men searched for criteria of the just price. Of all the innumerable, almost infinite possibilities among the myriads of prices daily determined, what pattern should be considered as just Gradually it came to be realized that there is no quantitative criterion of justice that can be objectively determined. Suppose that the price of eggs is 50 cents per dozen. What is the just price? It is clear, even to those like the present writer who believe in the possibility of a rational ethics, that no possible ethical philosophy or science can yield a quantitative measure or criterion of justice. If Professor X says that the just price of eggs is 45 cents, and Professor Y says it is 85 cents, no philosophical principle can decide between them. Even the most fervent anti-utilitarian will have to concede this point. The various contentions all become purely arbitrary whim. Economics, by tracing the ordered pattern of the voluntary exchange process, has made it clear that the only possible objective criterion for the just price is the market price. For the market price is, at every moment, determined by the voluntary, mutually agreed-upon actions of all the participants in the market. It is the objective resultant of every individual's subjective valuations and voluntary actions, and is therefore the only existent objective criterion for quantitative justice in pricing. Practically nobody now searches explicitly for the just price, and it is generally recognized that any ethical criticisms must be leveled qualitatively against the values of consumers, not against the quantitative price structure that the market establishes on the basis of these values. The market price is the just price, given the pattern of consumer preferences. Furthermore, this just price is the concrete, actual market price, not equilibrium price, which can never be established in the real world, nor the competitive price, which is an imaginary figment. 
If the search for the just price has virtually ended in the pages of economic works, why does the quest for a just tax continue with unabated vigor? Why do economists, severely scientific in their volumes, suddenly become ad hoc ethicists when the question of taxation is raised? In no other area of his subject does the economist become more grandiosely ethical. There is no objection at all to discussion of ethical concepts when they are needed, provided that the economist realizes always a. that economics can establish no ethical principles by itself, that it can only furnish existential laws to the ethicist or citizen as data, and b. that any importation of ethics must be grounded on a consistent, coherent set of ethical principles, and not simply be slipped in ad hoc in the spirit of, well, everyone must agree to this. Bland assumptions of universal agreement are one of the most irritating bad habits of the economist-turned-ethicist. This book does not attempt to establish ethical principles. It does, however, refute ethical principles to the extent that they are insinuated ad hoc and unanalyzed into economic treatises. An example is the common quest for canons of justice in taxation. The prime objection to these canons is that the writers have first to establish the justice of taxation itself. If this cannot be proven, and so far it has not been, then it is clearly idle to look for the just tax. If taxation itself is unjust, then it is clear that no allocation of its burdens, however ingenious, can be declared just. This book sets forth no doctrines on the justice or injustice of taxation, but we do exhort economists either to forget about the problem of the just tax, or, at least, to develop a comprehensive ethical system before they tackle this problem again. Why do not economists abandon the search for the just tax, as they abandoned the quest for the just price? One reason is that doing so may have unwelcome implications for them. The just price was abandoned in favor of the market price. Can the just tax be abandoned in favor of the market tax? Clearly not, for on the market there is no taxation, and therefore no tax can be established that will duplicate market patterns. As will be seen further, there is no such thing as a neutral tax, a tax that will leave the market free and undisturbed, just as there is no such thing as neutral money. Economists and others may try to approximate neutrality in the hopes of disturbing the market as little as possible, but they can never fully succeed. B. Costs of Collection convenience, and certainty. Even the simplest maxims must not be taken for granted. Two centuries ago, Adam Smith laid down four canons of justice in taxation that economists have parroted ever since. 
One of them deals with the distribution of the burden of taxation, and this will be treated in detail later. Perhaps the most obvious was Smith's injunction that costs of collection be kept to a minimum, and that taxes be levied with this principle in mind. An obvious and harmless maxim? Certainly not. This canon of justice is not obvious at all. For the bureaucrat employed in tax collection will tend to favor a tax with high administrative costs, thereby necessitating more extensive bureaucratic employment. Why should we call the bureaucrat obviously wrong? The answer is that he is not, and that to call him wrong, it is necessary to engage in an ethical analysis that no economist has bothered to undertake. A further point. If the tax is unjust on other grounds, it may be more just to have high administrative costs, for then there will be less chance that the tax will be fully collected. If it is easy to collect the tax, then the tax may do more damage to the economic system and cause more distortion of the market economy. The same point might be made about another of Smith's canons, that a tax should be levied so that payment is convenient. Here again, this maxim seems obvious, and there is certainly much truth in it. But someone may urge that a tax should be made inconvenient to induce people to rebel and force a lowering of the level of taxation. Indeed, this used to be one of the prime arguments of conservatives for an income tax as opposed to an indirect tax. The validity of this argument is beside the point. The point is that it is not self-evidently wrong, and therefore this canon is no more simple and obvious than the others. Smith's final canon of just taxation is that the tax be certain and not arbitrary, so that the taxpayer knows what he will pay. Here again, further analysis demonstrates that this is by no means obvious. Some may argue that uncertainty benefits the taxpayer, for it makes the requirement more flexible and permits bribery of the tax collector. This benefits the taxpayer to the extent that the price of the bribe is less than the tax that he would otherwise have to pay. Furthermore, there is no way of establishing long-range certainty, for the tax rates may be changed by the government at any time. In the long run, certainty of taxation is an impossible goal. A similar argument may be leveled against the view that taxes should be difficult to evade. If a tax is onerous and unjust, evasion might be highly beneficial to the economy and moral to boot. Thus, none of these supposedly self-evident canons of taxation is a canon at all. From some ethical points of view, they are correct, from others, they are incorrect. Economics cannot decide between them. C. Distribution of the Tax Burden Up to this point, we have been discussing taxation as it is levied on any given individual or firm. Now we must turn to another aspect, 
the distribution of the burden of taxes among the people in the economy. Most of the search for justice in taxation has involved the problem of the just distribution of this burden. Various proposed canons of justice will be discussed in this section, followed by analysis of the economic effects of tax distribution. 1. Uniformity of Treatment a. Equality before the law. Tax exemption. Uniformity of treatment has been upheld as an ideal by almost all writers. This ideal is supposed to be implicit in the concept of equality before the law, which is best expressed in the phrase, like to be treated alike. To most economists, this ideal has seemed self-evident, and the only problems considered have been the practical ones of defining exactly when one person is like someone else, problems that, we shall see, are insuperable. All these economists adopt the goal of uniformity regardless of what principle of likeness they may hold. Thus, the man who believes that everyone should be taxed in accordance with his ability to pay also believes that everyone with the same ability should be taxed equally. He who believes that each should be taxed proportionately to his income also holds that everyone with the same income should pay the same tax, etc., in this way, the ideal of uniformity pervades the literature on taxation. Yet this canon is by no means obvious, for it seems clear that the justice of equality of treatment depends first of all on the justice of the treatment itself. Suppose, for example, that Jones, with his retinue, proposes to enslave a group of people. Are we to maintain that justice requires that each be enslaved equally? And suppose that someone has the good fortune to escape. Are we to condemn him for evading the equality of justice meted out to his fellows? It is obvious that equality of treatment is no canon of justice whatever. If a measure is unjust, then it is just that it have as little general effect as possible. Equality of unjust treatment can never be upheld as an ideal of justice. Therefore, he who maintains that a tax be imposed equally on all must first establish the justice of the tax itself. Many writers denounce tax exemptions and levy their fire at the tax-exempt, particularly those instrumental in obtaining the exemptions for themselves. These writers include those advocates of the free market who treat a tax exemption as a special privilege and attack it as equivalent to a subsidy and therefore inconsistent with the free market. Yet an exemption from taxation or any other burden is not equivalent to a subsidy. There is a key difference. In the latter case, a man is receiving a special grant of privilege wrested from his fellow men. In the former, he is escaping a burden imposed on other men. 
whereas the one is done at the expense of his fellow men, the other is not. For in the former case, the grantee is participating in the acquisition of loot. In the latter, he escapes payment of tribute to the looters. To blame him for escaping is equivalent to blaming the slave for fleeing his master. It is clear that if a certain burden is unjust, blame should be levied not on the man who escapes the burden, but on the man or men who impose it in the first place. If a tax is in fact unjust, and some are exempt from it, the hue and cry should not be to extend the tax to everyone, but on the contrary, to extend the exemption to everyone. The exemption itself cannot be considered unjust unless the tax or other burden is first established as just. Thus, uniformity of treatment per se cannot be established as a canon of justice. A tax must first be proven just. If it is unjust, then uniformity is simply imposition of general injustice, and exemption is to be welcomed. Since the very fact of taxation is an interference with the free market, it is particularly incongruous and incorrect for advocates of a free market to advocate uniformity of taxation. One of the major sources of confusion for economists and others who are in favor of the free market is that the free society has often been defined as a condition of equality before the law or as special privilege for none. As a result, many have transferred these concepts to an attack on tax exemptions as a special privilege and a violation of the principle of equality before the law. As for the latter concept, it is again hardly a criterion of justice, for this depends on the justice of the law or treatment itself. It is this alleged justice, rather than equality, which is the primary feature of the free market. In fact, the free society is far better described by some such phrase as equality of rights to defend person and property, or equality of liberty, rather than by the vague, misleading expression equality before the law. In the literature on taxation, there is much angry discussion about loopholes, the inference being that any income or area exempt from taxation must be brought quickly under its sway. Any failure to plug loopholes is treated as immoral. But, as Mises incisively asked, what is a loophole? If the law does not punish a definite action or does not tax a definite thing, this is not a loophole, it is simply the law. The income tax exemptions in our income tax are not loopholes. Thanks to these loopholes, this country is still a free country. B. The Impossibility of Uniformity Aside from these considerations, the ideal of uniformity is impossible to achieve. Let us confine our further discussion of uniformity to income taxation for two reasons. 
One, because the vast bulk of our taxation is income taxation, and two, because, as we have seen, most other taxes boil down to income taxes anyway. A tax on consumption ends largely as a tax on income at a lower rate. There are two basic reasons why uniformity of income taxation is an impossible goal. The first stems from the very nature of the state. We have seen, when discussing Calhoun's analysis, that the state must separate society into two classes, or castes, the tax-paying caste and the tax-consuming caste. The tax consumers consist of the full-time bureaucracy and politicians in power, as well as the groups which receive net subsidies, that is, which receive more from the government than they pay to the government. These include the receivers of government contracts and of government expenditures on goods and services produced in the private sector, it is not always easy to detect the net subsidized in practice, but this caste can always be conceptually identified. Thus, when the government levies a tax on private incomes, the money is shifted from private people to the government, and the government's money, whether expended for government consumption of goods and services, for salaries to bureaucrats, or as subsidies to privileged groups, returns to be spent in the economic system. It is clear that the tax expenditure level must distort the expenditure pattern of the market and shift productive resources away from the pattern desired by the producers and toward that desired by the privileged. This distortion takes place in proportion to the amount of taxation. If, for example, the government taxes funds that would have been spent on automobiles and itself spends them on arms, the arms industry, and in the long run, the specific factors in the arms industry, become net tax consumers, while a special loss is inflicted on the automobile industry and, ultimately, on the factors specific to that industry. It is because of these complex relationships that, as we have mentioned, the identification in practice of the net subsidized may be difficult. One thing we know without difficulty, however, bureaucrats are net tax consumers. As we pointed out, bureaucrats cannot pay taxes. Hence, it is inherently impossible for bureaucrats to pay income taxes uniformly with everyone else, and therefore the ideal of uniform income taxation for all is an impossible goal. We repeat that the bureaucrat who receives $8,000 a year income and then hands $1,500 back to the government is engaging in a mere bookkeeping transaction of no economic importance, aside from the waste of paper and records involved, for he does not and cannot pay taxes. He simply receives $6,500 a year from the tax fund.
If it is impossible to tax income uniformly because of the nature of the tax process itself, the attempt to do so also confronts another insuperable difficulty, that of trying to arrive at a cogent definition of income. Should taxable income include the imputed money value of services received in kind, such as farm produce grown on one's own farm? What about imputed rent from living in one's own house, or the imputed services of a housewife? Regardless of which course is taken in any of these cases, a good argument can be made that the incomes included as taxable are not the correct ones. And if it is decided to impute the value of goods received in kind, the estimates must always be arbitrary, since the actual sales for money were not made. A similar difficulty is raised by the question whether incomes should be averaged over several years. Businesses that suffer losses and reap profits are penalized as against those with steady incomes, unless, of course, the government subsidizes part of the loss. This may be corrected by permitting averaging of income over several years. But here again, the problem is insoluble, because there are only arbitrary ways of deciding the period of time to allow for averaging. If the income tax rate is progressive, that is, if the rate increases as earnings increase, then failure to permit averaging penalizes the man with an erratic income. But again, to permit averaging will destroy the ideal of uniform current tax rates. Furthermore, varying the period of averaging will vary the results. We have seen that in order to tax income only, it is necessary to correct for changes in the purchasing power of money when taxing capital gains. But, once again, any index or factor of correction is purely arbitrary, and uniformity cannot be achieved because of the impossibility of securing general agreement on a definition of income. For all these reasons, the goal of uniformity of taxation is an impossible one. It is not simply difficult to achieve in practice, it is conceptually impossible and self-contradictory. Surely any ethical goal that is conceptually impossible of achievement is an absurd goal, and therefore any movements in the direction of the goal are absurd as well. To say that an ethical goal is conceptually impossible is completely different from saying that its achievement is unrealistic because few people uphold it. The latter is by no means an argument against an ethical principle. Conceptual impossibility means that the goal could not be achieved even if everyone aimed at it. It is therefore legitimate and even necessary to engage in a logical, that is, praxeological, critique of ethical goals and systems when they are relevant to economics. 
Having analyzed the goal of uniformity of treatment, we turn now to the various principles that have been set forth to give content to the idea of uniformity, to answer the question, uniform in respect to what? Should taxes be uniform as to ability to pay, or sacrifice, or benefits received? In other words, while most writers have rather unthinkingly granted that people in the same income bracket should pay the same tax, what principle should govern the distribution of income taxes between tax brackets? Should the man making $10,000 a year pay as much as, as much proportionately as, more than, more proportionately than, or less than, a man making $5,000 or $1,000 a year? In short, should people pay uniformly in accordance with their ability to pay, or sacrifice made, or some other principle? 2. The Ability to Pay Principle A. The Ambiguity of the Concept This principle states that people should pay taxes in accordance with their ability to pay. It is generally conceded that the concept of ability to pay is a highly ambiguous one and presents no sure guide for practical application. Most economists have employed the principle to support a program of proportional or progressive income taxation, but this would hardly suffice. It seems clear, for example, that a person's accumulated wealth affects his ability to pay. A man earning $5,000 during a certain year probably has more ability to pay than a neighbor earning the same amount if he also has $50,000 in the bank, while his neighbor has nothing. Yet a tax on accumulated capital would cause general impoverishment. No clear standard can be found to gauge ability to pay. Both wealth and income would have to be considered. Medical expenses would have to be deducted, etc. But there is no precise criterion to be invoked, and the decision is necessarily arbitrary. Thus, should all or some proportion of medical bills be deducted? What about the expenses of child-rearing, or food, clothing, and shelter as necessary to consumer maintenance. Professor John Dew attempts to find a criterion for ability in economic well-being, but it should be clear that this concept, being even more subjective, is still more difficult to define. Adam Smith himself used the ability concept to support proportional income taxation, taxation at a constant percentage of income. But his argument is rather ambiguous and applies to the benefit principle as well as to ability to pay. Said Smith, the subjects of every state ought to contribute toward the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion of their respective abilities that is, in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under protection of the state. 
The expense of government to the individuals of a great nation is like the expense of management to the joint tenants of a great estate, who are all obliged to contribute to their respective interests in the estate. Indeed, it is hard to see in precisely what sense ability to pay rises in proportion to income. Is a man earning $10,000 a year equally able to pay $2,000 as a man earning $1,000 to pay $200? Setting aside the basic qualifications of difference in wealth, medical expenses, etc., in what sense can equal ability be demonstrated? Attempting to define equal ability in such a way is a meaningless procedure. J.K. McCullough, in a famous passage, attacked progressiveness and defended proportionality of taxation. The moment you abandon the cardinal principle of exacting from all individuals the same proportion of their income or their property, you are at sea without rudder or compass, and there is no amount of injustice or folly you may not commit. Seemingly plausible, this thesis is by no means self-evident. In what way is proportional taxation any less arbitrary than any given pattern of progressive taxation, that is, where the rate of tax increases with income? There must be some principle that can justify proportionality. If this principle does not exist, then proportionality is no less arbitrary than any other taxing pattern. Various principles have been offered and will be considered, but the point is that proportionality per se is neither more nor less sound than any other taxation. One school of thought attempts to find a justification for a progressive tax via an ability-to-pay principle. This is the faculty approach of E.R.A. Seligman. This doctrine holds that the more money a person has, the relatively easier it is for him to acquire more. His power of obtaining money is supposed to increase as he has more. A rich man may be said to be subject to a law of increasing returns. Therefore, since his ability increases at a faster rate than his income, a progressive income tax is justified. This theory is simply invalid. Money does not make money. If it did, then a few people would by now own all the world's wealth. To be earned, money must continually be justifying itself in current service to consumers. Personal income, interest, profits, and rents are earned only in accordance with their current, not their past, services. The size of accumulated fortune is immaterial, and fortunes can be and are dissipated when their owners fail to reinvest them wisely in the service of consumers. As Bloom and Calvin point out, the Seligman thesis is utter nonsense when applied to personal services such as labor energy. It could only make sense when applied to income from property, that is, investment in land or capital goods, or slaves in a slave economy.
But the return on capital is always tending toward uniformity, and any departures from uniformity are due to especially wise and far-seeing investments, profits, or especially wasteful investments, losses. The Seligman thesis would fallaciously imply that the rates of return increase in proportion to the amount invested. Another theory holds that ability to pay is proportionate to the producer's surplus of an individual, that is, his economic rent, or the amount of his income above the payment necessary for him to continue production. The consequences of taxation of site rent have been noted. The necessary payments to labor are clearly impossible to establish, If someone is asked by the tax authorities what his minimum wage is, what will prevent him from saying that any amount below the present wage will cause him to retire or to shift to another job? Who can prove differently? Furthermore, even if it could be determined, this surplus is hardly an indicator of ability to pay. A movie star may have practically zero surplus, for some other studio may be willing to bid almost as much as he makes now for his services, while a disabled ditch digger may have a much greater surplus, because no one else may be willing to hire him. Generally, in an advanced economy, there is little surplus of this type, for the competition of the market will push alternative jobs and uses near to the factor's discounted marginal value product in its present use. Hence, it would be impossible to tax any surplus over necessary payment from land or capital since none exists, and practically impossible to tax the surplus to labor, since the existence of a sizable surplus is rare, impossible to determine, and, in any case, no criterion whatever of ability to pay. b. The Justice of the Standard The extremely popular ability-to-pay idea was sanctified by Adam Smith in his most important canon of taxation, and has been accepted blindly ever since. While much criticism has been leveled at its inherent vagueness, hardly anyone has criticized the basic principle, despite the fact that no one has really grounded it in sound argument. Smith himself gave no reasoning to support this alleged principle, and few others have done so since. John Dew, in his text on public finance, simply accepts it because most people believe in it, thereby ignoring the possibility of any logical analysis of ethical principles. The only substantial attempt to give some rational support to the ability-to-pay principle rests on a strained comparison of tax payments to voluntary gifts to charitable organizations. Thus, Harold M. Groves writes, To hundreds of common enterprises, community chests, Red Cross, etc., people are expected to contribute according to their means. Governments are one of these common enterprises fostered to serve the citizens as a group. 
Seldom have more fallacies been packed into two sentences. In the first place, the government is not a common enterprise akin to the community chest. No one can resign from it. No one on penalty of imprisonment can come to the conclusion that this charitable enterprise is not doing its job properly and therefore stop his contribution. No one can simply lose interest and drop out. If, as will be seen further, the state cannot be described as a business engaged in selling services on the market, certainly it is ludicrous to equate it to a charitable organization. Government is the very negation of charity, for charity is uniquely an unbought gift, a freely flowing, uncoerced act by the giver. The word expected, in Grove's phrase, is misleading. No one is forced to give to any charity in which he is not interested, or which he believes is not doing its job properly. The contrast is even clearer in a phrase of Merlin Hunter and Harry Allen's. Contributions to support the church or the community chest are expected not on the basis of benefits which individual members receive from the organization, but upon the basis of their ability to contribute. But this is praxeologically invalid. The reason that anyone contributes voluntarily to a charity is precisely the benefit that he obtains from it. Yet benefit can be considered only in a subjective sense. It can never be measured. The fact of subjective gain or benefit from an act is deducible from the fact that it was performed. Each person making an exchange is deduced to have benefited, at least ex ante. Similarly, a person who makes a unilateral gift is deduced to have benefited, ex ante, from making the gift. If he did not benefit, he would not have made the gift. This is another indication that praxeology does not assume the existence of an economic man, for the benefit from an action may come either from a good or a service directly received in exchange, or simply from the knowledge that someone else will benefit from a gift. Gifts to charitable institutions, therefore, are made precisely on the basis of benefit to the giver, not on the basis of his ability to pay. Furthermore, if we compare taxation with the market, we find no basis for adopting the ability-to-pay principle. On the contrary, the market price, generally considered the just price, is almost always uniform or tending toward uniformity. Market prices tend to obey the rule of one price throughout the entire market. Everyone pays an equal price for a good, regardless of how much money he has or his ability to pay. Indeed, if the ability to pay principle pervaded the market, there would be no point in acquiring wealth, for everyone would have to pay more for a product in proportion to the money in his possession. 
Money incomes would be approximately equalized, and in fact there would be no point at all to acquiring money, since the purchasing power of a unit of money would never be definite, but would drop for any man in proportion to the quantity of money he earns. A person with less money would simply find the purchasing power of a unit of his money rising accordingly. Therefore, unless trickery and black marketeering could evade the regulations, establishing the ability-to-pay principle for prices would wreck the market altogether. The wrecking of the market and the monetary economy would plunge society back to primitive living standards, and, of course, eliminate a large part of the current world population, which is permitted to earn a subsistence living or higher by virtue of the existence of the modern, developed market. It should be clear, moreover, that establishing equal incomes and wealth for all, for example, by taxing all those over a certain standard of income and wealth, and subsidizing all those below that standard, would have the same effect, since there would be no point to anyone's working for money. Those who enjoy performing labor will do so only at play, that is, without obtaining a monetary return. Enforced equality of income and wealth, therefore, would return the economy to barbarism. If taxes were to be patterned after market pricing, then, taxes would be levied equally, not proportionately, on everyone. As will be seen, Equal taxation differs in critical respects from market pricing, but is a far closer approximation to it than is ability-to-pay taxation. Finally, the ability-to-pay principle means precisely that the able are penalized, that is, those most able in serving the wants of their fellow men. Penalizing ability in production and service diminishes the supply of the service, and in proportion to the extent of that ability. The result will be impoverishment, not only of the able, but of the rest of society, which benefits from their services. The ability-to-pay principle, in short, cannot be simply assumed— if it is employed, it must be justified by logical argument, and this economists have yet to provide. Rather than being an evident rule of justice, the ability-to-pay principle resembles more the highwayman's principle of taking where the taking is good. 3. Sacrifice Theory Another attempted criterion of just taxation was the subject of a flourishing literature for many decades, although it is now decidedly going out of fashion. The many variants of the sacrifice approach are akin to a subjective version of the ability-to-pay principle. They all rest on three general premises— a. That the utility of a unit of money to an individual diminishes as his stock of money increases. b. That these utilities can be compared interpersonally, and thus can be summed up, subtracted, etc. 
and c that everyone has the same utility of money schedule the first premise is valid but only in an ordinal sense but the second and third are nonsensical the marginal utility of money does diminish but it is impossible to compare one person's utilities with another let alone believe that everyone's valuations are identical utilities are not quantities but subjective orders of preference any principle for distributing the tax burden that rests on such assumptions must therefore be declared fallacious happily this truth is now generally established in the economic literature utility and sacrifice theory has generally been used to justify progressive taxation although sometimes proportional taxation has been upheld on this ground briefly a dollar is alleged to mean less or be worth less in utility to a rich man than to a poor man rich or poor in income or wealth and therefore payment of a dollar by a rich man imposes less of a subjective sacrifice on him than on a poor man hence the rich man should be taxed at a higher rate many ability to pay theories are really inverted sacrifice theories since they are couched in the form of ability to make sacrifices since the nub of the sacrifice theory interpersonal comparisons of utility is now generally discarded we shall not spend much time discussing the sacrifice doctrine in detail however several aspects of this theory are of interest the sacrifice theory divides into two main branches one the equal sacrifice principle and two the minimum sacrifice principle the former states that every man should sacrifice equally in paying taxes the latter that society as a whole should sacrifice the least amount both versions abandon completely the idea of government as a supplier of benefits and treat government and taxation as simply a burden a sacrifice that must be borne in the best way we know how here we have a curious principle of justice indeed based on adjustment to hurt we are faced again with that pons asinorum that defeats all attempts to establish canons of justice for taxation the problem of the justice of taxation itself the proponent of the sacrifice theory in realistically abandoning unproved assumptions of benefit from taxation must face and then founder on the question if taxation is pure hurt why endure it at all the equal sacrifice theory asks that equal hurt be imposed on all as a criterion of justice this is as untenable as asking for equal slavery one interesting aspect of the equal sacrifice theory however is that it does not necessarily imply progressive income taxation for although it implies that the rich man should be taxed more than the poor man it does not necessarily say that the former should be taxed more than proportionately 
In fact, it does not even establish that all be taxed proportionately. In short, the equal sacrifice principle may demand that a man earning $10,000 be taxed more than a man earning $1,000, but not necessarily that he be taxed a greater percentage or even proportionately. The equal sacrifice principle may well call for regressive taxation, under which a wealthier man would pay more in amount, but less proportionately. For example, the man earning $10,000 would pay $500, and the man earning $1,000 would pay $200. The more rapidly the utility of money declines, the more probably will equal sacrifice yield progressivity. A slowly declining utility of money schedule would call for regressive taxation. Argument about how rapidly various utility of money schedules decline is hopeless, because, as we have seen, the entire theory is untenable. But the point is that even on its own grounds, the equal sacrifice theory can justify neither progressive nor proportionate taxation. The minimum sacrifice theory has often been confused with the equal sacrifice theory. Both rest on the same set of false assumptions. But the minimum sacrifice theory counsels very drastic progressive taxation. Suppose, for example, that there are two men in a community, Jones making $50,000 and Smith making $30,000. The principle of minimum social sacrifice, resting on the three assumptions earlier described, declares $1 taken from Jones imposes less of a sacrifice than $1 taken from Smith. Hence, if the government needs one dollar, it takes it from Jones. But suppose the government needs two dollars. The second dollar will impose less of a sacrifice on Jones than the first dollar taken from Smith. For Jones still has more money left than Smith, and therefore sacrifices less. This continues as long as Jones has more money remaining than Smith. Should the government need $20,000 in taxes, the minimum sacrifice principle counsels taking the entire $20,000 from Jones and zero from Smith. In other words, it advocates taking all of the highest incomes in turn until governmental needs are fulfilled. Pushed to its logical conclusion, in which the state is urged to establish maximum social satisfaction, the obverse of minimum social sacrifice, the principal counsels absolute compulsory egalitarianism, with everyone above a certain standard taxed in order to subsidize everyone else to come up to that standard. The consequence, as we have seen, would be a return to the conditions of barbarism. The minimum sacrifice principle depends heavily, as does the equal sacrifice theory, on the untenable view that everyone's utility of money schedule is roughly identical. Both rest also on a further fallacy, which now must be refuted. That sacrifice is simply the obverse of the utility of money. 
For the subjective sacrifice in taxation may not be merely the opportunity cost foregone of the money paid. It may also be increased by moral outrage at the tax procedure. Thus Jones may become so morally outraged at the proceedings that his marginal subjective sacrifice quickly becomes very great, much greater than Smith's, if we grant for a moment that the two can be compared. Once we see that subjective sacrifice is not necessarily tied to the utility of money, we may extend the principle further. Consider, for example, a philosophical anarchist who opposes all taxation fervently. Suppose that his subjective sacrifice in the payment of any tax is so great as to be almost infinite. In that case, the minimum sacrifice principle would have to exempt the anarchist from taxation, while the equal sacrifice principle could tax him only an infinitesimal amount. Practically, then, the sacrifice principle would have to exempt the anarchist from taxation. Furthermore, how can the government determine the subjective sacrifice of the individual? By asking him? In that case, how many people would refrain from proclaiming the enormity of their sacrifice and thus escape payment completely? Similarly, if two individuals subjectively enjoyed their identical money incomes differently, the minimum sacrifice principle would require that the happier man be taxed less, because he makes a greater sacrifice in enjoyment from an equal tax. Who will suggest heavier taxation on the unhappy or the ascetic and who would then refrain from loudly proclaiming the enormous enjoyment he derives from his income? It is curious that the minimum sacrifice principle counsels the obverse of the ability-to-pay theory, which, particularly in its state-of-well-being variant, advocates a special tax on happiness and a lower tax on unhappiness. If the latter principle prevailed, people would rush to proclaim their unhappiness and deep-seated asceticism. It is clear that the proponents of the ability to pay and sacrifice theories have completely failed to establish them as criteria of just taxation. These theories also commit a further grave error. For the sacrifice theory explicitly and the ability to pay theory implicitly set up presumed criteria for action in terms of sacrifice and burden. The ability to pay principle is unclear on this point. Some proponents base their argument implicitly on sacrifice, others on the necessity for payment for untraceable benefits. The state is assumed to be a burden on society, and the question becomes one of justly distributing this burden. But man is constantly striving to sacrifice as little as he can for the benefits he receives from his actions. 
Yet here is a theory that talks only in terms of sacrifice and burden, and calls for a certain distribution without demonstrating to the taxpayers that they are benefiting more than they are giving up. Since the theorists do not so demonstrate, they can make their appeal only in terms of sacrifice, a procedure that is praxeologically invalid. Since men always try to find net benefits in a course of action, it follows that a discussion in terms of sacrifice or burden cannot establish a rational criterion for human action. To be praxeologically valid, a criterion must demonstrate net benefit. It is true, of course, that the proponents of the sacrifice theory are far more realistic than the proponents of the benefit theory in considering the state a net burden on society rather than a net benefit, but this hardly demonstrates the justice of the sacrifice principle of taxation. Quite the contrary. 4. The Benefit Principle The benefit principle differs radically from the two preceding criteria of taxation, for the sacrifice and ability to pay principles depart completely from the principles of action and the accepted criteria of justice on the market. On the market, people act freely in those ways which they believe will confer net benefits upon them. The result of these actions is the monetary exchange system, with its inexorable tendency toward uniform pricing and the allocation of productive factors to satisfy the most urgent demands of all the consumers. Yet the criteria used in judging taxation differ completely from those which apply to all other actions on the market. Suddenly, free choice and uniform pricing are forgotten, and the discussion is all in terms of sacrifice, burden, etc. If taxation is only a burden, it is no wonder that coercion must be exercised to maintain it. The benefit principle, on the other hand, is an attempt to establish taxation on a similar basis as market pricing, that is, the tax is to be levied in accordance with the benefit received by the individual. It is an attempt to achieve the goal of a neutral tax, one that would leave the economic system approximately as it is on the free market. It is an attempt to achieve praxeological soundness by establishing a criterion of payment on the basis of benefit, rather than sacrifice. The great gulf between the benefit and other principles was originally unrecognized because of Adam Smith's confusion between ability to pay and benefit. In the quotation cited earlier, Smith inferred that everyone benefits from the state in proportion to his income and that this income establishes his ability to pay. Therefore, a tax on his ability to pay will simply be a quid pro quo in exchange for benefits conferred by the state. 
Some writers have contended that people benefit from government in proportion to their income, others that they benefit in increased proportion to their income, thus justifying a progressive income tax. Yet this entire application of the benefit theory is nonsensical. How do the rich reap a greater benefit proportionately, or even more than proportionately, from government than the poor? They could do so only if the government were responsible for these riches by a grant of special privilege, such as a subsidy, a monopoly grant, etc. Otherwise, how do the rich benefit? From welfare and other redistributive expenditures, which take from the rich and give to the bureaucrats and the poor? Certainly not. From police protection? But it is precisely the rich who could more afford to pay for their own protection, and who therefore derive less benefit from it than the poor. The benefit theory holds that the rich benefit more from protection because their property is more valuable. But the cost of protection may have little relation to the value of the property. Since it costs less to police a bank vault containing $100 million than to guard 100 acres of land worth $10 per acre, the poor landowner receives a far greater benefit from the state's protection than the rich owner of personality. Neither would it be relevant to say that A earns more money than B because A receives a greater benefit from society and should therefore pay more in taxes. In the first place, everyone participates in society. The fact that A earns more than B means precisely that A's services are individually worth more to his fellows. Therefore, since A and B benefit similarly from society's existence, the reverse argument is far more accurate, that the differential between them is due to A's individual superiority in productivity, and not at all to society. Secondly, society is not at all the state, and the state's possible claim must be independently validated. Hence, neither proportionate nor progressive income taxation can be sustained on benefit principles. In fact, the reverse is true. If everyone were to pay in accordance with benefit received, it is clear that a. the recipients of welfare benefits would bear the full costs of these benefits, the poor would have to pay for their own doles, including, of course, the extra cost of paying the bureaucracy for making the transfers. b. The buyers of any government service would be the only payers, so that government services could not be financed out of a general tax fund. And c. For police protection, a rich man would pay less than a poor man, and less in absolute amounts. Furthermore, landowners would pay more than owners of intangible property, and the weak and infirm, who clearly benefit more from police protection than the strong, would have to pay higher taxes than the latter. 
it becomes immediately clear why the benefit principle has been practically abandoned in recent years, for it is evident that if a welfare recipients, and b. receivers of other special privilege, such as monopoly grants, were to pay according to the benefit received, there would not be much point in either form of government expenditure. And if each were to pay an amount equal to the benefit he received, rather than simply proportionately, and he would have to do so, because there would be nowhere else for the state to turn for funds. Then, the recipient of the subsidy would not only earn nothing, but would have to pay the bureaucracy for the cost of handling and transfer. The establishment of the benefit principle would therefore result in a laissez-faire system, with government strictly limited to supplying defense service, and the taxation for this defense service would be levied more on the poor and the infirm than on the strong and the rich. At first sight, the believer in the free market, the seeker after a neutral tax, is inclined to rejoice. It would seem that the benefit principle is the answer to his search, and this principle is indeed closer to market principles than the previous alleged canons. Yet, if we pursue the analysis more closely, it will be evident that the benefit principle is still far from market neutrality. On the market, people do not pay in accordance with individual benefit received. They pay a uniform price, one that just induces the marginal buyer to participate in the exchange. The more eager do not pay a higher price than the less eager. The chess addict and the indifferent player pay the same price for the same chess set, and the opera enthusiast and the novice pay the same price for the same ticket. The poor and the weak would be most eager for protection, but in contrast to the benefit principle, they would not pay more on the market. There are even graver defects in the benefit principle. For market exchanges, A. Demonstrate benefit, and B. Only establish the fact of benefit without measuring it. The only reason we know that A and B benefit from an exchange is that they voluntarily make the exchange. In this way, the market demonstrates benefit. But where taxes are levied, the payment is compulsory, and therefore benefit can never be demonstrated. As a matter of fact, the existence of coercion gives rise to the opposite presumption, and implies that the tax is not a benefit, but a burden. If it really were a benefit, coercion would not be necessary. Secondly, the benefit from exchange can never be measured or compared interpersonally. The consumer's surplus derived from exchange is purely subjective, non-measurable, and non-comparable scientifically. Therefore, we never know what these benefits are, and hence there can be no way of allocating the taxes in accordance with them. Thirdly, on the market, everyone enjoys a net benefit from an exchange. A person's benefit is not equal to his cost, but greater. 
Therefore, taxing away his alleged benefit would completely violate market principles. Finally, if each person were taxed according to the benefit he receives from government, it is obvious that, since the bureaucracy receive all their income from this source, they would, like other recipients of subsidy and privilege, be obliged to return their whole salary to the government. The bureaucracy would have to serve without pay. We have seen that the benefit principle would dispense with all subsidy expenditures of whatever type. Government services would have to be sold directly to buyers, but in that case there would be no room for government ownership, for the characteristic of a government enterprise is that it is launched from tax funds. Police and judicial services are often declared by the proponents of the benefit principle to be inherently general and unspecialized, so that they would need to be purchased out of the common tax fund rather than by individual users. However, as we have seen, this assumption is incorrect. These services can be sold on the market like any others. Thus, even in the absence of all other deficiencies of the benefit principle, it would still establish no warrant for taxation at all, for all services could be sold on the market directly to beneficiaries. It is evident that while the benefit principle attempts to meet the market criterion of limiting payment solely to beneficiaries, it must be adjudged a failure. It cannot serve as a criterion for a neutral tax or any other type of taxation. 5. The Equal Tax and the Cost Principle Equality of taxation has far more to commend it than any of the principles discussed earlier, none of which can be used as a canon of taxation. Equality of taxation means just that, a uniform tax on every member of the society. This is also called a head tax, capitation tax, or poll tax. The latter term, however, is best used to describe a uniform tax on voting, which is what the poll tax has become in various American states. Each person would pay the same tax annually to the government. The equal tax would be particularly appropriate in a democracy, with its emphasis on equality before the law, equal rights, and absence of discrimination and special privilege. It would embody the principle, one vote, one tax. It would appropriately apply only to the protection services of the government, for the government is committed to defending everyone equally. Therefore, it may seem just for each person to be taxed equally in return. The principle of equality would rule out, as would the benefit principle, all government actions except defense, for all other expenditures would set up a special privilege or subsidy of some kind. Finally, the equal tax would be far more nearly neutral than any of the other taxes considered, for it would attempt to establish an equal price for equal services rendered.
One school of thought challenges this contention and asserts that a proportional tax would be more nearly neutral than an equal tax. The proponents of this theory point out that an equal tax alters the market's pattern of distribution of income. Thus, if A earns 1,000 gold ounces per year, B earns 200 ounces, and C earns 50 ounces, and each pays 10 ounces in taxes, then the relative proportion of net income remaining after taxes is altered, and altered in the direction of greater inequality. A proportionate tax of a fixed percentage on all three would leave the distribution of income constant and would therefore be neutral relative to the market. This thesis misconceives the whole problem of neutrality in taxation. The object of the quest is not to leave the income distribution the same as if a tax had not been imposed. The object is to affect the income distribution and all other aspects of the economy in the same way as if the tax were really a free market price. And this is a very different criterion. No market price leaves relative income distribution the same as before. If the market really behaved in this way, there would be no advantage in earning money, for people would have to pay proportionately higher prices for goods in accordance with the level of their earnings. The market tends toward uniformity of pricing, and hence toward equal pricing for equal service. Equal taxation, therefore, would be far more nearly neutral and would constitute a closer approach to a market system. The equal tax criterion, however, has many grave defects, even as an approach toward a neutral tax. In the first place, the market criterion of equal price for equal service faces the problem, what is an equal service? The service of police protection is of far greater magnitude in an urban crime area than it is in some sleepy backwater. That service is worth far more in the crime center, and therefore the price paid will tend to be greater in a crime-ridden area than in a peaceful area. It is very likely that in the purely free market, police and judicial services would be sold like insurance, with each member paying regular premiums in return for a call on the benefits of protection when needed. It is obvious that a more risky individual, such as one living in a crime area, would tend to pay a higher premium than individuals in another area. To be neutral, then, a tax would have to vary in accordance with costs and not be uniform. This does not concede that costs determine prices. The general array of final prices determines the general array of cost prices. But then, the viability of firms is determined by whether the price people will pay for their products is enough to cover their costs, which are determined throughout the market. In equilibrium, costs and prices will all be equal. 
Since a tax is levied on general funds and therefore cannot be equivalent to market pricing, the only way to approximate market pricing is to set the tax according to costs, since costs at least reflect market pricing of the non-specific factors. Equal taxation would distort the allocation of social resources in defense. The tax would be below the market price in the crime areas and above the market price in the peaceful areas, and there would therefore be a shortage of police protection in the dangerous areas and a surplus of protection in the others. Another grave flaw of the equal tax principle is the same that we noted in the more general principle of uniformity. No bureaucrat can pay taxes. An equal tax on a bureaucrat or politician is an impossibility because he is one of the tax consumers rather than taxpayers. Even when all other subsidies are eliminated, the government employee remains a permanent obstacle in the path of equal tax. As we have seen, the bureaucrat's tax payment is simply a meaningless bookkeeping device. These flaws in the equal tax cause us to turn to the last remaining tax canon, the cost principle. The cost principle would apply as we have just discussed it, with the government setting the tax in accordance with costs, like the premiums charged by an insurance company. Walter J. Bloom and Harry Calvin mention the cost principle, but casually dismiss it as being practically identical with the benefit principle. Sometimes the theory is stated in terms of the cost of the government services performed for each citizen, rather than in terms of the benefits received from such services. This refinement may avoid the need of measuring subjective benefits, but it does little else for the theory. Yet, their major criticism of the benefit principle is precisely that it requires the impossible measurement of subjective benefit. The cost principle, along with the benefit principle, dispenses with all government expenditures except laissez-faire ones, since each recipient would be required to pay the full cost of the service. With respect to the laissez-faire service of protection, however, the cost principle is clearly far superior to the benefit principle. The cost principle would constitute the closest approach possible to neutrality of taxation. Yet even the cost principle has fatal flaws that finally eliminate it from consideration. In the first place, although the costs of non-specific factors could be estimated from market knowledge, the costs of specific factors could not be determined by the state. The impossibility of calculating specific costs stems from the fact that products of tax-supported firms have no real market price, and so specific costs are unknown. As a result, the cost principle cannot be accurately put into effect. 
The cost principle is further vitiated by the fact that a compulsory monopoly, such as state protection, will invariably have higher costs and sell lower quality service than freely competitive defense firms on the market. As a result, costs will be much higher than on the market, and again, the cost principle offers no guide to a neutral tax. A final flaw is common to both the equality and the cost theories of taxation. In neither case is benefit demonstrated as accruing to the taxpayer. Although the taxpayer is blithely assumed to be benefiting from the service, just as he does on the market, we have seen that such an assumption cannot be made, that the use of coercion presumes quite the contrary for many taxpayers. The market requires a uniform price, or the exact covering of costs, only because the purchaser voluntarily buys the product in the expectation of being benefited. The state, on the other hand, would force people to pay the tax even if they were not voluntarily willing to pay the cost of this or any other defense system. Hence, the cost principle can never provide a route to the neutral tax. 6. Taxation for Revenue Only A slogan popular among many right-wing economists is that taxation should be for revenue only and not for broad social purposes. On its face, this slogan is simply and palpably absurd, since all taxes are levied for revenue. What else can taxation be called but the appropriation of funds from private individuals by the state for its own purposes? Some writers therefore amend the slogan to say, Taxation should be limited to revenue essential for social services. But what are social services? To some people, every conceivable type of government expenditure appears as a social service. If the state takes from A and gives to B, C may applaud the act as a social service, because he dislikes something about the former and likes something about the latter. If, on the other hand, social service is limited by the unanimity rule to apply only to those activities that serve some individuals without making others pay, then the taxation for revenue only formula is simply an ambiguous term for the benefit or the cost principles. 7. The Neutral Tax A Summary we have thus analyzed all the alleged canons of tax justice. Our conclusions are twofold. One, that economics cannot assume any principle of just taxation, and that no one has successfully established any such principles. And two, that the neutral tax, which seems to many a valid ideal, turns out to be conceptually impossible to achieve. Economists must, therefore, abandon their futile quest for the just or the neutral tax. Some may ask, why does anyone search for a neutral tax? Why consider neutrality an ideal? 
The answer is that all services, all activities, can be provided in two ways only, by freedom or by coercion. The former is the way of the market, the latter of the state. If all services were organized on the market, the result would be a purely free market system. If all were organized by the state, the result would be socialism. Therefore, all who are not socialists must concede some area to market activity, and once they do so, they must justify their departures from freedom on the basis of some principle or other. In a society where most activities are organized on the market, advocates of state activity must justify departures from what they themselves concede to the market sphere. Hence, the use of neutrality is a benchmark to answer the question, why do you want the state to step in and alter market conditions in this case? If market prices are uniform, why should tax payments be otherwise? But if neutral taxation is at bottom impossible, there are two logical courses left for advocates of the neutral tax— either abandon the goal of neutrality or abandon taxation itself. D. Voluntary Contributions to Government A few writers, disturbed by the compulsion necessary to the existence of taxation, have advocated that governments be financed not by taxation, but by some form of voluntary contribution. Such voluntary contribution systems could take various forms. One was the method relied on by the old city-state of Hamburg and other communities, voluntary gifts to the government. President William F. Warren of Boston University, in his essay, Tax Exemption, The Road to Tax Abolition, described his experience in one of these communities. For five years, it was the good fortune of the present writer to be domiciled in one of these communities. Incredible as it may seem to believers in the necessity of a legal enforcement of taxes by pains and penalties, he was, for that period, his own assessor and his own tax-gatherer. In common with the other citizens, he was invited, without sworn statement or declaration, to make such contribution to the public charges as seemed to himself just and equal. That sum, uncounted by any official, unknown to any but himself, he was asked to drop with his own hand into a strong public chest, on doing which his name was checked off the list of contributors. Every citizen felt a noble pride in such immunity from prying assessors and rude constables. Every annual call of the authorities on that community was honored to the full. Dr. Warren's article appeared in the Boston University Yearbook for 1876. The board of the Council of the University endorsed the essay in these words. In place of the further extent of taxation advocated by many, the essay proposes a far more imposing reform, the general abolition of all compulsory taxes. It is hoped that the comparative novelty of the proposition may not deter practical men from a thoughtful study of the paper.
Adam Smith, in one of his most sensible canons, declared, In a small republic, where the people have entire confidence in their magistrates and are convinced of the necessity of the tax for the support of the state, and believe that it will be faithfully applied to that purpose, such conscientious and voluntary payment may sometimes be expected. The gift method, however, presents some serious difficulties. In particular, it continues that disjunction between payment and receipt of service, which constitutes one of the great defects of a taxing system. Under taxation, payment is severed from receipt of service, in striking contrast to the market, where payment and service are correlative. The voluntary gift method perpetuates this disjunction. As a result, A, B, and C continue to receive the government's defense service even if they paid nothing for it, and only D and E contributed. D's and E's contributions, furthermore, may be disproportionate. It is true that this is the system of voluntary charity on the market, but charity flows from the more to the less wealthy and able. It does not constitute an efficient method for organizing the general sale of a service. Automobiles, clothes, etc. are sold on the market on a regular uniform price basis and are not indiscriminately given to some on the basis of gifts received from others. Under the gift system, people will tend to demand far more defense service from the government than they are willing to pay for, and the voluntary contributors, getting no direct reward for their money, will tend to reduce their payment. In short, where service, such as defense, flows to people regardless of payment, there will tend to be excessive demands for service, and an insufficient supply of funds to sustain it. When the advocates of taxation, therefore, contend that a voluntary society could never efficiently finance defense service because people would evade payment, they are correct, insofar as their strictures apply to the gift method of finance. The gift method, however, hardly exhausts the financing methods of the purely free market. A step in the direction of greater efficiency would have the defense agency charging a set price instead of accepting haphazard amounts varying from the very small to the very large, but continuing to supply defense indiscriminately. Of course, the agency would not refuse gifts for general purposes or for granting a supply of defense service to poor people, but it would charge some minimum price commensurate with the cost of its service. One such method is a voting tax, now known as a poll tax. The current poll tax began simply as a head tax, but in practice it is enforced only as a requirement for voting. It has therefore become a voting tax. A poll tax or voting tax is not really a tax at all. It is only a price charged for participating in the state organization. 
Only those who voluntarily vote for state officials, that is, who participate in the state machinery, are required to pay the tax. If all the state's revenues were derived from poll taxes, therefore, this would not be a system of taxation at all, but rather voluntary contributions in payment for the right to participate in the state's machinery. The voting tax would be an improvement over the gift method because it would charge a certain uniform or minimal amount. To the proposal to finance all government revenues from poll taxes, it has been objected that practically no one would vote under these conditions. This is perhaps an accurate prediction, but curiously the critics of the poll tax never pursue their analysis beyond this point. It is clear that this reveals something very important about the nature of the voting process. Voting is a highly marginal activity because a. the voter obtains no direct benefits from his act of voting, and b. his aliquot power over the final decision is so small that his abstention from voting would make no appreciable difference to the final outcome. In short, in contrast to all other choices a man may make, in political voting he has practically no power over the outcome, and the outcome would make little direct difference to him anyway. It is no wonder that well over half the eligible American voters persistently refuse to take part in the annual November balloting. This discussion also illuminates a puzzling phenomenon in American political life, the constant exhortation by politicians of all parties for people to vote. We don't care how you vote, but vote is a standard political slogan. Voting, like taxation, is another activity generally phrased in terms of duty rather than benefit. The call to duty is as praxeologically unsound as the call to sacrifice, and generally amounts to the same thing. For both exhortations tacitly admit that the actor will derive little or no benefit from his action. Further, the invocation of duty or sacrifice implies that someone else is going to receive the sacrifice or the payment of the obligation, and often that someone is the exhorter himself. On its face, it makes little sense, for one would think that at least one of the parties would see advantages in a small vote. But it does make a great deal of sense when we realize the enormous desire of politicians of all parties to make it appear that the people have given them a mandate in the election, that all the democratic shibboleths about representing the people, etc., are true. The reason for the relative triviality of voting is, once again, the disjunction between voting and payment on the one hand, and benefit on the other. The poll tax gives rise to the same problem. The voter, with or without paying a poll tax, receives no more benefit in protection than the non-voter. Consequently, people will refuse to vote in droves under a single poll tax scheme, and everyone will demand the use of the artificially free defense resources.
Both the gift and the voting tax methods of voluntary financing of government, therefore, must be discarded as inefficient. A third method has been proposed, which we can best call by the paradoxical name voluntary taxation. The plan envisioned is as follows. Every land area would, as now, be governed by one monopolistic state. The state's officials would be chosen by democratic voting as at present. The state would set a uniform price, or perhaps a set of cost prices, for protective services, and it would be left to each individual to make a voluntary choice whether to pay or not to pay the price. If he pays the price, he receives the benefit of governmental defense service. If he does not, he goes unprotected. We are assuming that the government will confine its use of force to defense, that is, will pursue a strictly laissez-faire policy. Theoretically, it is possible that a government may get all its revenue from voluntary contribution and yet pursue a highly coercive interventionist policy in other areas of the market. The possibility is so remote in practice, however, that we may disregard it here. It is highly unlikely that a government coercive in other ways would not take immediate steps to see that its revenues are assured by coercion. Its own revenue is always the state's prime concern. Note the very heavy penalties for income tax evasion and counterfeiting of government paper money. The leading voluntary taxationists have been Auberon Herbert, his associate J. Greaves Fisher, and sometimes Gustave de Molinari. The same position is found earlier, to a far less developed extent, in the early editions of Herbert Spencer's Social Statics, particularly his chapter on The Right to Ignore the State, and in Thoreau's Essay on Civil Disobedience. The voluntary taxation method preserves a voluntary system, is, or appears to be, neutral vis-à-vis -vis the market, and eliminates the payment-benefit disjunction. And yet, this proposal has several important defects. Its most serious flaw is inconsistency. For the voluntary taxationists aim at establishing a system in which no one is coerced who is not himself an invader of the person or property of others, hence their complete elimination of taxation. But, although they eliminate the compulsion to subscribe to the government defense monopoly, they yet retain that monopoly. They are therefore faced with the problem, would they use force to compel people not to use a freely competing defense agency within the same geographic area? The voluntary taxationists have never attempted to answer this problem. They have rather stubbornly assumed that no one would set up a competing defense agency within a state's territorial limits. And yet, if people are free to pay or not to pay taxes, it is obvious that some people will not simply refuse to pay for all protection. 
dissatisfied with the quality of defense they receive from the government or with the price they must pay, they will elect to form a competing defense agency or government within the area and subscribe to it. The voluntary taxation system is thus impossible of attainment because it would be in unstable equilibrium. If the government elected to outlaw all competing defense agencies, it would no longer function as the voluntary society sought by its proponents. It would not force payment of taxes, but it would say to the citizens, You are free to accept and pay for our protection or to abstain, but you are not free to purchase defense from a competing agency. This is not a free market. This is a compulsory monopoly, once again a grant of monopoly privilege by the state to itself. Such a monopoly would be far less efficient than a freely competitive system. Hence, its costs would be higher, its service poorer. It would clearly not be neutral to the market. On the other hand, if the government did permit free competition in defense service, there would soon no longer be a central government over the territory. Defense agencies, police, and judicial would compete with one another in the same uncoerced manner as the producers of any other service on the market. The prices would be lower, the service more efficient, and, for the first and only time, the defense system would then be neutral in relation to the market. It would be neutral because it would be a part of the market itself. Defense service would at last be made fully marketable. No longer would anyone be able to point to one particular building or set of buildings, one uniform or set of uniforms, as representing our government. While the government would cease to exist, the same cannot be said for a constitution or a rule of law which, in fact, would take on in the free society a far more important function than at present. For the freely competing judicial agencies would have to be guided by a body of absolute law to enable them to distinguish objectively between defense and invasion. This law, embodying elaborations upon the basic injunction to defend person and property from acts of invasion, would be codified in the basic legal code. Failure to establish such a code of law would tend to break down the free market, for then defense against invasion could not be adequately achieved. On the other hand, those neo-Tolstoyan non-resistors who refuse to employ violence even for defense would not themselves be forced into any relationship with the defense agencies. Thus, if a government based on voluntary taxation permits free competition, the result will be the purely free market system outlined in Chapter 1. The previous government would now simply be one competing defense agency among many on the market. It would, in fact, be competing at a severe disadvantage, having been established on the principle of democratic voting.
Looked at as a market phenomenon, democratic voting, one vote per person, is simply the method of the consumer cooperative. Empirically, it has been demonstrated time and again that cooperatives cannot compete successfully against stock-owned companies, especially when both are equal before the law. There is no reason to believe that cooperatives for defense would be any more efficient. Hence, we may expect the old cooperative government to wither away through loss of customers on the market, while joint stock, that is, corporate defense agencies, would become the prevailing market form. These corporations would not, of course, need any charter from a government, but would charter themselves in accordance with the ways in which their owners decided to pool their capital. They could announce their limited liability in advance, and then all their creditors would be put amply on guard. There is a strong a priori reason for believing that corporations will be superior to cooperatives in any given situation, for if each owner receives only one vote, regardless of how much money he has invested in a project, and earnings are divided in the same way, there is no incentive to invest more than the next man. In fact, every incentive is the other way. This hampering of investment militates strongly against the cooperative form.